Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, sponsored by the members of the GrandTheftWorld.com community. It's October 2nd. It's episode 100. We've reached the centennial episode for this journey. Tonight, we got a lot of different stories we're going to get into. I'll give you a little brief sampling. We're going to be here for about the next six or seven hours, taking this week's uh, current events, smashing them into contextual history so we can have better understanding, better decision-making during the week. We're going to talk about stories like... Bill Gates came out and said, it's going to be a, a hung election. I don't know how he knows this. He also hinted at maybe civil war in the future. We also had this week, um, Nord Stream 2 pipeline was disrupted in four different places in a way that didn't seem to be an accident. So we're going to be looking into maybe who was behind it. And uh, Corbett did a really good report this past week. There's a lot of good news on that. We're also going to talk about stories like uh, the World Economic Forum. They've got some unresources from their unsaid kind of partnership with the United Nations. Um, they have a quote where they say they own the science. And it reminded me of Galileo and the Pope. And the Pope says, we own the science. And we all remember how that went. So we'll tune into how that story is going to go tonight. Also, uh, you're tuning to a podcast that has 900 more paid subscribers than CNN Plus. And we're going to get into some books tonight. Let me shift to the uh, book cam. Katie Alper got the axe from the hill the past week over the Israeli-Palestinian issue. This is a report from the Trilateral Commission. We'll dig into that later tonight. We're also uh, going to look into the great narrative, Klaus Schwab's second book. I spent a little good time marking this up this past week. We're going to get into it. And finally... Foreshadowing our interview for next week, Whitney Webb, I just finished her two-volume set, One Nation Under Blackmail. Here's what that looks like, all highlighted. So we're going to get into that sort of things uh, and a whole lot more tonight. We have special guest, special guest Clay Clark from the Re Reawaken America Tour. And uh, as always, we're going to go to Luke Rudowski of the best political, bestpoliticalshirts.com with his Sunday wrap-up to foreshadow what we're going to cover for the rest of the night. Let's go to Luke. It's the Roman circus. What does the emperor do when the people become restive and when the people are asking questions and when the people don't like the policies of the emperor? He sends them to the circus. He creates a circus. He builds a giant coliseum. Then he begins to throw the Christians to the lions and he has great chariot races and football games and basketball games all to keep the idiots preoccupied with things that don't mean anything in the scheme of the entire world so that they don't have the time to learn what the truth is so they don't ever get smart enough to learn how they're being manipulated so they don't ever question the emperor that's why they pay a player on a football team or a baseball team a million or two million or three million dollars a year it is the Roman circus well, I really do hope that you guys are enjoying your meaningless Sunday night sports balls. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Okudowski here of WeAreChange.org. Absolutely so many crazy things happening in the world right now that we're going to be breaking down this Sunday. A shocking statement by, of course, the World Economic Forum and their partnership that, of course, is helping enrich some of the most sinister people in the world as they literally restart projects that are connected to one of the biggest events in our modern history. 
Not a joke. If that wasn't crazy enough, we of course have more salacious crazy news coming from Russia and Ukraine with another uh, jaw-dropping, eye-opening statement by the Secretary of State. We're going to be getting into that plus a lot more all here on this independent media outlet. And the clip that you saw in the beginning of this broadcast was most likely filmed sometimes in the 90s by William Cooper. Before any alternative independent media questioning our current paradigms, there was... William Cooper that paved the way for many of us when it came to thinking outside of the box and breaking the conditioning that is pushed on by, of course, the corporate media. He, of course, also was a former U.S. Navy intel agent who, of course, wrote fascinating books that are definitely worth revisiting and extra, extra points if you recognized him from the beginning of this video. Now, as the general public is, is pacified with, with sports balls, there, of course, is a lot of crazy things happening in this world, bringing upon great suffering to the masses especially when it comes to the larger financial ramifications that are absolutely obliterating the American middle blue-collar class. This as of course, massive government intervention, money printing, taxes, regulations, rules, have absolutely destroyed the modern man's ability to be able to make a comfortable living for himself, while of course enriching some of the most powerful multinational billionaire corporations out there. As of course, the Federal Reserve literally printed money out of thin air, which devalued the dollar and gave it to some of the most powerful entities on Wall Street. They did this with secret bailouts that no one is even talking about. This as the last three years, small mom and pop businesses were shut down by governments for, of course, science. Science that the World Economic Forum is literally bragging that they control. Yes, you're, you're hearing this correctly. The World Economic Forum literally bragged about how they partnered with Alphabet and Google to determine what people could see, what they could think about, to the point where the Undersecretary for Global Communications for the United Nations, Melissa Fleming, went on record during the World Economic Forum meeting and declared, quote, we own the science. It's not a joke. Here, here's her words out of her own mouth. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. Yeah, and uh, they certainly do own the science and they have absolutely abused that responsibility within the last few years, especially with what we've seen with the health emergency that of course was used to enrich some of the most richest people in this world, including the lackeys of a lot of these policies. As we have seen, Dr. Fauci's net worth increased to $12.6 million. This is actually pennies comparatively to what his policies have done, transferring the wealth from the poorest people in the world and giving it to the richest ones with of course his lockdown mandate and restriction policy that, of course, hindered the average person while, of course, benefiting corporations like Walmart and Amazon. The Silicon Tech Valley was also heavily enriched as, of course, more people became dependent on them when they were locked inside of their own homes. All as we're finding out that within the last three years, the science was either made up or manipulated to work for the personal benefit of the people controlling the science. And this is why this, this admission by the UN Secretary during this World Economic Forum is so telling and, and so important to understand 
Iran in the backdrop of how humanity was just screwed over within the last three years with policies that didn't help anyone. To the point where there's even mainline corporate news articles out there highlighting how a lot of the policies were counterintuitive and actually led to more suffering rather than, of course, prevent any of it. Now, it's also important to note, what are these lackeys of the World Economic Forum at the United Nations going to be doing with them having the godlike ability to control science? Which, by the way, shouldn't be controlled. You destroy and bastardize the definition of science by saying you control it. Science is supposed to be about experiments, about discovery, about testing different hypotheses out there. It can't be owned. It can't be controlled unless, of course, you're doing something really nasty and sinister and, of course, denying the actual practice of science, which, of course, many scholars have argued was done within the last three years. And, and again, it's just mind boggling because a couple decades ago, the science was that cigarettes was good for you. So was asbestos. So was DDT. And because of people having the ability to question the science, we no longer see these harms as something that were, quote, beneficial. And now if someone owns the science and doesn't practice science, we could, of course, prolong very bad practices that probably will be hurting more people and then actually helping them. As a perfect example of the Joe Biden administration that is now going to be firing a hero Coast Guard diver that risked his life to save residents of Florida after Hurricane Ian, the President of the United States even saw his extraordinary effort to help people. The President of the United States personally called this man and he will be firing this man just days from now as the U.S. military, which has very poor enlistment numbers, is still planning to fire 20,000 members of the military because they didn't comply with a procedure that the government wants them to take. A procedure which many mainline scientists are putting into question right now. But why is this absurdity happening? Why is, is there such discrimination? Why is a man who risked his life to save others going to be fired, prevented from helping people in the future because of an out-of-date insane policy that absolutely has no merit in it? Well, that's because a sinister group of people control the science. And therefore, science can't progress. It cannot grow. It is only hindered and destroyed for the personal benefit of of a bunch of control freak and ninnies who want to hold it and wield it for themselves for their own personal use. Again, as mentioned by the UN Secretary for Global Communications, opposing viewpoints are now being pushed down in search results. Any questioning, any acts of science, not allowed. That, of course, they do not personally agree with. What's the next step in this agenda? Well, pushing more science that also very conveniently allows them to take away more of your money, more of your civil liberties away, more of your existence away from this planet. And that's exactly what they're planning to do, which I routinely talk about on LukeUncensored.com. But since today is a Sunday, I wanted to remind you about TheBestPoliticalShirts.com. So as we're making this video, it's also important to note that... Uh, our current geopolitical foreign policy situation is uh, not that good. Not that good at all, especially with the latest jaw-dropping statements made by the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who, of course, has the underling that he works with, Victoria Newland, which had her hand in the Ukrainian cookie jar for a very long time. But these latest statements by, by Secretary Blinken are, are, are very surprising. As he just said, the explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline, the attack on Russian and German infrastructure, the ecological terrorist action is, quote, offering 
tremendous strategic opportunity for years to come. Yes, the Secretary of State is openly saying that this attack provides a tremendous opportunity for the United States, which, of course, will have a high price for Europe, as, of course, Europe is already dealing with a major energy crisis. That energy crisis is made that much worse with the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline and with the United States calling for the Nord Stream pipeline not to be originally built, as well as calling for its destruction within the last few years. And now with its destruction, with these latest statements from the Secretary of State, highlights a clear case of who benefits from this larger ecological disaster that of course is going to bring some severe pain and suffering for the poorest people in Europe this winter. Now with the pipeline being destroyed, it is expected to take many years to try to even rebuild it, if there even will be attempts to do so. This as the United States wants Europe to quote, use less energy, all in the name of the science, while of course trying to offer some of its energy to sell to Europe. This of course creating a very difficult situation for Russia, which has only been made worse with what looks like the defeat of a major key strategic city in the Donetsk region, specifically with the reports, videos, and accounts we're getting of Russian forces leaving the key city of Lyman. Now, if you remember a couple days ago, I was on the Tim Cast IRL podcast and I said, it looks like Ukraine will soon be taking the city of Lyman, which is a key strategic city, which I was heavily criticized for. And if you look at all the comments that were made there, I was called many different names. I was called crazy. I was called stupid. There's no way that this was going to happen and now what I called for has actually happened from looking at all the sources that I usually look at. And the reason I was carefully looking at this situation is because this is a major deal. With the Ukrainians now in control of Lyman, they could push forward more into the Russian-controlled territories. But more importantly, Lyman is also a part of one of the new Russian annexed territories that Russia claimed for themselves, which they have also promised to protect with nuclear weapons. As of course, we have been laying down the groundwork of the Russian policy here, annexing a lot of territories, saying that they will protect their territories with nuclear weapons. This as even major political allies to Russia, Chechen leaders specifically are coming out on record recommending that Russia already use these nuclear weapons, which of course would be a severe escalation to this entire conflict, which is a larger proxy war between the East and the West. And as Russia is literally positioning themselves, sending in their nuclear bombing aircraft to the region. This is also the latest information we're getting from Israeli intelligence that released satellite images of specific Russian aircraft meant to send nuclear weapons near the Ukrainian territory. All of this, as the United States is saying, well, it's not going to happen. As they continue to escalate the situation, this as already nine member state of NATO have declared their support for a Ukrainian membership. The Ukrainian membership is, of course, something that is dependent on all members of NATO agreeing to, which as of right now in the making of this video is unlikely. But with how the situation will change inside of Ukraine, we will only see as there is a small possibility with major escalations that this application is still up in the air. The U.S. government just passed a bill to avoid a domestic government shutdown while also agreeing to give an additional $12 billion to Ukraine. Poland has started to give out anti-radiation tablets while Putin has been declaring that victory will be his 
while of course ranting and raving about the use of nuclear weapons. He also went on to call Western elites, quote, openly satanic, while of course rejecting moral and religious traditions, while, quote, offering children sex change operations. So yeah, there's that. And uh, in this conflict, there's going to be no winners. The escalation of this conflict from both sides, to me, is absolutely idiotic. I'm no fan of any government. I'm no fan of any politician. And no matter what they say, unless they're de-escalating the situation, unless they're trying to go to the negotiations tables, unless they're trying to, of course, stop this war, I don't want to hear any of it. And if a politician wants to fight a war, let them fight the war themselves. Let, let, just like the old days, kings used to fight kings. You believe in an idea? You want to battle somebody? Do it on your own. Stop telling poor people to do your own fighting for you. And truly, this is a situation that is chaotic and that is absolutely stupid in my opinion. If you agree with that particular opinion, share this video with your friends. Excellent reporting by Luke Radowski. Wearechange.org. Bestpoliticalshirts.com. All right. So uh, I want to rewind. He was talking about Blinken in there, right? Anthony Blinken, I believe he's the Secretary of State. Correct in my mind started blinking and i was like hold on a second i'm pretty sure that whitney webb mentions anthony blinken in her books so we're going to go we're just going to do it live let's go to the index let's look up the letter b might have to put my spectacles on for this we're going to find anthony blinken because he's in here because he had someone famous in his family uh related to this epstein Gig. Let's see. C. We're all the way back at B. B. R. Rothman, Bruton, Bosky, Blinken, Anthony. Page four oh nine. Now let's go in here. Page three, four, five, four oh nine. Right here. Here we go. Uh, let's see. It's talking about a company called World Tech. Let me get this on screen here. At that at the time that World Tech was being created, CDC's executive pre, uh, vice president, executive vice president Robert D. Schmidt was part of the American Committee of U.S. Soviet Relations. Other members at the time, specifically in 1977, included Robert Maxwell's lawyer, so that's Ghislaine's dad's lawyer and confidant, Samuel Pissar, stepfather to the future U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Well, isn't that fascinating? So now we have some, you know, he didn't just get the job out of nowhere. He's got somebody famous in this book right here that you can learn about a little bit more later tonight when we cover these books. But that was just one idea I had. The other was, how did he start out that video? He started out that video with a video of uh, Bill Cooper, right? William Cooper, the author of Behold, A Pale Horse. And that clip was talking about the Roman emperors. And I thought, you know, we got an interesting clip. It's from uh, this film right here, The Ultimate History Lesson with John Taylor Gatto. And uh, this clip that we're going to show you, I could do it live. Let's do it live. Split the screen. Zoom it in. If you go to uh, grandtheftworld.com and become a member, you get access to an app that gives you not only the podcast, but my podcast. Pro, you know, my previous podcast, Peace Revolution, 9-11 Synchronicity. Oh, look right here. The Ultimate History Lesson with John Taylor Gatto. So aside from the other goodies in here, if you want to see more of this clip that we're going to show you, this is where you can find it. 
And you can get access to this by going to grandtheftworld.com. Upper right corner is a blue box that says join and uh, lots of different membership levels that give you access to this library. Now, I put it in the chat, LD, and uh, it's a clip from the Ultimate History Lesson that John explains how Roman emperors would train fleas, flea circuses. And surprise, spoiler, trees, uh, fleas can't be trained. Trees can't be trained either, but fleas especially cannot be trained. But rather what they do is they identify the unique capabilities of the flea and they harness it. And I'm, I'm not trying to teach you about flea circuses because I think you are interested in that. I'm trying to show you that what they understood and could do to fleas in Chinese and Roman emperors thousands of years ago, they're doing to people very much today. So it's metaphor that's being delivered. It's not literal you don't have to go restart Hubert's flea circus, but let's go to John Taylor Gatto from the ultimate history lesson and let's learn what Roman emperors were practicing on insects to then do to people. And then we'll get to Klaus and eats the bugs soon. Is it possible to train fleas before you break their will? Oh. And what can one learn from the gene sequencing hobbies of 11-year-olds? I got a foundation award at a fancy hotel in Washington, D.C. Oh, I guess about 15 years ago. It was all, certainly a, a while ago. And sitting next to me was an 11-year-old boy receiving the same award from the foundation. And, I mean, I was tickled. Here's this little skinny Chinese kid, and he has made some scientific breakthroughs. So, you know, I'm patronizing him the way I've been trained to do. And I said, well, how did you learn to sequence genes, you know, instead of swimming. I'm a swimming champion. I remember he said that to me. I have a lot of metal. So he was a well-balanced 11-year-old kid. And, and these days I understand he's a uh, college professor in Seattle. But in any case, he said, my, my uncle or my grandfather explained to me that the way you train fleas, he hit a soft part in me because I used to go to Hubert's Flea Circus on 42nd Street and watch fleas draw Roman chariots and swing on trapezes. He said, you've got to break their spirits. If you put fleas in a container, they'll instantly leap off and head off in all directions because they have flea agendas. And even they don't haul off in the same direction. They have individual agendas. So he says, you gotta, you gotta break that autonomy in the flea first. And the way you do that is you put them in a container, small with a lid on. 
and the fleas keep attempting to follow their own agenda and they strike themselves over and over again and if you come back in an hour or so they're all huddled in a mass together now when you take the lid off they don't even try to escape now he said you can impose your will on the flea the minute the 11 year old kid said that to me I knew that I had been hired as the lid on the container. Not that I hadn't sabotaged it somewhat, but nevertheless, that's what we all had been hired to do. And this principle was understood. Training fleas was a, a delight of emperors thousands of years ago. And whoever trained those fleas understood the principle and saw that it could be applied as it is in military training to human beings as it is in much religious training not all but much so you've got a character like Vunt who believes that children have no soul and he's designing an education system and then you've got these Machiavellian techniques being layered in on top of it of how to break the will of animals and it's being used to train our children. Yeah, what's surprising is that these insights and even these activities that don't depend on modern technology, I mean, these are understood a long time ago, and the only subject at the Roman Collegia in the fifth century was, I'll put an umbrella over it, crowd control. You know, how you divide to conquer what buttons on the human organ you press to produce certain sounds. I mean, that's 16 centuries ago. What has happened in the intervening 16 centuries? They forgot that, or was it added to? Has it become amazingly sophisticated? Less and less people necessary to produce more and more leverage. I found a note in John's handwriting earlier today when I was cleaning the, uh, the teaching studio behind me. Let me see if I can show this without showing. So this is John writing Edward J. Epstein homepage. Go to Ask Ed. So you can go to Edward J. Epstein's homepage if he still has it and ask him questions too. Um, I thought that was interesting because uh, I didn't plan on playing that Gatto clip, but once I played it, I was like, I did find that note earlier today. I do have all of Epstein's books. I didn't get around to interviewing Ed, and I think he's beyond the age of interviews at this point, probably. Um, moving forward, North Stream 2. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Sun Tzu, 6th century, so I'll take it 21 centuries ago, Mr. Gatto, uh, determined that the, the most effective way to uh, completely dominate your enemy is by breaking uh, their will to fight. So he understood the psychology of fighting something along class, which sort of didn't quite understand all those centuries later, but it's been well understood, I think, through most of human civilization, uh, the importance of essentially breaking the will if you want control over an individual. And so obviously, like in, the psychology yeah. of control that's also in the Library of Cognitive Liberty for Grand Theft World members. You guys can catch up. Well, well, 
Well played. That is correct. Yep. All right. So Nord Stream 2, there's two clips that, aside from like news of the event, that I thought were substantial. The first clip was Biden back in February had said, if Russia invades Ukraine, there will be no Nord Stream 2 pipeline anymore. And then Victoria Newland, uh, who we know from Ukraine Gate, she also reiterated that NATO, she speaks like on behalf of the United States, UN, NATO, it depends on what day of the week it is. She's one of the neocons. She's married to Robert Kagan from the famous neocon Kagan family. So she's in it to win it. Her strategy is not going to change. You can pretty much predict what these people are going to do because uh, they've already set their 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 minds in stone where they're going, right? So those two clips, I'm having a feeling, I haven't seen it yet, but I have a feeling that probably Christy Lee is going to play both those clips in this week's media malfeasance. And if not, if not, we'll find them. We'll get them. I know InfoWars played them last Monday uh, when the event happened. They're like, hey, look at this. So uh, many people have covered that. Let's go to Christy Lee in the, this week's me- uh, week in media malfeasance, and then uh, we'll see what she has in store for us. Reporters are practicing safe hurricane coverage, and apparently Ian will not get anything through this. Yep, that's a condom wrapped securely on a mic. Got your attention? This picture went viral for all the wrong reasons this week. Now, in my 15 years in TV news, I'd never seen this done, but in all fairness, apparently this is a thing. It does beg some questions, though. Where did the condom come from? Does the news station keep a box at work? Either way, the stick mic was able to evacuate safely. Bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, misleading, or just plain false, here's your media malfeasance for the week. President Biden had a difficult time safely evacuating a podium on Thursday. Was he looking for Jackie again? Representative, Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here. Representative Jackie Walorski died in a car accident in August. President Biden had actually released a statement at the time of her death. Now, the press corps actually did their job and asked about the gaffe in relation to growing concern over the president's cognitive health. It didn't go well for KJP. And uh, she was on top of mine. I mean, I don't, that is, <laughs> I mean, that is, uh, that is not an unusual, uh, unusual scenario there. Green, I have John Lennon. Top of mind just about every day, but I'm not looking around for him anyway. When you sign a bill for John Lennon, Lennon has president, then we can have this conversation. Well, okay, go ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. These moments of confusion are happening with the The corporate media machine is trying their best to use the hurricane hitting Florida against its governor, Ron DeSantis, but it's not been working out well. Far and that whoa, 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 whoa. Give me a break. That is nonsense. Stop politicizing, okay? Stop it. We declared a state of emergency when this thing wasn't even formed. We've had people in here. You've had counties doing. Uh, they've done a lot of hard work. And, and honestly, you're trying to attack me, I get. But, like, you're attacking these other people who've worked very hard. And so, so that's just totally false. Yet propaganda puppets still champion a candidate like this. And the Eagles are so much better than the Eagles. No, no. And MSM is losing its mind over Georgia Maloney being elected Italy's new prime minister on Tuesday. Just look at all the headlines, making sure they describe her as far right or right wing. How come you never see headlines describing a candidate as far left or super socialist? 
Even before she was elected, Politico's headline reads more like satire. Will Italy's first female prime minister be bad for women? Or how about this? Georgia Maloney is a danger to Italy and the rest of Europe. Roberto Saviano is referring to her slogan, God, Homeland, and Family. Wow, scary. It's so scary to mention God or family that YouTube pulled down Maloney's 2019 World Congress of Families speech where she focused on family values. In it, she says, why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightening? Because it defines us, because it is our identity, because everything that defines us is now an enemy for those who would like us to no longer have an identity and to simply be perfect consumer slaves. Oh, but YouTube says removing the video was just a mistake. Why do these mistakes only affect one side? Russell Brand asked a similar question this week. We have been officially censored by YouTube. They took down one of our videos for misinformation. But why are big media organizations not censored for misinformation in the same way? Is it because YouTube are part of the mainstream media now? They removed his video on the eve of his new Rumble show debut. Interesting timing. And Don Lemon gets owned again this week. What effect does climate change have on this phenomenon that, that is happening now? Because it seems these storms are intensifying. That's the question. Here. I don't think you can link climate change to any one event. Okay, well, they, listen, I grew up there and these storms are intensifying. Yeah, well, I wouldn't take Don Lemon's word for anything, frankly. Uh, just look at the science. We're told, trust the science. Well, I'll quote you the science. Even the United Nations Bible of Global Warming, the latest report of its intergovernment panel on climate change, they admit we're in fact getting fewer cyclones and hurricanes with global warming. Fewer or the same, not more. And it's not clear yet if we are getting more intense ones. But while hyping up the hurricane, our big three ignore the major stock market dive this week. Newsbusters, the stock market plunged at the end of the second quarter, blotting out a whopping $9 trillion worth of Americans' wealth. But the ABC, CBS, and NBC Evening News shows completely ignored the news on Tuesday night. But they sure did report every little dip under Trump. Here's why the media ignores the crash. Faxerfirst.com keeps an updated Biden versus Trump market comparison. The Trump era market performed as high as 63% better. And after a media blitz of recession denial, which appeared to include attempts at redefining the word, now it's, we're not in a recession, but if we are, it's great. WAPO, seven ways a recession could be good for you financially. But is Fox News any better? Information Liberation points out Fox News' Griffin says there's no evidence U.S. was involved in Nord Stream 2 explosion this week because the Pentagon says so. That's it. That's the source. Anyone remember the Pentagon Papers scandal? CNBC tied itself in knots on Thursday over this report. The first openly trans army major and doctor wife charged in plot to give U.S. military medical info to Russians to help in war against Ukraine. Jordan Chamberlain, CNBC is so afraid to misgender the trans army officer who tried to give soldiers medical information to Russia that they changed their article three times. And here's something that flew under the radar. FBI changes total number of documents seized from Trump's estate. 63 additional documents or photographs were taken from Trump's resort than the FBI listed before. Nothing shady about that. I'll leave you with this. If you're frustrated, you're not alone. A recent Gallup poll finds nearly 80% of Americans are dissatisfied with the way things are going. 
To stop the gaslighting and find the truth, see all my content on freenews.news and join my community. Subscribe at christyleetv.locals.com. All right, so uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline wasn't in there, was it, fellas? It was so, not. So we're going to have to cover it now because we've, we've wet the appetite of the audience. We can't leave them wanting for six hours until we cover it later. So let's go to, um, let's find a news clip of what happened. Traditional news, NBC, ABC, whatever. They're going to tell you Russia did it to themselves. That's the official narrative. Then we're going to play some inconvenient truths, which would be Biden and Victoria Newland and what they have to say. What do you got, Tony? Why don't I just share this? And LD, while I share this, you want to find just like a normal AP clip. Um, So shout out to Ferdinand Stanek. Yeah, Ferdinand Stanek. Yeah. Stanek. Um, He posted World Tech Team, yeah. He posted a question to me in the queues for Richard and Tony asking me to break down the fallacies in this particular article, which I did uh, earlier today. I don't know why the picture isn't showing up. might be because of all the ad blocks I have. There we go. And so the article is entitled Russian push uh, baseless. Russians push baseless theory blaming U.S. for burst pipeline. And That's so it's interesting because Americans push baseless theory blaming Russian for bombing Russia's pipeline. If you try those both on, which one fits given the evidence of NATO's encroachment I mean, over the past two, 30 years? <laughs> two quoque argument there, ad hominem. So. Yeah. I mean, then so what I did was I did an entire breakdown of all the various fallacies associated with this. And I could find the same ones on the Russian side, I'm sure. But if people are interested, you can check out my analysis in the, by joining the GTW community. But I wanted to point this out while Rich, or excuse me, while LD finds a distance, a, a normal news clip of what, how the, Western media is presenting this phenomenon, but I'll just read a couple of sections here. Quotes from the AP article. The Kremlin and Russia's state media are aggressively pushing a baseless conspiracy theory, blaming the United States for damage to natural gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea. What analysts said Friday is another effort to split the U.S. and its European allies. So they the say Russian, baseless conspiracy theory? The Russian, it's so a you don't question think, begging epithet. That's a question. Because if they it's don't have circuit, that... Yeah. Tony, if they don't have that, the person who's reasonable asks at the end of the question, gee, I wonder if there's any evidence to that effect. But now they don't have to think because the centralized thinking bodies have said, oh, baseless conspiracy theory. And that is a prevention piece to keep people from asking them the natural questions of learning about the topic. Right. And it keeps it's, you right here in the AP. So it's it's them using psychological warfare. To keep you from going and looking to another source other than AP, which makes AP more of an authority in your life when you believe baseless conspiracy theory. Did they offer any evidence to that effect of that claim, Tony? They did not, which is why this is this riddle with fallacies. And ironically, I found so many of them. I actually missed that very first one. Baseless conspiracy theory would be a question begging epithet. That's a patidio from Kippy. It's begging the question. Begging the question. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we could go on and on, but uh, the Russian position is also reverberating on social media forums popular with American conservatives and far right groups. Other questions. People who can read and research for themselves. Sorry. Right. So you can see how the, the way they're slanting this already, um, which is another. Fa- so it's just like riddled with just bias uh, and fallacies all over the place. You know and- what I smell? I smell crippled epistemology, Tony. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. People who can't actually tell the truth and don't have facts on their signs, they have to lie. That's all this is. They're just lying. And so fallacies are just a way to misdirect from evidence, which is what they're constantly doing. You know, towards and the critical end of the thinking, if I might add, 
is your your brain's antivirus scanner to keep incorrect things from coming into your brain and residing as fact, such as the first statement, baseless conspiracy theories. Because I think there is some basis. The vice president and Victoria Newland both said they would destroy the pipeline. That's correct. And let's not forget so that- So they don't want you to know about that, it seems. While at the same time, they're castigating far-right groups, instigating and uh, per, uh, permutating or rather uh, sharing this sort of information. So they're um, doing exactly what they accuse conspiracy theorists of doing. Am I correct? I that's right. Off that's base there? Okay, no, that's exactly right. Hmm. That's exactly right. They continue to build straw men about we how- We should call Klaus or, and have him point the misdirection police at these things, right? Or is Klaus not going to investigate people who support Klaus? Maybe that's a conflict of interest? Uh, you know, that's a good question. We'll we find out it. more as this episode unfolds tonight, I'm sure. All right, continue, please. Uh, let me go back to the article here. So it's interesting because, I mean, I could, we could go on and on, but I thought this was interesting towards the end here. It's not the first time, so I'm towards the end of the article now. It's not a very long article, by the way. It's just a big propaganda piece. It's not the first time Russia has spread disinformation, seeking to redirect blame for the war and undermine Ukraine's allies. Earlier this year, Kremlin-controlled media mounted a disinformation operation asserting the U.S. had been running secret bioweapons, bioweapon labs in Ukraine. Carlson mm-hmm helped amplify that theory too there wasn't uh, any u.s bio weapons labs they were biotechnology labs over there or whatever they said right tony that's and it wasn't that also victoria newland and that Nicole? was victoria newland i was just gonna oh my bring goodness, that up the yeah. synchronicity strong tonight with the centennial episode bro <laughs> jeez but you know i also love here how they uh, uh sort of um do an uh, ad hominem circumstantial with Carlson, assuming that he's biased and therefore any evidence that he presents, which he is, he is presenting from a biased perspective, but he actually presented evidence of U.S. biolabs in the Ukraine that were being purposely destroyed as Uk- uh, Russian forces were making their way towards them. So, I mean, it's one thing to point out that Carlson may be biased, but it's another thing to assume that bias this disregards all the evidence he's presenting or other alternative media and not that Carlson's alternative media, but potentially what other, you know, media might say about it. And so there's, and obviously they built a straw man with the whole, uh, this information operation with the U S bio labs by the same people who call such things, baseless conspiracy theories, Tony, are they also the same ilk that would compare like a January 6th to nine 11, which is also a baseless. That's a false equivalency fallacy. That's yeah. LD, will you put that map graphic on screen? Just a little refresher for people, because I know it's been like 21 years since the event. Oh, yeah. But I have a comparison map. I'm offering my side of the evidence. I'd like to see the comparison from January 6th side. But if you could put that up on screen, it shows <clears throat> where human remains were found from 9-11. Years went by before they identified 2,000 bodies by DNA fragments. Now, if you notice... They're not exactly in a pancake dispersion. Like they're not all in one place. They're scattered out hundreds of meters around the city. So I'm just saying, when you have a map like that from January 6th and you want to compare the two, like you could get a map like that from Pearl Harbor. We can compare the Pearl Harbor to 9-11. PNAC did before 9-11. That's correct. Council on Foreign Relations did before 9-11. But I haven't seen like a map of where all the remains and incidents happen from the January 6th thing that uh was compared to 9-11 well said not to mention then uh the uh the fact that we went into afghanistan 
based on what happened the events of 9-11 by utilizing the boogeyman named Tim Osama, I mean, excuse me, Osama bin Laden and his supposed terrorist network. That's a database. His ISI handlers. I mean, Pakistani uh-huh. ISI is created by MI6. Any questions? And, then, and let's not forget how many hundreds, I think millions of civilians that have been maimed or have been killed in Afghanistan as a result of that. On terror? That was and the, the name of the war on terror. terror. While at the same time, poppy production went up over 900%. And we seem to uh, support unscrupulous individuals that did child grooming and other very nefarious and, and disturbing activities in Afghanistan. And that was used to build a base, sort of a beachfront, metaphorically speaking, to move our way into Afghanistan, or excuse me, into Iraq. Not to mention then Cheney and Halliburton and, you know, the military industrial complex and how much kickbacks they're getting from the uh, uh, rewarding of uh, defense contracts to private corporations that seem to have and seem to be intimately tied with these neocons that we have commented on now many times on GTW. So it's uh, when you can show me all of that evidence as far as January 6th, as far as the fallout of January 6th. And Rich, you showed a couple of weeks ago, I think it was a Webster Tarpley book talking about the continuity of government, how yeah. there was a, you know, I have yet to see any There was a threat evidence. on Air Force One that came from inside the house. You got it. That's got not it. explained by the 18 hijackers with the box cutters. I'm the still... Cave, the caves of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Well said. Not to mention the impossibility of the physics of being able to bank at those speeds, particularly at the Pentagon. That's actually fundamentally impossible. But then, yeah, even, the official story is ludicrous. Yeah, and ask a pilot. Whereas with January sixth, it's a it's a completely different situation. When you can show me all of those details and evidence surrounding January sixth had a ripple effect that there was actually a continuity of government in place. That there were elements within our military that were ready to completely take over. Um, I have yet to see any. Well, any evidence, whether convincing evidence, any evidence at all that that was the case, seemed to be more or less a staged psyop. We could argue about which side staged the psyop, if you want to call it a psyop. I would say there's a preponderance of evidence to theorize on that front, but let's be careful how we equi- uh, create a uh, equivalency between the two. In this case, it'd be a, the fallacy of the false equivalence, because right now there's not any evidence to show that they're, these two are in the same legal ballpark with what had happened. Uh, and it's it's really the same conversation. That's you correct. Want to be respectful. That's that's exactly right. Three thousand people died that day in horrific ways. Um, that's just not to mention all the first responders who died because they thought they were going in there to rescue their brothers for two or three or four weeks in a pile that fucking was on fire until mid December when they put the fires out. Three months was, later, fires burning underground still. No oxygen needed for these fires. They're magic fires. Magic it's all fires. natural. It's all explained away, of course, by the jet fuel. And then one fell after the other, pretty much from gravity of their own weight or whatever. Yeah, the they, uh, says. Well, yeah falling a free fall speed, that quite literally doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, I was just talking to Senna and she talked about how she was able to, they, they brought dog food for the canine units in those days and they, you could smell the death. I mean, the death permit, permit sort of, uh, permutated across the yeah, city we were taking it's a lower Manhattan for like for the six first months, to nine like, months there's tons of people yeah. taking food down there and people just you know hanging out and being supportive right. everybody in the city was out getting exposed right. to that dust walking through it epa could, i remember talking it's like oh the dust is safe it's safe giuliani told people sure. that the dust is safe pataki told people the dust is safe just like the vaccines are safe rich that killed a lot of people too it's killing a lot of people today 
That's right. That's right. That's the other thing. It's like the fallout. When you look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example, you look at the fallout uh, like uh, 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, in the case of uh, neurological conditions, cancer rates, these sorts of things, it was it's exponential and it's quite terrifying. And you, I'm sure you could do a similar sort of overlay of what happened with individuals that were exposed to those levels of toxins and potential conditions they may have manifest. And then got denied healthcare. Correct. And then died in atrocious ways without getting any press coverage because it was contradictory to the narrative right. and not getting representation out there and their families getting bought off and the ones who wouldn't take the money then get squashed later. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember researching that with you back in 20. 20- oh, my God. So, I and I remember talking to your wife because Senna, I was talking to Senna privately today about it. And she was telling me like pretty intense detail about like her experience trying to go down and help individuals. And it's like just how long the smell lingered that the reminder constantly of death, well, destruction. Well, I mean, Tony, to be fair, you're, if I you're, to play devil's advocate, I mean, after they peed on Pelosi's desk, I'm sure that smelled too for a few days. Or maybe it didn't smell any different than when she was in there usually working. I don't know. <laughs> You know, I don't that's... know. And I'm not looking to find out. That ain't my case. That's fair We're enough. working a case tonight. We're going to bring in these Whitney Webb books. I want to I want to do one more thing yeah. here. The this because I thought this was an interesting last. This is the very last uh sentence of this AP article. Quote The central theme is that this is a quote unquote false flag operation, an American plot designed to convince Europe that it was a Russian attack intended to signal the vulnerability of Europe's energy supplies, and quote, the researchers wrote. Huh. Is there any potential possibility that false flags have happened in American history, Rich? I find Disney fairy tales easier to believe than what you just read, Tony. <laughs> at least they're telling universal stories. At least before Let me say the, this. The Here's older. the dynamic. Putin had a connection. Europe had a problem. He said, I can just turn it up and your problem's solved. But he had any, it's, that leaves him in control, right? And at some point he could cut off Europe's energy. That's a someday maybe potential fear. So what they did is said, fuck it, we'll just take away their energy now and they'll learn to adapt to it. And that takes away all of Putin's power. We'll just blow it up in four places, hard to repair anytime soon. NATO has total control of that area. Their ships were right in the area right before it blew up. Surprise, surprise, coincidence theorists, strike that one up, drink one for that. And uh, yeah, so as a military strategic move, it makes total sense. I've read Clausewitz, I've read uh, Machiavelli, I read Sun Tzu, read... uh, whole bunch oh, yeah. of stuff in that area so from a tactical sense if they want to fess up and be like yeah we did it what are you going to do about it because they're the biggest super guns in the world but if they think it's wrong and they did it they won't tell you and they'll hide behind national security and they'll say russia did it to themselves bro and, and how ask can you to be stupid they'll gaslight you yeah how convenient to use the scapegoat of scapegoat excuse me a far-right extremist group supposedly um parroting these sorts of conspiracy theories online however at the same time it was trump's policy former president donald trump's policies that created the energy independence that now quite frankly is being used to now export over to europe how convenient and i'm not saying he was in on it or anything he may have had good intentions in regards to energy independence but now all of a sudden that energy independence is being shipped to europe and they're now ironically the sole sort of uh, monopolist here in regard the the energy producers in america and and in the west and supporting europe how convenient Yeah, How even if Trump is 100% hip to what's going on, which he's not, 
and the right. Trump, like the president had some power, which they really don't. Like right. the funders that made him president are the ones doing the green global agenda in the first place. They own both sides of candidates. That's what I've been trying to point out. There's been a lot of questions in the GTW Discord, and one of the big things is like what's happening with this war, regardless of the Casas Belly that may have existed with Russia and the pressure that the NATO countries have put on Russia, the Minsk Accord, the Maidan coup. Um, all of these okay. situations, Sevastopol, Look, we can go on and on and on. However, before, before yeah. we get to this issue, and we're going to we're going to cover uh, the the pipeline right now, but I just want to show you real quick because it's about Trump and does he have allegiances or influences? Before we get to this Israeli and Palestinian issue by the Trilateral Commission later, several places in this Whitney Webb uh, duo tome, E. L. Rothschild, Rothschild Inc. Let's go to Rothschild Inc. Because they're all up in uh, Epstein's business over here, but they also bailed out. There's an M. Rothschild here, bunch of pages. Let's go to Rothschild Inc. That's what we're looking for. Profumo affair. You heard about that last week or the week before. Let's see. Rothschild Inc. Okay. It's not in this. Oh, here it is right here. Rothschild Inc. 357. So this is a firm that bailed out Trump in 1991 talking in three five seven and so yeah as soon as he got to be president he made wilbur ross of rothschild inc his first commerce secretary and this is talking about jardine math jardine plumbing yeah did i not oh three five was it seven three five seven three hundred fifty seven thank you uh rothschild inc working with robert maxwell and why don't I have it highlighted on this page? I'm going to have to get that during the break. Oh, here's Rockefeller family. They're involved and they are prominent throughout these two volumes as in Trump's life. So it's not just like the Clinton uh, side of the thing. It's the it's the Trump side of the thing, too. And they both well, ran for president. You know what I'm uh, saying? So, yeah, it's like the out Inc. and the people that work below them and all the other banks, you know, and part family members that are a part of that agenda. It's it's a top down thing, and yeah. Trump's not immune from that. No, he just I mean, wasn't as indebted to it. He paid his debt. He Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, and then he swapped him out, and then he paid another debt by putting somebody else in his Commerce Secretary. Right. So I don't expect a lot more from the game show host than what we got. He was limited in scope, and he was limited in knowledge, and then he had a whole bunch of personal foibles that they were able to have a field day with. Yeah, culturally, all he did was to help accelerate the the cultural destruction in a way. Even if he had good points to make, he did a good job of being able to be uh, for them to build a good straw man over. And so it's you know it's a little bit like Carrie Bush being Skull and Bones members, for example. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, but 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 in regards to like Hillary went to Trump's wedding. So when they run against and Trump was a New York Democrat his entire career, right? Until and he. he right. became he he built his uh real estate empire by you know gallivanting around with someone like a Jeffrey Epstein and wasn't that what uh, uh Hillary or uh, Whitney Webb uh, researched a thousand pages of Jeffrey Epstein yeah how intelligence convenient. connections and working with the underworld since like the nineteen. 19- she has nineteen forties, but it started nineteen thirties in Britain because they worked with Meyer Lansky first at MI six. I'm not saying that Trump necessarily had sort of an involvement. Of course, Trump had sort of a, a predilection, rather a penchant for Eastern European girls, but I won't go down that far. I, there's no that, direct evidence. It talks about where he met his wife because Ghislaine made a Kit Kat club. And if you look up where Trump met his wife, you might see there's a some there's a connection. I can get you the reference, but that's not what we're doing right now. We're I bought those books, pipeline. but I haven't, I haven't gotten them in the mail yet. I've been waiting for them. So well, they're fantastic. And mine came like 
in five bubble wrapped envelopes so protected <laughs> and pristine when i opened them up and that's I bought them like two weeks ago but i still haven't got off them maybe well, there's a big backlog of people trying to get uh, okay. chris now, rich i have a question yeah, regarding yeah. winning yes, web uh continuity continuity of government january 6th and bases have you come across uh have you come across main core base in her book yet does she write about that in the book could look that up in the so. index, maybe. Okay. Well, Main maybe it's a question bit. for when you speak with her, because it's something she mentioned in an interview with uh, Ernest Hancock a couple of weeks ago. But it basically, it's, you know, Al-Qaeda. What did that mean? I was mean? prepared to be tested on these books. I was like, I, I, you know, I could be tested on this, but let's see. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it's in the book, but but uh, apparently it's just something that overlaps with Iran-Contra and the Promise software, basically a domestic terrorist base. Oh, no, no. Main core. Yeah, there is. Yeah. There's yeah, like 10 pages in uh, volume two, and I probably was not paying attention. Let's go see. So, Let's see you know, where they are. I'm thinking potentially Al-Qaeda is to 9-11 what main core base is to January 6th if um, if that had gone off. Hey, just for the record, I did, I did read those pages. I just didn't remember main core here off the top of my head. Interesting analogy. Interesting for well, yeah, so Whitney. Webb oh yeah, because it's and, all in the Promise software, right? Section here. Whitney and Ryan Christian earlier this year, um, along with the the ramp up of, of the war in Ukraine, were writing about you know the emergence of a global kind of white supremacist terrorist boogeyman, and oh yeah, it seems yeah. to me that this this is the or that that's the the predecessor or what they they might be driving towards, you know. With the partisan witch hunt by the Senate committee and the various sort of, yeah, the far right extreme with uh, Merrick Garland coming out head of DHS, I believe, stating that uh, it's, you know, the extreme right wing groups, right wing, white Christian American, something like that. Um, we, we covered that on the show a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's a good point. That's that's the boogeyman they're building up. That's the straw man they're building up to tear down. That's exactly right. See, when I read a new word like main core in there, I should look it up. I'm familiar with a lot of things. That's one of the things I didn't look up and it slipped by me. And I just think of that as like the promise in slaw section. So look, I can improve too. Good call out, LD. So thank now, you, LD. Did you want to keep me from being embarrassed next week when she brings it up? Jeez. <laughs> did you want to follow up on the uh, on the Nord Stream? You know, pick your poison, Associated Press or CNN. Let's see him pull it, and then we'll hear like uh, the various <laughs> angles of it. I see you did there, Silverstein style. All right, what was the insurance on the pipelines? What I'm asking right now. <laughs> what was stock trading like right before the thing? You know, I'm just. Randy mentioned before this. Yeah. I'm not saying it wasn't an accident or God didn't do it because I haven't seen the evidence yet. I'm just saying from the pattern of history, the players involved, they fucking blew it up, dude. Uh, but that's not my conclusion. More, that's my suspicion. I'm incredulous. So I'm going to look theory. It up. I'm going to theory learn. that has yeah. more consistent evidence than the, what the U.S. and NATO allies are stating in that AP article, which they didn't actually allude to any evidence. They appeal to their own authority. They build straw men. They do have homonyms against the Russians, so forth. But when I say that, I also know there's several nation states that have remote control underwater demolition drones. And then in 2015, they found one such remote controlled demolition drone attached to the pipeline and the Swedes had to take it off. So that's why I say, dude, given that 
Biden said it and Newland said it and the shit blew up and got and Biden and Newland have access to the people that blow shit up like that. There's not a big, huge leap of that's possibly what happened or even probably what happened. But I will acquiesce to the evidence because to condemn condemnation prior to examination is the epitome of ignorance. And I would never want to do that. So I definitely want to look at the evidence and let's look at the evidence together. That's why we have a show. It's a lot of fun. Chat it up. Go All ahead, right, so Andy. How about the Associated Press? We'll go with that. Yeah, that's sure. Fine, they're yeah. very trustworthy. We saw their, a piece of their work earlier tonight that people can remember. It wasn't too long ago in the show. I think that has yeah, been this, this was written by David Kepler. So go ahead, Aldi. Yeah. All right. There have been um, three incidents of the leakage from gas pipes, uh, one from the Nord Stream 2 and two from the Nord Stream 1. Um, and it's a very rare thing that, that that would happen such uh, such a leakage. And the fact that we have three of them in 24 hours, that's extremely unusual. So, uh, I mean, it, it's definitely something that begs the question, is this actually sabotage or uh, some kind of hybrid warfare that we are witnessing here? Because it's very, very unusual. And also, I, I will point out that it, it happens on the same day that another pipeline, the, uh, the Baltic pipe, uh, is opening and, and running through the same area. And it's providing gas from Norway to Poland. So that's actually one of the tools that um, we, Europe is planning on using to sort of reduce the independence on Russian gas. If this is sabotage and it is an example of what we call hybrid warfare, then the difficulty is always the attribution, right? The, the, that the, the, It's very hard to pinpoint exactly who did it and why. Um, and we always get a myriad of different explanations uh, uh, circulating on, on social media and things like that. So, but, but I think if we look at who would actually benefit from disturbances, more chaos on the gas market uh, in Europe, I, I think there's basically only one actor right now that actually benefits from more uncertainty, and that is Russia. Russia that is using gas exactly as a pressure point to sort of um, put pressure on Europe um, to essentially give up the support for Ukraine in, in the Ukraine war. <clears throat> more uncertainty in regards to Russia. Hmm, interesting. That's That's a curious situation. So Russia supposedly sabotage their own pipeline that they set up in order to be able to uh, share their oil with Europe, in this case not share, but sell their oil to Europe. So now they can't sell their oil to Europe at all, nor nor can they even use it as a form of leverage anymore, technically, especially with this Baltic pipeline I was unaware of, which is very curious. And what's that going from, what they say, Nor- Norway or something to uh, Poland? And that's going to be one of the main pipelines now. Very curious. Very strange. Europipe 2 to Poland. Another name for it. Let's look this up actually real quick. The Baltic Pipeline is a natural gas pipeline between Europipe 2, okay, which traverses the North Sea between Norway and Germany and Poland. is a strategic infrastructure project to create a new gas supply cord. Ah, oh. Who owns I, it? Who's the financier? I'm mind? curious. Let's see this number one. This is Baltic pipe. And I'm also interested. Like, oh, dot so the whole theory. Oh. All right. Yeah. So like to take away the political polarization of this topic, let's mm-hmm. look at it like this. 
Uh, Tony has a bread company, but all his customers are on the other side of the river and there's a bridge and Tony can only take so much bread across the bridge per day. And the people over there are still starving. He's sending more bread across the bridge. And then he comes up with this brilliant idea. He can take over the market by blowing up the bridge. That's what they're asking you to believe. If you remove Putin as bad man from the con- like the conversation, that skews everyone's thinking. And you just look at it as, that doesn't seem plausible. Why would he do that? He was set to have them on a monopoly and even up the 9 trillion cubic feet of liquid propane liquefied, or whatever, yeah, yeah, liquefied whatever they're sending gas, that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. LNG? LNG. Um, you know, it's... It's disturbing on many levels because on one, what people, there's so many layers upon which we can analyze the Ukraine-Russia conflict, but I always keep pointing back to the macro meta layer, as I like to call it, the World Economic Forum, which I know we're going to get into much later, but this seems to further the agenda, ultimately, of having supply chain shortages because everyone needs gas. There's going to be issues of heating in the winter as we approach winter now, especially in Europe. Uh, and there's they keep pushing this new climate crisis. In fact, we all you know what? Why don't I bring that up? Uh, yeah, give me two um, seconds. After because, we cover this, LD, I want to go to the redacted clip with that World Economic Forum video because they're going to freeze um, people. Shout out to James Jordan. He made me aware of this, and I played it or we I brought it up on the town hall this past week. But they're getting ready to pivot, literally from the horse's mouth from the World Economic Forum. This was like September thirtieth or sometime in the last week of September, they mentioned that they want the world to engage in climate lockdowns. So let me find that article and share that. Um, this is going to give me a second here because it is quite disturbing here. I found it already. Law. Okay, that was good. World Economic Forum cites compliance with COVID mandates to promote climate change lockdowns. This was published on September 25th, 2022. Subtitle here is, uh, in a, we're not subtitled, but just the opening statement here. In a report published on September 14th, in connection with its ongoing 2022 Sustainable Development Impact Meetings, the World Economic Forum, led by German engineer and economist Paul Schwab, cites compliance with COVID mandates to promote climate change lockdowns. And it's not very long here. According to the World Economic Forum, widespread compliance to the strict COVID-19 regulations, quote, demonstrated the core of individual social responsibility. Huh. That's a kind of oxymoronic statement, end quote, and paved the path. Oh, I could translate that because that sounded like big words. And I could like. Well, individual the- social response. You have this individual versus the group oxymoronic sort of statement yeah. implied. Yeah. That's yeah. What- I mean, I mean, it, they're using like 25 cent words. And I, I just wanted to like use. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> eighth grade language. They're basically saying, take it. Oh. <laughs> take it. You'll take have, it. With the article doesn't it. even have to be that long. You'll just take it. Do we have that on the soundboard? We don't have to convince you. I'm going to offer Not a reward yet. to find that clip. Oh, well, we we did. Wait. I posted it to you like four times. Oh, I didn't see it. I haven't seen oh, it. Yeah, I, I was like, no, oh, yeah. Like, oh, we have. Can we play it right after Nord Stream 2 and before Redacted? Because that'd be funny. We absolutely have. That's like 14 minutes. And compliments of Senna, by the way. She's the one who found it. <laughs> well, if I had to bet, I would have had her in the top three of people who were going to find that thing that I can't find. Senna James or Matt. I search like pretty that. well, but there are certain things I just can't find. And other people are more internet savvy, it appears. But Proof continuing forward while LD brings it up, the WEF, or excuse me, I finished this. So, and paved, okay, let me review this. According to the World Economic Forum, widespread compliance to the strict COVID-19 regulations, quote, 
demonstrated the core of individual social responsibility, end quote, and paved the uh, path for future, quote unquote, climate related restrictions. The WF, led by German engineer, economist, and author Klaus Schwab, he's an engineer and economist, I didn't know that, of COVID 19, the Great Reset, established a connection and report published on September 14th, a connection with its ongoing sustainable development impact meetings, which I think that's what that uh, lady was speaking at, which, where I had the clip up. I took it down. I'll go. Yes, yes, yes. I know what you're talking about. The, the, UN, the, under sec- beginning. You're right. the undersecretary for the UN. I'm pretty sure that's part of those meetings. If I'm, Anyways, oh, and then there's this. My Carbon, an approach for inclusive, sustainable cities, September 14th. And that so looks just see- like a clip from the intro of this podcast right there. That's a pretty good job, LD, with the new updated yeah, intro for tonight. <laughs> it looks like the future cities that Klaus wants us to eat bugs in. Technocracy 101. It's like a Logan's Run where they have the little miniature set in the beginning. Yeah, they have. Yeah, it's not a good sh- ending. It's not a good ending. <laughs> not good. Even when they escape, it's not a good ending. No, uh, carousel. Not not what you want to be a part of. Uh, while transport and buildings are the major, so here's some major points from this article. Clown world. The wild transport and buildings are the major drivers for emissions in cities. The sheriff, so it's just a bunch of talking. Cities across the world account for 75% of our total carbon emission, blah, blah, blah. We need to go net zero. And that's the standard old bullshit arguments they've been making for a while. Oh, here, what's this? Our world is transforming. Big community trends for sustainable cities. One, COVID-19 was the, oh my God. Hold on. Okay. Our world is transforming big community trends in sustainable cities. Here's number one. COVID-19 was the test of social responsibility. I guess that's that individual social responsibility. Oxymoronic phrase we just highlighted. A huge well, those number. Are, those are all the people in Trevor Noah's audience wearing their masks. Look at this, what he says here, or what this article says here. A huge number of unimaginable restrictions for public health were adopted by billions of citizens across the world. All at once, but it wasn't planned, anybody. It wasn't planned <laughs> or practiced over years. It just happened. It just happened, and they Spars, all just, event one, and that happened. Did the same thing. <laughs> there were numerous examples globally of maintaining social distancing, wearing masks, mass vaccinations, and acceptance of contact tracing applications for public health. That's thanks to Bill Fagey and his, uh, and the, was it the ESI, ESL? It's the epidemiological, basically secret service back in the 1960s that really innovated through a smallpox and eradication of the smallpox, the contract tracing ideas. That goes back to about the same time the Club of Rome was getting its foundation with uh, Predicament Piché. of Mankind in ni- 1970. Yeah. And then they had the book, the publication, yeah. Now, I'm just, I'm asking for a friend, Tony, but the people who think that a billion plus billions of people just did this thing without it being rehearsed or planned or done from above, right? They think it's organic grassroots, right? Okay. I'm not saying it's magic. I'm saying that's what, that's what they believe that like the COVID happened and then CDC and these guys tried to find a cure and they made a pan, you know, they made the vaccine antidote no, for sure. it. Yeah. Right. And then it, it was wasn't all practiced organic. It was, one or crimson contagion sure, or the SPARS pandemic. Right. They right. don't see any of that. They just see problem reaction solution, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But my question is this, when you show up to a football game, do you think that the guys on the field all just got out of the stands, put on uniforms and just do that thing? They just spontaneously do it. If you go to to New York City Radio Hall and you see the Rockettes, do you think those are just random chicks from the audience who decided to get up on the stage and kick it that night? Or do you think there's maybe (laughs) a producer in practice and rehearsals 
that go on before the big stage presence. I'm just asking for a friend because I'm not sure. I've never seen cats on Broadway. I, I call mean, you them. have, and you know how that stuff works. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm a kid from I Western Pennsylvania. Them. I never saw that fancy stuff before. Western Maybe PA, that's how it boy, happens. Right? Western PA represent <laughs> small town Western. Hey, I'm with, I'm there with you. I'm South Central PA, small town. So I call it the myth of spontaneous self organization. A lot of people like to th- throw out this word spontaneous self organization, and that's not the way human behavior operates. That's not the way uh, people come together and specialized. Uh, organization in order to produce or be able to manifest well, they do something. in flash mobs but you see the results of that hmm. yeah right it's not very organized unplanned mass action leads yeah. to chaos the choreography doesn't now look in very... this Nord Stream 2 pipeline we're still going to watch those clips I'm just keeping you interested in it are we going to see NATO acting in chaos and they don't know what's going on we better investigate or are they just like dude Russia did it <laughs> don't even think about it you mean like Al Paul Bremer I mean they had that pretty quick they did Tim Osman. I mean, uh, excuse me. I saw him in law. Sorry, Timmy. Sorry, Carla, who, who had a he- headquarters in in London in 1996. But he attacked us on 9/11, and we went to Afghanistan to get him because he was staying with the Pakistanis. Had I got a question for you? Al yeah. Qaeda means the database. Yeah. So, like that means you're collating information, you're collecting collating information. Why would you do that beforehand? Why would you have? Okay. I if see. it's spontaneous, why do you spontaneous need data beforehand of people yeah. who worked on CIA MI6 contract killing teams and whatnot? Operations like proxy wars in the Middle East. I don't know. Yeah. We might, style. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. All right. Moving question. forward, we got the Nord Stream clips now. I want to see uh, Biden and I want to see Vicky Newland. Vicky. In the past, before the pipeline blew up, what did they have to say? And is it relevant today? Yeah, we'll which find um, out when LD plus is play. <laughs> I don't know. Do we actually? I don't yeah, know. I mean, yeah, I mean I, we've talked about play. a bunch of uh, clips that we want to play. So okay, um, so let's try to find Victoria. Let me see if I can Victoria Newland yeah. plus uh, Nord Stream pipeline. Okay. If we can't find it, yeah, it was on Monday yeah. Infowars. They played it here. Here, I found it. NP. Okay. This is a. Oh, it's a short. Yeah. I don't want the pipeline. Uh, yeah, I don't operation. want NPR abbreviating all the inconvenient truths out of it. I wanted someone being like, look at what they said. I'm gonna post two clips LD and we might have to play them both, but they're both small. One's like a short. It might just capture the essence of it. Um, hopefully these are correct. So here's the second one's the short, the first one's the hill, ironically. Uh-huh. I don't want that pipeline operational GOP senator presses witness Victoria Newland. But then there's also this NPC show, it's one of the part of the mind control program sponsored by the TikTok Chinese. Yeah, I don't party. need any TikTok in my head. Actually, this is a good clip, though. The short's very good, too. We can play them both. Let's see. If, I don't know. Yeah, I just want to see Biden say what he says. And then Newland. This one's Victoria what She says. But and then let we me find Biden bikes. as well. So play, play, play them both right now. LDY, I find the... I put them in the media consideration. Let All me right. find the, the uh, Biden clip real quick. Um, with regard to Nord Stream 2, uh, we continue to have uh, very strong and clear conversations uh, with our German allies, and I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Chairman, uh, Undersecretary Newland, welcome. I certainly appreciate you spending some time with us last night in a secured briefing. Uh, and I think it's important that you're here today. Uh, I, I want to associate myself with remarks of the chairman and the, and the ranking member. I think 
If there's one thing that Vladimir Putin ought to understand is how unified we are. I mean, we, there are many things that divide us politically in this country, but when it comes to pushing back on Russian aggression, um, supporting countries like Ukraine that are trying to develop their freedom, free themselves from the legacy of corruption from their former involvement with the Soviet Union, uh, we are very strongly united. Um, often, you know, within this discussion, you were talking about an uh, unprecedented level of uh, sanctions. I think it would be important for uh, the public, for the Senate, for Congress, uh, but for Vladimir Putin to, to really understand in somewhat granular detail what we're talking about, uh, what we'd impose on them and how, how harmful it would be to Russia. You know, unfortunately, to Russian people. Uh, but Vladimir Putin ought to be concerned about the Russian population, uh, more concerned than we are. Uh, we can't allow this. So can you really describe the types of sanctions that you are contemplating and pushing with our European allies? Senator, thanks for, thanks for that statement of, of unity and for, for your strong statement here today. Um, as we discussed last night in some detail, uh, what we are talking about would amount to essentially isolating Russia completely from the global financial system with all of the fallout that that would entail for Russian business, for the Russian people, for their ability to, to work and travel and trade. Uh, and we are looking at the full suite of options. Um, I think in the, in the context of the diplomacy that we are doing and the work that we're doing internally, I was gratified to have a chance to go through some of those specific measures in the classified session yesterday. Um, but going beyond that in this open session, I think, um, doesn't um, help us get from here to there. But we, every, everything is on the table, I would say, if, if that is helpful. One thing that I believe certainly the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is pretty unified on, it may not be unanimous, was our support for sanctions against a Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And that I think we were all, many of us, were very disappointed that uh, those sanctions were not fully implemented and the construction continued. Um, I can't think of a, a more powerful way to punish uh, Russian aggression than by rolling back what progress has been made and if at all possible, uh, prevent the Nord Stream 2 from ever being completed. Uh, is that something that is being discussed with allies? Is that something that's being contemplated? Absolutely. And as, if, as you recall from the July U.S.-German statement, that was very much uh, in that statement that if that any moves Russian aggression against Ukraine uh, would have a direct impact on the pipeline, and that is our expectation and the conversation that we're having. So again, direct impact is one thing, but I, I'm I'm literally talking about rolling back. He's like, I the, wish he would have bonded it sooner. And, 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 yeah, that's basically what he's saying. He's like, he should have bonded I mean, already back then. Taking action that will prevent it from ever becoming operational. Ever. ever. I think if President Putin moves on Ukraine, our expectation is that the pipeline will be suspended. Oh, well, curious. I certainly like hope a time that out. the Senate Foreign Relations Committee would take up <laughs> Bad pipeline. Uh, legislation it, it, to strikes. go beyond yeah. just suspending yeah. it, but from ending it permanently. But anyway, thank you, uh, Undersecretary Newland.
Undersecretary Newland, just like the undersecretary. Oh, Russia invades. Uh, the chair that means tanks Newland. or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again. Then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. I don't believe him. Hmm. I don't think he's, I don't think he'd do it. Just because he said he was going to do it and she said they were going to do it. And they're behind schedule and doing it. I don't know. I think there's more to be learned there, Tony. So for these undersecretaries, so this was uh, Melissa Fleming, the World Economic Forum Sustainable Development Impact Meetings we were just talking about. And then we had the undersecretary, oh. uh, Victoria Newland, the United oh. States, I mean, uh, State Department. And that's curious. I'm not the a undersecretary unders- secretariat. They're racing to see who can be the oh, biggest player in political statecraft out there. There you go. One's like, I'll shut down everything. And the other one's like, we're already doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's just absurd. It's just the level of the absurdity. Theater of the absurd. Is that what we were just tuned into? They Because they tell you it's Russia. Now, I got to think, former Vice President Biden, has he ever told us the thing that was going on was Russia? I mean, if a kid tells you the same lie six or seven times, it, you as an adult, if you're not onto that by then, shame on you. This dude is telling us since 2016, Russia, 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 Russia. No, you know who spoke at University, University of State Moscow? Department. You know who spoke at University of Moscow? Donald Trump. Wait, sorry. You know who spoke at University of Moscow? Joe Biden and Os- no, not Osama, Obama. They both spoke there. That's right. Trump didn't speak there. That was me trying to be funny because these are dry topics and knowing that a president and vice president at really close ties with Russia such that they're over there speaking at universities. And then the guy you impeached twice for it has never even been over there to do any of that type of stuff. It's almost like, like when the double Trump cross system. Into Burisma, it's like the double cross system. That's yes, what it reminds it me of because is. they're, they're on one level playing sort of propping up Russia a little bit. On another level, then you know, Poroshenko and the whole Ukrainian prosecutor situation at the council on foreign relations at Biden. So it's like, they're playing both sides. Double cross. I mean, I don't think the American public gets that. Burisma, Hunter Biden going on, and it's on the laptop. Trump says, hey, we should look into that, has a call. He got impeached for that call. Almost, right, yeah. They had impeachment trials against him, yeah. I mean, the scales of justice are only working on one side right now, and those aren't scales of justice anymore. Well, at the same time, they're propping up NATO countries, but more and more pressure on Russia in order for Russia to, to do what they ultimately did, which is invade the Ukraine. Do you remember the Chaz trials, Tony, where those people who created uh, their own Chomp. country and committed sedition against the United States government and set shit on fire and killed people out there? Remember when they had that big trial for seven weeks on TV? That was the summer of love. Wait, that was the fiery but peaceful protest and they were never prosecuted on. Oh, wow. Mm. It's almost like when they do it, it's okay. And if anyone even thinks of resisting on the other side, they get treated twice or 10 times as hard. Okay. And is, that a, cir- is that a technique through history? Is that something that we should watch out for? Let's circle back. What, were, yeah. what did John Taylor got us? Then Saki it, dude. Let's go. Saki, Saki, Saki style. Circle um, back. Take, take a shot a at effect. anyone who's playing a, uh, playing a drinking game right now. LD, get a what, sound what effect a- of uh, Saki saying circle back. And we'll make it like a big echo, like and lower it and go circle back. I have a delay effect on it. Yeah, yeah, maybe a bunch of reverb. Um, for show 101, you could get that next week. What's, so what's the most effective way to control individuals? Something about breaking an individual's will. 
Yeah, something yeah, about subverting see, their ability to use their brain. See that with January 6th. You see, see that, that with, with Alex system. Jones and the First Amendment under attack. See that with you people who believe system. the stuff that you see on TV. Yeah, yeah, I see a lot of it out there. About breaking the individual's will. How curious that that same, and that, you know, that I was... Uh, I'm sure that's a good thing, Tony. It's for our, it's for the best of the collective. Sixth century BC. Sun right, Zoo. the Borg, big on breaking the will of individuals. That's right, right. yeah. Good that's thing. Fantastic Apparently. movie, by the way. First contact. You all know Harari gets like a big Woody over the Borg. hundred percent, dude. <laughs> he does. He wrote about it. That's kind of fucked up to think about. I his book, Homo Deus. Seriously. He, he took the Homo both metaphorically and later. I can't. Well, I think you're going too far with that. Yeah, I went too far with that. Keep your jokes to the sapien level, please. That's another of Harari's books. All right. So let's go forward. You'll hear about more of those later. Now, did we want to squeeze in the, the take it? clip yeah uh, well Nord Stream um, I think I think oh. Putin blew it up case closed let's move on to take it <laughs> take it yeah we let's have hunted it. for this clip for years okay it maybe like it's not as minutes. funny as I remember it we're gonna get to see this is from a show called the soup formerly talk soup it was presently at that time hosted by Joel McHale talented and funny comedian and it featured a woman named new york who was uh famous from being on the flavor of love with flavor fave Flav. she got her own show and she would go out and do the micro kind of dirty jobs type thing and there was one particular clip that made us all laugh but then it disappeared from the interwebs we couldn't find it and uh thanks to some grand theft world members super members actually uh it's now going to be played i haven't seen it for like 15 years or whenever it aired so uh let's see if it's still as funny because we're going to put a sound on the soundboard for when they want you to get oh uh, you know some sort of synthetic gene adapting experimental injection and they tell you to take it you'll get to see why that's funny so let's let's check out that clip well yeah i haven't previewed this so i'm not sure i think i'm in the general vicinity but we'll just ease oh, it. Yeah. Hot. the, the, the we'll time stamp hot. is around like 14 minutes uh, 13 yeah we'll ease like into it it's okay <laughs> we'll ease into it that's right say something comforting while we ease into it yes i'm you know i'm something of a pig farmer myself these days so you're in you know what you got to do after take it that's not a metaphor either pull it but that's a different sound clip. I mean, Silverstein style? That's what I was saying. Yeah. All right. right so let's then. go to uh, this clip from the soup from a long time ago. Does it, is there a date on the clip? Can we at least do that is it for the audience? It's um, 2016, November 25. All right. Well, I saw it probably a long time. Yeah, I'm, it was, I'm, it was like 2011, like, yeah. 2012. Yeah, so someone else aired. reposted it. All right, yeah, cool. Man. We're getting right. to it. Let's it's the full go. episode that was reposted in 2016. That's what it is. All right, cool. Let's see. Next job, we've got a little brown girl up here who is ready to be bred. We call this a spirette. Where does this, this go? This is going to go inside the... the <laughs> she's, in, she's in heat. Can't y'all wait until I leave to do that? Why do I have to get this pig pregnant? And this thing here is pretty much the exact replica of a boar's penis. It's designed just like the boar. She's that deep? Yeah, and the boar's that long. Are you serious, though? No, for real. Serious. Can't find that in New York, can you? No. No. I can't find that anywhere. I've been trying to find loving like that for two seasons now. Which one is horny? 
She knows I got sperm she in my hand. She knows she smells it on you, I think. She wants it, huh? Now get just behind her there and see if you can stick that thing up there. Just kind of push upwards when you do it. Is that really her hold, thing? Hold, hold it down here. Go ahead. Put it in there. Put it in there. Go up. Get, get, get in there closer. Get in there closer. Go in a little farther. Keep going. Keep going. There you go. Okay, now go put that into the tip there and squirt it in. Don't squirt real hard, though. You're going to be successful. You might be a dad. Talk nicely to her. Um, take it. That's like a woman. <laughs> Here you go. Oh, she's almost done. She's standing still for you. Look at that. She likes it. Uh, Morning sight. That's it. All right, I think that's it. Okay, I'm now take it out slowly. Her baby daddy. You gotta take it out slowly now. All right. Oh, you did it. Oh my yeah. God. Congratulations. Okay, you're gonna be a little daddy. I can't wait to tell my mom. She's really gonna be proud. Mine, mining the depths. There you go. LD already got it. <laughs> what should we do with the vaccine? Because we want to make sure we don't kick out, get kicked off the YouTube pirate channel. Thank you, uh, Charles Douglas Jackson, for uh, for loaning us your channel tonight on the YouTube for the people who uh, can't get off the app. Thank you for the the, buying the Sapruda film and also for hosting the pirate stream. So if, if we said, uh, you know, take the experimental gene therapy. What's the, what's the sound bite, LD? Yeah, just take it. Music and all. That's going to be the jazz in the background, the porn of the jazz. jazz. Say something comfortable <laughs> to the sow. Take it. Oh, man. I wonder where she heard that one. Before. It could be a song. It could be a song. All right. <clears throat> now we're getting back serious. In case you thought that was also serious, this is going to get even more serious. Uh, the World Economic Forum's got a plan for your winter. It could be dark, could be cold, could be freezing, could be starving. Could have your accounts cut off, frozen, Klaus says. Now, that's the part. Frozen, freezing. They didn't exactly steal it from you, but you can't access it anymore, and you're fucked at the drive-thru. This is a big concern for people. Now, what you're going to see in this video, excellent analysis from uh, uh, from Redacted. Clayton where they Yeah, Clayton Morris, yeah. where they get the clip. And then they had somebody kind of like analyze some of the things in the clip, which I thought were interesting because at first I was like, what's going to become of this? And now, well, those things are actually in there. That's good insight. Right. And then um, the, the idea of Klaus having the power, right. Cause they've already got plans for your future and they're show they're slowly showing people, Hey, here's another part of our plan. Now the argument is now, I'm having trouble. I know Klaus is a really smart guy. Cause he's like a eugenics engineer type dude, but I don't know. Like I, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I was trying to grasp it. Now here's follow me for a second here. In one of Klaus's books, either fourth industrial revolution or shaping the fourth industrial revolution or COVID-19, a great reset. Great one of those three books, he says that globalism had failed. Globalism was a failed project. And then COVID comes along and all of a sudden globalism's back fucking on dude. Right now. There's ups and downs. Now, why did he say like globalism wasn't being embraced and these sort of things? We can look at that. But the thing from this video you're going to see right now is he's like, our world is so interconnected. And he said, this, you know, everything could go down at once and then you don't have access to your money, but we have access to your money. And what is wrong with that? You know, eats some bugs. And like so a cyber attack. My point is they're making it all connected. Yeah. which he says is a dangerous thing like cyber polygon they could take that shit down everyone's everything goes away Ooh, bye-bye maybe now this is just me i only have like a college education but maybe 
don't connect everything together and then it can't crash all at once so connecting it all to uh, connecting it all together violates the law of entropy you wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket for the entire oh no tony they got one more they got one more for you it's called the circular economy bro and what they gotta do is they gotta take the air input and connect it to the air exhaust and just fucking connect that shit together and make a circular system dude he started all out it's all right here it's all right here it's a great reset great narrative book yeah i gotta learn to speak uh swiss german yeah, because those are the, the handlers, you know? Yeah. Clan of Schwobia. Schwobia. Shout out to Johnny Vedmore. Actually. Yeah, I noticed um, he was mentioned a bunch in this Whitney Webb book. He's got like four mentions in there. Nice. But that was coincidental. Thought it was just coincidental. <laughs> Johnny helped jog right. my memory about the uh, main core base. Oh, right. very good. See, there's a lot of new names we got to learn oh, yeah. reading all these books. So, so I'm going to leave this as an open question because I saw this in the chat real quick, but what do so what do Silverstein, Victoria Newland, Anthony Blinken, Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Merrick Garland, and ninety five percent of Biden's cabinet have in common? That was asked by Patty Cakes one hundred. I don't know Patty Cakes. What do they have in common? Like, They're all in one nation under blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> They're all members of the World Economic <laughs> Forum. Uh, all the above. UN CFR World Economic Forum. Probably sit on the boards of certain uh, Tony. Those uh, are just multinational like corporations. The CFR is not like some world communist socialist Fabian group that implanted itself in America to control our foreign policy. It's just a group of people. You can buy membership there, Tony. Anyone can join it. Just like anyone can be knighted into the sovereign anyone military can be order knighted. of Malta. Anyone can be a, a knight of Malta. Although in Whitney Webb's book, One Nation Under Blackmail. All the Knights of Malta are involved in pedophilia blackmail rings. So there's Senate many mentions pointed. in both yeah. volumes of high-ranking people that happen to also diddle the doddlers. That's yeah, I mean, there's no oversight. Not saying it's all a- of them. Some <clears throat> of them diddle toddlers, not all toddler diddlers are Knights of Malta. That's how it works. Yeah, 13,000 members, 95,000 permanent volunteers and qualified 52,000 professionals. And they, they, they operate like an NGO, but they don't, they're even more clandestine in the sense they don't have to hand over any financials. They're like an extra territory out of Rome. You know, all this was news to me. I was like, if there's any continuity, is it just uh, circumstantial or is it just, this is. Is it quite- just like uh, get out of jail free? Or is it, you know, right. get to hang yourself in jail like Epstein? How's it work? Because Epstein wasn't in that group. Let's see. SMOM's power, Sovereign Military Order of Malta power lies in their charitable work, which is a Red Cross type organization that moves a lot of money and people around under the premise of charitable work. They do not have to issue reports on any of their financial uh, and on-site activities. I'm not saying it's, this is, of course, I'm reading uh, Senna's words here. Good research, by the way, Senna. I'm not saying it's shady, but they move around a lot of cash and humans with zero accountability to anyone from their well, website. I trust them. I trust them. I think they have a good track record of helping the kids, Tony. Yeah. From their they website, build, it states- They're the like following. Shriners. They build hospitals. Yeah, like Shriners. Yeah. What are you right. talking about behind the scenes? With the, with of, the little of, hats, you know, with the funny look, little- Bill Gates. Here's another example. Bill Gates is a philanthropist, Tony. He's just out there helping children. There's no like agenda behind that. Come on. What you kind know, of the one simple- that was on Lolita Express multiple times, Bill Gates? I'm saying you don't even have to think about it. Oh. Uh, thank God. Because it's yeah. scary to think, you know. You don't have to think about it, dude. Thank you, Ethan. We keep him. He's not on like full payroll. We just keep him like on the side as a freelancer. He's a little slow. The money. So he is. And we embrace, you know, 
all people on the spectrum and try to help. <laughs> all people on the spectrum. Whatever we can. Slow reaction time. <laughs> no okay, insult to anyone on the spectrum for being con- compared to Ethan Klein either. I yeah, if anything, that's yeah, right. Mea culpa. Comparing All right, so Ethan I want to go to this redacted clip. Let's get Clayton Morris and his wife do a fine job on this re- on this story. Uh, very much in depth, bring you a lot of different layers to the reporting. I can learn a lot and do learn a lot from watching their channel. Let's go ahead and uh, check out their their expose and the World Economic Forum and their plan, their great narrative for your winter and freezing the accounts. Maybe you too. It's falls in nature. Well, we warned you it was coming. We've been warning you, I think, for a couple of months that it's been coming. The attack on your bank account. Have we not on this show? Oh, yes. And here is the World Economic Forum. Here they are. They're launching a new phase in the consolidation of power. It is literally like a teaser trailer for what they're about to do to us. It's really, really troubling, which is to take away your ability to pay for things using government currency. Uh, they've already been laying the groundwork for, for this during the COVID, right? During COVID. Remember when they told us that you should stay away from cash? They told us this. They told us because COVID could live on the surface of cash. Watch this. Well, health experts say the coronavirus can live on surfaces like cash for up to 10 days. That has many people worried about shopping and other everyday tasks. Yeah, everyone's worried about Not this. Not only the bills or, or coins as well. Oh, like, everything. Don't touch any cash. Cooked. It could have viruses all over it. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. I mean, it's... And what's so sad is there's people at home like going, oh, honey, we, yeah, we can't do it. Yeah, we can't touch the cash anymore. We can't. And they're like listening to these people. This is how the propaganda rolls out to people. This is what makes me really upset. I think one of the things that really makes me upset about it is how they prey on people who are just trying to like live their lives and they take advantage of, of those people. Right. They so they put out news reports. They pull up. They put all this spin. How you need to do this to protect your your community. This is how you're going to protect your community by not touching cash mm-hmm. and coins, and that's how you'll stay safe. Right. And then people do it. How many people here watching us right now actually believe that crap when it was rolled out? I mean, for like a brief second, I was like, wait a minute. Well, I can't use cash because it has COVID on it. Really. You never carry your wallet anyway. No, I never. Well, no, I never. I, yeah, I don't because I don't want stuff in my pockets. Um, <laughs> and because you know your wife I will. I know my wife will. Yeah. <laughs> my wife has eight bags, you know, so I'm like, when we go out to eat, I'm like, just it's coming out of our account anyway. Like, just use my <laughs> now, pain. Way, way, way back when, when cargo pants were, were in, I would get invited a lot to go out with my friends because they would want to go dancing and I didn't dance. So I, because I had cargo <laughs> pockets, I was everybody's walking purse because they didn't want to bring one to the dance floor. So I know all about that, Natalie. <laughs> yes. Now, when I had cargo pants and cargo shorts, those, that, that was extra utility pockets. Yes, I absolutely did that. I saw someone in the chat saying, yes, I, I believe that. I, uh, I absolutely, that was the case with the, the cash. I was told not to do that, so I didn't do it. Uh, now Starbucks you've heard this story maybe Starbucks going cashless so this popped up a few weeks ago and it's amazing you know here's a sign that Starbucks a number of different Starbucks we're going cashless 
Starting October 1st, we'll only be accepting card, contactless, and Starbucks and rewards payments. Dear customers, this location is testing a cashless concept. Here's another one. Currently not accepting cash as a form of payment. We're no more cash, right? If you have any questions, call our barista or call our 800 number. Here's another one. We're going cashless at this Starbucks from October 1st. And a lot of these were popping up all over the place. And then, so Starbucks had to respond. Like, well, no, no, it's not... A bunch of fact check articles come out because you know they want to. They always want to make sure that they're taking care of us, right? So these fact check articles are garbage because they're like, well, it, it's not true. Yeah, in a way, it is. A lot of Starbucks locations are going cashless, but these aren't the corporate Starbucks locations. These are the independent operators of Starbucks. Who the hell cares? I don't know. Right? I mean, okay, it's not the ones that are owned by like corporate headquarters. It's it doesn't matter. Right? It's still a policy at your store, and it's a Starbucks store. And this is happening at store after store after store. And a few months ago, the International Monetary Fund uh, and 10 member countries decided to take part in what would seem like, like, like a ridiculous, but it actually happened, a cyber attack on the global financial system. Here they did, the EMF and the IMF and 10 countries simulated a cyber attack on the global financial system. It's sort of like a war games. Uh, among the war games, if you read the... Uh, you read the uh, the text of this. The simulated war game, as Israel's finance ministry calls it, and planned over the past year, evolved over 10 days, with sensitive data emerging on the dark web. The simulation also used fake news reports that in the scenario caused chaos in global markets and a run on banks. The simulation, likely caused by what officials called sophisticated players, featured several types of attacks that impacted global foreign exchange and bond markets, liquidity, integrity of data, and transactions between importers and exporters. These events are creating havoc in the financial markets, said a narrator of a film shown to the participants as part of the simulation. Okay. These events are creating havoc in the financial markets. Well, don't we... Don't we have to, though, like if we're going to move to a cashless society and we want to depend on Bitcoin and stuff and kind of like change the structure so they're not printing money and all that stuff, don't we have to move in this direction? Like, I understand the danger because that means that the government's probably going to have some kind of cryptocurrency or digital currency that they can control. But doesn't that also open it up for us to actually have more control? Like if, if we yeah. have money sitting in the bank, does the bank consider that cash or is that digital? until we pull it out as cash. No, it's digital. And here's, well, here's the problem, right? So I, I've come around on this. I mean, I've definitely evolved on my, my point of view on this. And my point of view is like, so it was in my head a number of years ago, cash is trash, right? Cash is trash. And the, the reason I say that, not because COVID lives on it, but because if you've got you know $10 in a savings account in the United States, that money is losing value every day against inflation, right? Because the 0.01% interest that you're getting on that in that interest-bearing savings account. Yes, because to, it's not a performing asset. But and it's losing value up against inflation. Yes. So when I say cash is trash, that's what I mean. Like if, you're, if your future of your family is tied to money in a savings account at a Bank of America branch, you need to get your head examined that is going to lose value. But 
and I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe it makes a lot of sense to have a digital currency. And I've evolved on that too. No, because what it is, is it's power in the hands of these few global elites. It's their power control. When you control the money supply and the food supply, you control everything. Well, Bitcoin isn't. But now that the governments have decided to launch their own cryptocurrency, it will mimic the same problems. Right. And they're going to clamp down on cryptocurrency. So they're going after. The governments have decided not to allow that because there is a finite number of Bitcoin that can be... 21 million. That can be mined and the same with other cryptocurrencies. And because they can't get in there and verify the blockchain in order to tax profits um, and they can't find who owns it. So these are all things that the government absolutely wants to be able to do as part of our social contract. So they won't allow it. Right. So here's what the World Economic Forum just launched, which is their new financial system collapse. This is what and this is like a trailer for what they are about to do to us, guys. Watch this. This is jaw dropping. if you can't access your money i mean we have to imagine we recently saw what happens to like in greece and afghanistan and most recently in lebanon where man went into a bank branch to get his money and he was told that he couldn't get it and what did he do he brought a gun back Mm -hmm. he's like i want my money back i'm just i want to take care of my family and then became a national hero right because there wasn't the money in the banks they had a what a 40 percent inflation rate yeah right um money's in harry's house and, and and the money's over in cheryl's house you see it's, it's not here right <laughs> it never is it's never right. in the bank right that's the great uh no that's in the fact great problem here. um it, it used to be that the bank had to keep at least 10 percent of all deposits in the bank and then lend out a 90 percent um that was dropped i think during covid to was it zero percent or f- less than five percent? It was zero. It went down to zero. Right. Now they don't have to have any. They don't have to have any, so they can continue to create money based on a shared belief system. Yeah, it's a fractional reserve banking, which is they only had to, if you put in a hundred dollars, they only had to keep ten dollars. It's in the not bank. fraction anymore. It's full reserve banking, full. zero reserve. So this tweet from uh, Alchemical Daddy, uh, you know, pointed this out and did some great job collating some of this and I, something some of this I forgot about. But the symbolism is potent in this ad. Extreme weather freezing your bank account equals liquidity freeze. Warning of the severe snowstorm or cyber attack, climate change and cyber pandemic programming. Have a ripple effect, it says. It hints at a solution. Ripple XRP, maybe. But definitely a digital currency right and their own way to control it the the gist of the platform is that we and and they actually the wef rolled out their own platform on poverty which is about the financial inclusion so you can read this right on the world economic forum's website the gist of this platform is that we can can we can remove poverty if you give us control of your money don't use cash oh yes this absolutely people The people that hide money under your mattress, guess what? You will not be able to hide money anywhere in this system. Like you will not be able to hide a penny. 
No, we will control it all. all. We don't want you to have any, like, you know, you're going to go to a garage sale on the weekend. None of that. Sorry, that's out the window. You're not going to do any of that. You will literally tap and pay. We'll make sure that those people have, you know, point of sale things at the garage sale. So you can just tap your device, right? This is why we need gold and silver. Like, this is why we need tangible assets, guys, because they are coming for it. So in this piece, how financial yeah, inclusion can help lift people out of poverty on, uh, on, um, at the World Economic Forum, and they specifically point to women. They say financial inclusion, including access to digital financial services, is an important policy objective because it helps people manage their money better. Accounts give you greater control over your money, your financial life. It, it empowers women. In fact, this was part of the narrative that Bill Clinton went around the press this weekend talking about it, his Clinton Global Initiative. And he said some of the best things that we've done here at the Clinton Global Initiative to help progress in um, you know third world countries as we give these microfinancing to women with their businesses right um, and that providing them with these loans really helps to lift up an entire economy lifts them out of poverty right but these micro loans guess who gets to track them guess who makes money on them right, right? this was a big part of his message which again most of the western media let him say with full access platforms on the airwaves this weekend yeah and of course no you know no contradictory statements or no pressing them no. on this oh a billion people are in poverty and billion people don't have access to banks what if we could control all of those people by giving them a digital bank account that we control oh uh, and debt well, you're not right yeah and that's how we keep africa and all these other countries in poverty is with the imf and making sure that they're in loan and debt to us you're missing a huge point though you're missing the biggest point like how are we ever going to it's going to be a sacrifice to tax the wealthy that's the only way we can do it is by mm. these microtransactions. yeah so. yeah because we know that the bulk of yeah exactly again the irs getting eighty six thousand new agents at the irs mm -hmm. it's not to go after the wealthy it's to go after poor people that's exactly what it's about. So how is this all unfolding? Well, we've seen some examples of this, like in some in news reports. How about this woman who can't get access? Her all Everything in her account is just frozen. She can't get access to it. So she has no money. It's all frozen. Here's how it happens. Watch. It was a disastrous deep freeze that lasted more than half a year. A New Jersey health care worker's bank account inexplicably frozen. All of the money she had in the world suddenly out of her grasp. She was near the breaking point until a friend gave what she calls the best advice. Call Nina Pineda and get seven on her side. <laughs> no? Okay. So we called ABC News and we got Nina Pineda on our side. Here's another guy, who, man who can't get access to his money. Watch this one. Any banks closing branches as more customers bank online and fewer go into the bank in person. But for one East Bay man, it caused a mild panic, actually. The Bank of America shut down his branch just hours after he made a huge deposit and his money disappeared. So you can imagine how worried he was. So he came to Seven on Your Side's Michael Phineas. Wow. Oh, every, well, that's, there you go. Going, everyone's going to ABC to get Seven on their side to get my money back. Went to... Um, but this is how the WEF plans to, uh, you know, scare us about the financial system. I want to play this again. Just watch. Just watch their messaging now that we've had some context here. Watch.
you got to make sure we're taken care of at the World Economic Forum. We'll take care of you. Um, this is, and it's, it is like a soft launch for like. It's an excellent video. You guys can catch the rest of it. It'll be in the show notes for this episode, just like every clip we play in every episode. Um, Tony, what did you have to, th- uh, like, what did you think about that? Because the one part that caught me was their infrastructure, their economic technological infrastructure is so robust, dare I say, anti-fragile that it can be dissembled easily by a snowstorm or a cyber attack. I just thought it was like snowstorm and cyber attack could both crash banking system was just ironic and asking you to believe a little too much there. What do you think? Is that why they need to conduct seminars and uh, situations like cyber cyber polygon? Well, they need to do that to enforce the coincidence factor of it. Tony. You know, They're not practicing uh, for stuff. Simulations that they tried to benefiting from other people's ignorance. That would be you can't say that. How convenient. Um, it's against the great narrative. It's against this to say such things. It's fascinating. I mean, there's lots of issues with Bitcoin as well. Obviously, we know about the trend of CBDC, central bank digital currencies. A lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misunderstanding I had from being uh, someone taught in sort of the Austrian school of economics sort of perspective uh, in regards to Mises and particularly Rothbard. The fractional reserve lending is is more of a historical artifact now. It's mostly collateralized, collateralized debt. Excuse me, cannot pronounce that. And uh, it's a very strange phenomenon um, that's been going on, especially when you juxtapose what essentially are loans from the... Um, private central bank, the Federal Reserve, and then also money creation uh, from commercial lending institutions. Very different, even though the, the FDIC ensures those commercial lending institutions. Money is just created essentially out of thin air with no backing whatsoever. It's not like COVID-19 took that away. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. I got schooled on that recently by members of the GTW community. Uh, shout out to Adrian and Dylan, who brought it to my perspective that no. Um, and I think that a lot of it, as they're taking from number of different sources, but one which I think you've interacted with a couple of years ago, John Titus, he's been one uh, throwing around what's actually going on in regards to the movement towards a central bank digital currency, a money velocity and commercial money lending situations, the, the movement towards a cashless society, and the sort of these artifacts that people are still throwing around as far as uh, uh, fractional reserve lending and these sorts of things that just aren't a fact anymore, um, which is very strange and very disturbing because at the same point, I think we played a clip by who was it? It was um, John McAfee. You played a clip, but this is like six months ago, where he talked about the thing that this, the, the the central banks of the world and uh, private financiers and hedge funds, mutual whatever, what they're most terrified of is a, a pirate coin, something that truly can mask the digital ledger completely. Because that would truly take away the power of um, the government to be able to audit. Is that why he personal- got swacked? Well, I find it interesting that the opposite is they're trying to bring in the opposite in effect mm. in regards to a central bank digital currency that will be able to shut off your ability to buy a hamburger because you've reached In other words, nothing footprint. would be private. It's like the opposite exactly. of, pirate, of pirate type of currency. It's that the opposite. About. It's quite mm. literally the opposite. And so let's not forget. And then they would have the ability through their interconnected sort of global supply chain, hyper technological civilization that we're creating, uh, infrastructure that we're creating, uh, be able to shut off your ability to buy a hamburger because you've reached your carbon limit for the day, or you can't turn on your your dryer in the house, or you can't turn your heat above us. Oh, we already saw that happen recently with, well, this was air conditioning. I think, what was this in Colorado? Sorry, you don't qualify for the burger, but we have some bugs for you. 
And that's what they want. They want complete control, complete control. Command and, the way they and can control. Gain, and that's what Patrick Wood talked about. Technocracy. See, before it was about financial They're control. hacking humanity. Can we, let's make it, let's make a movie. Let's tell people. <laughs> They're well, it's interesting humanity. because That's like Quig- Quigley pointed out the financial, the, the concert of central banks that essentially through the, uh, um, uh, wasn't BCCI, the, um, uh, BC, uh, bank for international settlements, the BIS through the bank of international central the bank of international, uh, settlements and, uh, Switzerland, which is the central bank of the central banks. They wanted to control the world and individuals through control of money. But that changed once they realized they gained a level of technology where they can now control one's biology. And that has what's happened recently with a certain new executive order about controlling your biology that last week, Tony, I don't think you should worry too much about it. How curious. They're like, well, hell, if we can, they're not trying to get under your skin at all. (laughs) No, I I don't think so. I think, I think you're overly concerned and you should go watch football. Take the rest of the night off. It's a confusing topic because somewhere uh, out can, there, there's a kickoff, Tony. You're missing it. Uh, Sunday night football is ironic that Sunday night football aired about the same time we started the show, maybe about an hour in. Um, Something but, I uh, haven't seen for 20 years. And <laughs> I'm all the better for it. Interestingly enough, um, uh, I think I lost my train of thought, but no, come back to me. That's because you had the Sunday night football theme going through your head. Didn't have the theme. I was probably thinking of who's playing, but I don't know who's playing. Let's see, there you go. All right, switching gears to get to these other clips that we have to cover tonight. Um, I did like in the uh, the Clayton Morris clip, uh, the producer on the show, that was a good imitation of Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life, and it was an accurate reference of a bank run oh, because yeah. that's what that whole scene in that part of the movie depicts and how people have to come together and help each other out to make it through such tough times. If you're too young and haven't seen it, Christmas is coming up. You'll be able to see it. It's a wonderful life. Now, speaking of it's a wonderful wonder if that's life. that's been canceled yet. As well as a Christmas story. It probably won't get canceled because Frank Capra made a lot of propaganda for the United States government. So, so that's a fact. Yeah. All right. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this book that I read this week. So we'll cut this out. We'll make it a segment. It'll be a little book report. I'm not going to spend a half hour on this book. I'm not going to spend 20 minutes on this book, but I will give you a nice five minute why you might want to invest nine bucks or whatever this thing cost into seeing what Klaus's plan is, because I think I find it useful in bridging the gaps in communication, such books like this, right? My father-in-law was over yesterday. He had some questions. I said, why don't you read it from the guy who's like making the plans? And then I showed him also some videos. I'm like, here's World Economic Forum. Here they are announcing the Great Reset and the Great Narrative and these sort of things and World Government Summit in Dubai, putting it on a radar because I'm pretty sure he's not getting it through like his news sources. So people who come into my sphere of influence when they ask questions, I try not to give them my opinion. I think my opinion is pretty worthless in many cases. I try to lead them to the facts so they can read it for themselves in, in the words of the people actually writing and shaping the Great Narrative. For a better future. So this is a book that is attributed to Klaus Schwab, represents his ideas. I suspect Terry Mellorette did a lot more of the writing. This is the first edition, 2022, about the author. You know, Klaus, let's get to a table of contents. Now, he has an introduction. We'll go through that. There's some post-COVID issues and challenges, right? Because he wanted to keep this thing going. It's He got real big with COVID. He's trying to string it out here. And go uh, find the way forward with solutions. And there's um, 
not a whole lot to the book, right? The foreword is just explaining. Let me uh, give you a couple quotes from it because that'd be useful. Do why do why do narratives matter? As human beings and social animals, we are storytelling creatures, and the stories we tell, the narratives are our fundamental tool of communication and transmission. Narratives are how we make sense of life. They provide us with a context, thanks to which we can better interpret, understand, and respond to the facts we observe. Most importantly, compelling narratives have the power to inspire us to act. But why a single great narrative? Because the constellation of important interrelated stories that this book offers coalesce around one central story. It addresses a broad spectrum of issues aiming to shed light on what's coming and to offer some clarity on our options in terms of a collective response. Now he goes through here talking about the, you know, Great narrative expresses personal conviction and human creativity, ingenuity, and innate sociality are much too powerful and we can prevail. So he's saying there's a problem and we can win. That's cool. I like that. It's very optimistic, very white pill. He wrote this, by the way, uh, December 15th, 2021. So we're coming up on the anniversary of this book. I know. I also know they did this conference of the same name, November 2021, right before he released the book. The conference is a visual representation of the ideas with the uh, the people involved speaking for themselves. You can find it on the World Economic Forum's YouTube channel. And it was right before the World Government Conference, which was also in Dubai. I'm sure that's a coincidence. We're not going to look into that at all. So he goes into the introduction. We hope that the COVID-19 crisis will soon be over, but will it? Oh, right. So they want to keep it going. Uh, and he says, the psychological shock provoked by different forms of fear triggered by the disease. He's talking about COVID-19. Like the fear of illness, the fear of isolation, the fear of others, or even the fear of the future takes much longer to subside. So he's saying we're going to continue to experience these traumatic effects of the pandemic for some time to come. Some of these changes were already apparent prior to the crisis but have been accelerated, even turbocharged, as some pundits would argue, by the pandemic. Among them are the acceleration of automation and innovation, right? The robot society, rising inequalities. That's because you crush the economy. The growing power of tech and surveillance, which you say will just crash everything and freeze people's accounts. And the rising rivalry between the United States and China. Uh, talks more about pandemics. Now there is a part in here. So let's see, look, it's a big book. See all these different pages I marked. Here's the key. Uh, blue. That's okay. Red. That's interesting. Orange. Ooh. Ooh. It's like a money shot. So let's go to the orange tab in here and see what Klaus has to say. Oh, oh, we have the topic of synthetic biology. Oh, Tony, you're going to like this one. This is page 102. We are at the dawn of the genetics revolution, having sequenced the human genome, turned adult cells into stem cells, understood how to rewrite the genetic code of any living cell and reduce the cost of hacking genes by a factor of millions. Besides, we have already, uh, sorry, we already have a successful example proving that synthetic biology delivers on its promises. Just as in World War II, accelerated electronics 
the pandemic has propelled the genetics revolution towards new frontiers. Now, this is also interesting in the light of they made it in a lab and it wasn't accidental. But he's gaslighting you and he's like, hey, this thing happened accidentally and we just happened pathogens, to be here. Right. Pathogens right, right. of pandemic potential, PPP. There's also mm -hmm. the issue here is what he's alluding to through the, the saving millions of dollars in regards to the ability to hack your DNAs through the mRNA pathway. Scale. That's the specific yeah. pathway. Of course, let's talk about the fallout of that, but he's acting as though, no, there's no nothing negative as far as the vaccines are concerned, not at all. Continuing on, when COVID-19 struck, it triggered an immediate and furious search for the vaccine. There you go. Those that came first are mRNA vaccines that insert synthetic strings of genetic code that are computer modeled into our bodies instead of triggering our immune systems with a traditional vaccine that injects a weakened dead or partial pathogen mrna vaccines instruct our cells to produce the spike protein of the sars-cov-2 virus and by doing so they transform our bodies into personalized manufacturing plants, producing an otherwise foreign object to trigger our natural immune response. This approach will soon create a whole new platform for fighting cancers and other diseases, as well as for providing hence enhancements ever more profound than vaccination. Yeah, it's very terrifying because the issue with trying to combat cancers and whatnot, if I remember from Robert Malone, is that the mRNA pathway uh, disintegrates too quickly. So that's where mm -hmm. the, the nanolipid structure, as well as some amino acid changes in regards to the mRNA structure, allows it to now um, not only proliferate in the body, but uh, maintain in the body for extremely long periods of time, so much so that people get a natural infection from SARS-CoV-2 are expelling it and they're over it much quicker. Whereas people who get continually get vaccinated and boosted, they're finding it months and months afterwards where the body's still producing almost in an exhaustive fashion antibodies for the spike protein that supposedly they changed a small amino acid structure to it. So it's not supposedly deadly, but we know that's not the case. Continuing on, the potential of such Promethean technologies seems amazing and infinite. Promethean technologies, right? clever. Transforming our healthcare so that personalized treatments and predictive health issue modeling become possible. Brewing animal proteins from cell cultures and generating energy from algae to save the planet. These and many other applications seem within reach, but so, uh, but so, too. <laughs> but so too does. <laughs> yeah, but the so use of uh, apostrophes not very yeah. good there. But so, too. <laughs> does the possibility to use them for the wrong purpose inadvertently implicitly or with intent oh that's interesting people do stuff on purpose out there huh the potential of synthetic biology is such that it's not hard to imagine what could go wrong now this is the part that i found ironic because some of this stuff are, 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 is already going on it's going it's wrong going already on. yeah not, like what? it was going wrong when he wrote it in 2021 right. that's what i'm saying what right. if this is this is great right here. He's such the hypothesizer. What if in the case of the pandemic, we were we only inoculate the citizens of rich countries? Not such a far-fetched scenario, eh? What if we improve or prolong life of only those who can afford it? Huh? Yeah, are you with me? What if we start discriminating against people 
who, based on their genetic information, I mean the whole entire yeah? history of eugenics. Abardasius Yasso Heinfach, buddy. Francis Galton style. What? What if soon anyone can make a virus from scratch? What if genetic manipulation of pre-implanted embryos leads to eugenics? Huh. Has that happened in the past? Tony, Wait, it leads to thing? a eugenics or is a continuation of eugenics continuation. from the 19th I think that's a typo. century? We should let the publisher know. About I that see. One. Yeah. We should. We should. What if a country or a malicious group decides to produce a dangerous or uh, unknown synthetic pathogen? Like you mean like combining SARS? Like, like a taking- chimera with gain of function? Out of a Wuhan lab with Peter Daszak and EcoHealth, who is still getting money from Lee, Peter Daszak, Ralph Barrick, Anthony Fauci funding it through Peter Daszak. This is my favorite one, Tony. What if this next pandemic is lab made? (laughs) This is a joke. This is a fucking joke. What if a pathogen is enhanced to increase transmissibility or its ability to cause disease is augmented? Yeah. Are these rhetorical questions that he's I asking? I think, I don't know. So we got to read further, but let's go to the next money shot. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Take it. John Holmes. All right. Now, uh, GL engineering, bold imagination at work. Also might be called climate engineering. Now, this is something that does not go on. And if you look at this, it's a conspiracy theory. They haven't been doing it since the 1940s. Let me see. Let me just break out of this. Let me just go on a tangent here real quick. I got to hook up the brain because I know I didn't test it before tonight. So I'm going to hit this button. It's going to go black screen for a minute. And that's going to be dramatic for some of those people at home. It has to open first. It's a big model. But what I want to show you is I did some research once upon a time on this idea of, uh, how's he say? Geoengineering is the word he uses here in the book, right? All right. I'm going to show you that uh, Smithsonian is a reputable source that could tell you about geoengineering going all the way back to like the forties and fifties. And it's not conspiracy theory. It's just history. So let me go over here. I'm going to type in Smithsonian because I'm pretty sure there's only a couple Smithsonian magazine. Let's go there. Oh, look at this airplane contrails, cloud seeding, ecological effects of weather modification, Cloud seeding actually goes on, by the way. Like in Dubai, for example, there's not enough rainfall for those man-made islands. In fact, there's no rainfall at all. So there's companies that specialize in being able to see clouds for rainfall, moisture. And here's weather modification in the Soviet Union, 1946 to 1966, the selected annotated bibliography. That's interesting. By George Smithsonian? Huh. No longer a conspiracy theory, Director Brennan admits plans of aerosol spraying for geoengineering. Well, this is fascinating because they tell me that this is like conspiracy, Tony, but weather modification experiments, 1940s to present. Wow, Bloomberg, CB. These look like official sources. Maybe the U.S. Senate report. Maybe one of these weather modification hearings from 1959. Do you think they knew how to do it back then, but they don't know how to do it now, Tony? Is that what's going on? No, I mean they've been searching. Uh, they've been uh, researching this and probably implementing it for some time. What I where I draw the line is some of the more cartoonish conspiracies that have come out of it because there's a lot of different yeah, ways to modify theory. the I'm river. I'm just saying these the, things went on in the past. That's yeah, all. yeah. I mean, like for example, like the big thing they're pushing for now is like the aerosol spring. That's I don't. The, the, there's a lot of problems with that theory. But for example, this is my Evernote. I saved this from 
back in the day. Um, I wonder what date this was. I'll think if I can find it. Bill Gates' venture aims to spray dust. So this would be sulfites. Right. Uh, Block out the, the atmosphere. Sun. And that's like what we call it's like a nuclear winter, like a volcano. You know, it's basically just uh, it would cause a nuclear winter like effect. Then uh, that, this got thwarted. This was back in April 2nd, 2021. Good news. Bill Gates' geoengineering fought to block the sun is scrapped for other one, potential things. Swiss, the Swedish Space Corporation released a statement saying that the stratospheric controlled pertur- perturbation experiments, which also had secured Harvard funding, will not go ahead as planned in June. And this is the sulfite area. Obviously, they're also putting heavy metals into the water. There's issues that there's a really out there conspiracy. James DeMeo about orgone technologies i don't know how literal that is that's a very out there one i mean there's a lot of different obviously cloud seeding we just mentioned there's so many different ways harp which is that's a speculative one too that's a pretty out there sort of epistemological cartoon one but still i mean there's they're they're testing all things i mean all all the 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 tools in their toolbox they're going to try in regards to being able to manipulate weather and you know they've i thought there was some sort of and you you can uh speak to this more than i could wasn't there some sort of document or statement in regards to the types of um, supranational problems they want to highlight in the future? One would be maybe an alien invasion. Another one would be climate change. There's these um, sort of transcendent problems that yeah, transcend nation scenarios. states. They picked a couple and now they're going with yeah, it. They're going with one that uh, they probably can manipulate much more easily in regards to weather. But I want to so, point out that we have to be careful about there's a lot of different ways to do it without being able to tell how they're doing it. So. Yeah. I'm just saying people should know those studies exist and check them out. That's all. Yeah. I'm not saying what they're doing today. I'm just saying what they did in the past. So yeah, yeah, no, sure. I'm not making yeah. jumps to conclusion or even claims. No, I know, I know saying, you're not. I know you're I'm not. I'm saying not. these things exist. They're pretty cool. You should check them out. Now, speaking of and things they, that are cool, 132 is the page we're on. Geoengineering, bold imagination at work. Now, Klaus and uh, Thierry, they make a, they give you a little definition here. So let's get this. Geoengineering involves consequential risks ranging from air pollution to all sorts of unanticipated climate effects. It also poses exceedingly complex scientific, ethical, and governance issues. Do humans have the right to deliberately change the climate? Who would have the authority to make the decision to geoengineer the climate? Hmm. That's a good question. Do they have the right? Should they be doing it? There is a good quote from Einstein on the following page. It's like the only thing I agreed with. As <laughs> Einstein pointed out, imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited, but imagination encircles the world. The same applies to logic. Logic will get you from A to B. Imagination will take you everywhere, he also said. Classic. Right. That's so Ernst Mach, who was his mentor, who was Ernst a positivist. And you can start with uh, ideas independent of experience through your imagination and just come up with any theory you want to. Good on you, Einstein, for carrying forth the prescriptive ideology of our The next rulers. passage comes from page 176. This is talking about the stakeholder capitalism. People who own the stakes mm-hmm. hold the capitalism, I guess. That's how it works. The World Economic <laughs> Forum took the U.S. Business Roundtable Declaration as an opportunity to refresh the original Davos Manifesto. Oh, so they took the 1973 Manifesto, and they, they used the 50th anniversary, which happened to be like COVID, and they're like, hey, let's re- redo the manifesto. So over here on this page, look at that. This really right here. Really? That's me being incredulous. Really? Really? Okay. This <laughs> resulted. I'm, I'm not going to say I can't, anything. I'm trying. It's like, it's, it's like I'm <laughs> reading comedy, but it's not funny. The absurdity, man. This 
pandemic, resulted in the Davos Manifesto 2020. It reiterates the fundamental importance of stakeholder responsibility, starting at the universal purpose of a company is uh, the purpose of a company is to get engage all its stakeholders in shared and sustained value creation. Boy, if that's not veiled language, I don't know what is. It also highlights other important corporate principles. One, to accept and support fair competition and a level playing field and to have zero tolerance for corruption. And I was like, record scratch, stop, stop the car, dude. What? What about the slave camps? Zero tolerance for corruption. What about HSBC? How about, how about this? I got you. I got you. Look at this. HSBC. Laundering drug money. People hooking it up so they can keep laundering drug money. HS, HSBC proves the drug war is a joke. They just paid $3 billion. They, they laundered like $100 billion. There's a whole bunch of other stories like that. But, you know, zero tolerance on corruption. All the oh, corporations please. he works with, for right. God's sake, saying gangs corruption. Yeah, that's okay. That's so that's why I'm all. incredulous when I read this part. Two, to consider a company's suppliers as true partners in value creation and to integrate respect for human rights into the entire supply chain. Again, have you guys heard of Africa? Do you know what this the slave labor situation is over there lately? Or how about the uh, Apple? You know, uh, what was it? The, the, the apple the suicide nets. There's the apple right? plant. There's actually Which probably has them, been rebranded by, by now. Or even the Uyghur concentration camp thing they got going on over there. Which is a confusing Really? Because Xi Jinping is all in the World Economic Forum. Him and Putin both got their head up Klaus's yeah. ass. And the thing about the Uyghur situation is, yes, the CIA is all over that. And there's, and there's mineral, uh, uh, special minerals in that region in Xinjiang province. But at the same time, both things can be, it can be an also and where the CIA is virtue signaling in order to get our MNCs to have mineral rights to mine there. While at the same time, the Chinese are probably also committing atrocities against the Uyghur, essentially those steppe peoples, the Turk steppe people. And if people. the Chinese were committing atrocities, the CIA would probably use that and leverage it against its enemies. So it might, true, might be true going on and it's so things used by might the CIA. be true. Yeah, then in right. order to gain the rights for their MNCs to go in and have I'm pretty sure they got camps and that they, they distinguish they Chinese 30, people from Muslims pretty harshly over they there. They do. And they also, they're very um, xenophobic. On top of that, they just built a 30,000 con- 30, person concentration camp for COVID. Uh, in China as well. And we can't, about, we can't forget about the Shanghai lockdowns. So every like, 10 coincidences anyway. on this show, you get a free ice cream. All right. Two, to consider a company suppliers is true patterns so of human rights through the whole supply chain. Uh, do you guys know where coal tan comes from? Do you guys know where like the, the minerals and the smart materials come from? How about the batteries and the Teslas? Yeah. What is that called? Cobalt? Do you know how cobalt. they mine cobalt in uh, Africa? Africa. You could watch that in Chile like five as well. episodes ago. It's in the intermission. I'm uh, like, I'm quizzing you on something you just learned in the class. Anyway, three, maybe this gets better to act as a steward of the environmental and material universe for future generations. And so to consciously protect our biosphere and champion a circular shared and regenerative economy. Where have we heard that one before? Now, in a nod to the ongoing fourth industrial revolution, which is the name of Klaus's book, right? So he's like, yeah, this is going on. This is our plan. But no one was listening to it until COVID came along and they called it the Great Reset. Is it like the fourth world that George Hunt alludes to? What is it called? The fourth revolution? Fourth something? The fourth, the fourth 
World World Conference. There was a first World Conference, a second. It was like three consecutive, four consecutive conferences. It didn't mean that there's going to be a fourth world. That's a misinterpretation, I think, of the title. But it might have been a purposeful misinterpretation that they made. He seemed to insinuate that it would bring in a sort of he talks uh, about uh, archa- archaic revival. Page one eighty, like global co- corporate citizen. This is all fascism. The merger of the corporations and the state, and leaving you out of it. But the last money shot I had marked over here. Uh, they leave you out of it unless you adopt their CBDCs and get microchipped and get vaccinated and so forth and so on. Then you can be part of their meta- metaphorical pyramidal structure. Here, I'll do the. I'll do this last one here. <clears throat> so I, I do want to share this positive part on optimism that he has at the end. Oh, I don't have to disagree with everything just because Klaus says it, right? Fair enough. That's optimism true. might be a duty or responsibility, whereas pessimism might be seen as something of, of a luxury. But I think that the idea of optimism is an idea that's more about practical orientation to the world rather than a set of beliefs about how things will turn out. The idea often attributed to Antonio Gramsci of calling for pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, seems to hit on this distinction perfectly. Oh, man, I'm, yeah, that, I'm holding back my philosophy mind right now. When no, I see I'm just, this, I'm I saying, because there's another great quote. Oh, here it is right here. It's just the separation. I'm optimistic. Of- this is something I agree with. I'm optimistic because one needs to be optimistic in order to get things done. That's right? a better so it's quote. A, it's a, right. So this is That's a, a much better quote. Yeah, I like now, that better. Klaus is probably not very optimistic let's see what he says here uh the last page right here so everything is so interconnected rich he's so worried should we be optimistic or pessimistic about the state of the world today and our collective future the answer should be qualified and requires nuance some things are going well while others are going quite badly and some very badly indeed like the climate of course okay now hold on Oh boy, bring in uh, there like in, in, in a conversation with Steven Pinker about optimism and pessimism. The historian Yuval Noah Harari notes that we must be quote realistic. Others say pragmatic, pragmatic about our current and future situation. Harari broadly agrees with Pinker, but also argues that the famous cognitive psychologist paints a somewhat incomplete picture. Quote: Things for humans are better than ever, but things are still quite bad and things can get much much worse the specific challenges detailed in the opening section of this book make it hard to disagree that notwithstanding hope springs eternal and therein lies the possibility for action and solutions Hope springs eternal, and therein lies the possibility for actions and solutions how about weaponizing hope have they ever conceived of that? I'll give you the spoiler. It's always it always seems impossible until it's done. <laughs> and now we're done with the great narrative. And I will say that this book has no index. You just saw no it live way. here on this show. Maybe Alex did it on purpose. He's like, well, Klaus doesn't have given index. I'm not giving an index. It doesn't book. look like there's any real footnote. I think Alex had some basic footnotes. There's some endnotes. Klaus has endnotes because oh, okay. he has okay. like 50 people that helped him write the book. Sure. Oh, yeah. Alex just had like one person. One dude. Right. Which, you know. Okay. Like, they had some endnotes. Fair enough. Can we get Alex and Klaus like in a cage match for charity and just end this global warming shit about paying off the sun gods? 
I'm just saying, man. Oh, man. <laughs> How about this? Wait, there was worship, one. Huh? I'll give you one extra bonus part here. There's one part here where I wrote I wrote in the word naive, even though I wasn't sure I was spelling it right. N-A-I-V-E. You got it right. There are, this is so, it reads like this. A few decades ago, the cognitive psychologist and economist Herbert Simon neatly summed up the problem of ambivalence, ambivalence when observing that, quote, there are no morals about technology at all. Technology expands our ways of thinking about things, expands our ways of doing things. If we are bad people, we use technology for bad purposes. And if we are good people, we use technology for good purposes. The simple truth is that any technology can be used for good or for ill, and that no technology comes up with its own purposely designed value system. Humans decide. So he's like, ah, Bro, don't worry about technology because we're not teaching it to think on its own or anything. Humans decide this shit. We're going to be in control of the future, even though we're going to create an independent, autonomous, conscious, live entity of a silicon variety and then give it rights. But humans decide. So I don't know. Those contradictions trip. They don't want to create. They don't want to create just a purely silicon entity. They want to merge human beings and take us away from being. So electrochemical species to solid state silicon based PCBs essentially and combine the two together. They need those those drones and mRNA vaccines. They're just about there. They got they they got their narrative. What unfolding. about what about the issue? There's intent and free will all over this stuff because essentially what happens if the bad people, the bunch of poor or more or unscrupulous individuals, poor moral value of judgments, uh, design a technology that itself is going to be used to subjugate humanity, then it then can that technology be in some capacity be used for good? I mean, there's a lot of assumptions being made. Naive is a good word robots too, right there. Become conscious. Robots then realize robot means slave. slave. Robots then Robotnik. Yeah. Jack humanity. Humanity becomes slaves. I'm pretty sure that's like the blueprint these people are running. They're like this Terminator as a like a business plan and they're like, <laughs> let's do that. I have a Skynet shirt. I should have wore it. Skynet shirts. <laughs> we should make some Skynet shirts, bro. There we go. People will get it. No, people are all fixated fixated on the pixels instead of That's zooming it. back to see what the pixels make up as a big picture. You it's know? a form of their own enslavement, right? When you think about things like Logan Tron I mentioned earlier, it's like you're enslaving yourselves to this higher idea of like believing that the machines and technology is going to give you a certain amount of freedom, but instead you're actually limiting your ability to experience life itself by either uploading consciousness or becoming part silicone or becoming a, a Borg. You know, first contact is another movie I mentioned as well, where the Borgs themselves are slaves. They, they, they can't essentially feel or participate the same way they could before they merge with the machine. But Harari says they're going to take away your emotions, Tony. So you won't care. That's taking away part of what it means to be maybe the most fundamental part of what it means to be human. I mean, what the most fundamental part would be okay, the so combination of this. conceptual reasoning with our emotional, our ability to feel our this world, just, to experience our world. This is just open speculation, but what if in their upbringing, there were like vacancies in certain areas of life, right? Which makes people kind of maladapted to the situation. And they think that's normal because it's what's happening for them. And they think everyone else needs to be maladapted just like them. Like a right? psychopath. So you, you're going to be androgynous. You're going to be plugged into the internet. You're not going to have any procreation skill like skills anymore. Cause that's for, you know, that's for the ruling class. The slave class can't breed and, and do that sort of stuff anymore. Harari describes 
a lot of it. It's very interesting. His homo deus picture of the future for humanity. God, well, what's, or what's, man you know, he's as just God, like, man is God. That's brain. the that's the whole idea with the you know, even when they use the occult symbolism and stuff, the deifying man itself. And not understanding he stands in participation, possibly of a more transcendent order. It's pretty arrogant, I would think. I mean, can, can Harari create a universe yet? First off, yeah. they deny the God thing. Then they want to become the God that creates the thing. They deny so intelligence. They deny that it's the operative in the universe. It's this uh, happenstance of material organization, an epiphenomenon, the, the consciousness and situations of that nature. And so that's, and then on top of that, um, you know. Is it they because they own them. the science, Tony, that they can do that maybe? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, if you own the science. You can pretty much do what you want with the science. You could be the like, one thing care. they are right. The one thing he is right about, oh, not Yuval, not Yuval, not Yuval, but Klaus Schwab, is that human beings are first mode of cognition. I teach this in my trivium course. Courses when I teach it, it's available on the Gort Marketplace. Um, and I might reteach it at some point for the GTW community, just for people, you know. But the point is, one of the modes of cognition, the most found, foundational and fundamental mode of cognition, is the mythopoeic mode. We tell stories. That's the most fundamental way in which we have communicated with one another. The most fundamental way in which we begun began to communicate with one another is through storytelling, myth making, and then relates to tool making. And then you know these narratives stick with us. There's something that excites the emotional, this uh, spirited aspect of the soul, if you will. And in that capacity, there's a, an attendant memory associated with it. It's much easier to tell a story or a parable, for example, and give child, a child a sense of a, a moral duty associated with that or understanding than it is to give them the logical, concise description of how it works and why one should or should not act in a certain way. So storytelling, he is right about that. And it, everything is about narrative control to a certain extent. Um, and he's the, I'll give him that. That's the first and most foundational mode of cognition is uh, myth-making. And he's attempting to create his own myth right now. And the myth is that the world is interconnected and uh, has the opportunity for, I guess, catapulting itself into a new golden age or a new dark age, depending on how it manifests itself. Unfortunately, they seem to be, they have a prescriptive idea of what that golden age might be. And I think we would see it to be as something much, much darker. Here, I found one last banger for you out of this book, The Great Narrative. Another money shot? The facts and the science. Remember, they own the science, right? We've known about the global warming for more than 50 years. Some industries have understood the risk for decades, but chose to say nothing. While some experts from the scientific community and a few pundits started uh, started warning publicly about it in the 70s. That's also when they said it was going to be an ice age next, right? But we'll just cherry pick and say they said it in the 70s, make it look like a 50-year trend. A few milestones show that the international community was aware of the risk posed by climate change and was willing to address it as early as 30 years ago. In 1992, more than 130 nations all at once signed the UN Convention on Climate Change at the Rio Earth Summit in 1997. So that's uh, Agenda 21. Maybe I should write that right here in the margin. It's Agenda 21. Now, for those of you who watch the show regularly, you know Agenda 21 is the output. It's not the input. The input was those meetings that went on starting in the 1970s and i will show them to you very quickly because i do have them on hand and i could type into my brain something like 1972 or maybe i'll try grow harlan grow h oh it crashed Brutland. let's see all right so the model crashed 
that part's not going to work. I'm going to restart it. Let's try it again. Because I'll just do it live. 1972, they had an earth conference, and that's Gro Harlem Brundtland from like the Netherlands, and she runs it. And then they had another one in the 80s, and that's where Edmund de Leopold, the Rothschild, gets up and says, what if we had global warming? And we've played those clips before because there's a whistleblower called John Washington, and I'm sorry, George Washington Hunt, who came out and explained uh, that situation. Let me see if I can get the brain to cooperate, bro. H grow Harlem Brundtland. And I just hey, have, to re- Put on, yeah. Yeah, I have to reconnect it because it's a new okay. source. There we go. Yep. That's her name. She worked under Maurice Strong and Edmund Leopold de Rothschild, just like I said. She's part of the Trilateral Commission. Uh influenced the Agenda 21 Earth Conference in 92. They also had Our Common Future, which is a, a book. And then there was uh the Live Earth. Uh, conference that went on after that. If you go back just to Maurice Strong, I'm on the wrong screen. Click on that screen. There we go. Here's the George Hunt and the Unsaid Earth Summit. Now, what you're looking at is my history blueprint. There are links inside uh, the Grand Theft World community in the Library of Cognitive Liberty. So anybody who's a member can just look up. You just use a search box, type in Maurice Strong or George Hunt or Unsaid, U-N-C-E-D conferences and uh you can get to the same information we're using here live on the show you can also read through each of the entries and you can learn a heck of a lot, heck of a lot about this situation that is trickling down globalism through the united nations agenda 21 2030 and 2050 so that's a patrick wood article on this topic you could also watch some of these fine corbett report videos on uh the piece uh, the, the personages involved in this and you can see modern uh, uh, developments like the earth charter which is a 21st century situation that came from the uh, agenda 21 earth summit from 1992 so there's a long history behind it and the people involved again it's club of rome have we heard of them they're they're the guys that started the world economic forum with the predicament of mankind paper in 1970 so to not know about these things is to have blind spots all around us you know, regarding the things that are actually going on, like the World Economic Forum and their plan for you to be cold this winter, or maybe get your bank accounts frozen. You're going to be cold in one way or the other, they say. And the the evidence they're using, the statistical models they're building are incomplete. There's too much complexity um, for us to make these uh, uh, these simple assumptions. We saw this with the COVID lockdown narrative as well. Uh, and the models coming out of what Oxford or King's College, one of the two, I forget, it was a Nigel... Or not Nigel. Um, Niall Ferguson. Niall Ferguson, thank you. As opposed uh, to the historian who wrote the no. two-volume set on the Rothschilds, and his name is pronounced Neil Ferguson, but it's Neil. spelled Niall Ferguson, and he's Correct. a Harvard professor. Correct. I'll just leave this as an artifact. I don't have to play it, but uh, Steve Patterson um, was interviewed by Brett Weinstein. He talks about the dark, the scientific dark age uh, in which we exist, and he goes about the issue of these these scientific models, and he brings up a number of really interesting examples from history that showcase, unfortunately, that the number one sort of fallacy that emerges is the the under-assumption of the variables assumed in complex systems. In other words, what's happening right now is they're starting with a prescriptive idea of how They're not accounting enough for the unknowns in a system. Correct. They're thinking science can do more than it actually can, which is the same problem that Nassim Tlaib talks about in his book, Anti-Fragile, 
which I am also reading upstairs. I didn't get that's that one exactly finished. exactly right. So I, I encourage people. The clip is called. It's only a thirteen minute clip. It's called "Underestimating the Complexity of the World and Information Loss," and they go into all topics in regards to that. He brings up a number of historical examples that are very famous that have now been uh, largely debunked, basically by incorporating these other variables or, re- or redesigning the initial sort of prior, uh, initial conditions. They would call them as part of the the the, the study the group in hand. And so like it's, and he, they, then they juxtapose it to what's going on with lockdowns, vaccines, therapeutics, that whole narrative as well. And he's done all this. He's, I think he's on Substack. Brett Benat interviewed him a long time ago. He's uh, I think in the vein of sort of, he wrote a book on logic. Yeah. I've and, met Steve Patterson before. Yeah. He's a smart guy and yeah. I enjoy his work and I'm glad that Brett, he's been really championing his work lately. Brett has been, and they've been trying to get him on. So I'm glad he, they got him on because he has a lot of really good, takes that are worth checking out for those that are nerds like me <laughs> so but nerds it goes like to what we. you're saying in regards to yeah, yeah fair enough fair enough but it goes to what you're saying about the club of rome i mean like that was jay forrester we can see you still see it in the first publication um of limits to growth like that's what this and the all watched over by machines of love and grace the second episode um the use and abuse of vegetational concepts i think is the name of it something like that and like the point is like jay forrester sitting there is like this is the diagram i use look you know it's the pollution and here's it's a man in control over human beings yes and but it's it's ignoring so many variables that you just can't really quantify and then if you try to run chaos theory models as my buddy specialized in chaos theory as part of his master's education that's a story and so he um once you get a, once you get to so many variables, one, a discernible pattern can't be can't you can't actually identify a discernible pattern. You can just like run probabilistic models of patterns emerging, but that's kind of this it. is why I don't trust people who predict the future or weathermen. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. I'll go outside if I need to well see said. what the weather is. That's, you that's usually you wrapped it up in like two cents. That was perfect. Yes. All right. So uh, moving away from Jagret narrative and Klaus. Klaus, I have to get like some better Klaus impressions going. Uh, I want to go to the the story of how it's a comedy show. This is a comedy show. It doesn't have to be funny to be a comedy show. (laughs) A lot of legal protection comes with being a comedy show. And we, we do try to make light and be optimistic of uh, all this dark news we're covering right now. We got to cover a dark story. A big dark storm cloud is brewing over the hill over there. Mm. They got a, they got a morning show. It used to be called Rising, but right now it's kind of falling. And uh, Sagar and Crystal used to work over there. Then they got their own joint. And then uh, Ryan and whoever his co-host is, they just split. And now they're over at Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. And now there's been a firing, uh, an urgent termination. Katie Halpern, uh, former reporter, uh, weekly reporter, I guess, for The Hill, um, had a story. And the story was basically story non grata, wasn't welcome in that organization. Parent company got involved. She got terminated and uh, she speaks quite openly about why she got terminated. So I, what I want to do is I want to watch a real quick clip with uh, breaking points with Ryan Grimm running okay, the interview. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get the gist, the lay of the land. And then we're going to go watch the juicy part. What was the actual story that got censored and now gave another opportunity i think it's called breakthrough news is yep. actually hosting it right so the, the hill said we don't want the audience and breakthrough news is like we'll take that audience very th- you know thank you very much dinosaur media is showing its age and it's like they can't get over predispositions emotional reactions they are judging something prior to observing it 
I think Katie had a lot of great points and there's a lot more history behind that than maybe even she knows about. And we might, this, we might discuss a little bit of that history tonight. Sponsored so let's go APAC. ahead. I'm joking. Oh, I got, I got a couple books on the APAC too. <laughs> I don't think we'll have time to get to that. Yeah, that could I was going to go soft back to the 1800s. And <laughs> look at some, oh, that's much safer. Efforts. Actually, we can get into the beginnings of Zionism itself. Kind yeah. of lights, lightsman and yeah. So, um, yeah, let's go to uh, Breaking Points. Ryan Grimm now yeah. anchoring over there, and he's going to uh, allow Katie the platform to explain her position and what happened. And then we'll take a look at Breakthrough News, which was bold enough to host her report, which I think there's a lot of, lot of merit to it, and it needs to be discussed and not censored. That's all I'm saying. Let's check it out. Ryan, we're about to talk about an article you wrote, um, and I believe we have Katie Halper mm-hmm. joining us. Uh, this is a very, very interesting story. If you want to tee it up a bit, because you wrote about it over at The Intercept, right. that Cl- would be great. Close to home for us, too. So Katie, uh, Katie Halper, as, as probably most people here know, friend of this show, former friend of Rising, uh, on, on Monday was... Friend of the American people. Friend of the American yeah. people. <laughs> All the world's people. Uh, on Monday, she was uh, co-hosting Rising, as, as folks know. Uh, on, you do a radar on the, uh, from the left, a radar from the right, and then you do the rest of your, your segments. And then they post it and move on. If anybody watched Rising Monday, they noticed that there was only a radar from the right, not one from the left. Hmm. It turned out that she had done hers on a segment very similar to, it was on the same topic that we had done one uh, you know, very recently, uh, which was the controversy around Rashida Tlaib uh, saying that you can't be progressive and support Israel's apartheid government. Katie took actually an even deeper look at the question of whether Israel qualifies as an apartheid government than, than I did last week. Uh, in my, what do, we don't call them radars anymore, we call them monologues, sure. counterpoints, whatever. <laughs> we, talk, we talk at you. I call them and then we talk Ryan to each other. rants. Right, my rants. <laughs> and they, over at Rising, um, paused refused to run uh, the, the radar and just recently was she was told that uh, not only are they not going to uh, write it, that she's not welcome back. And so we're going to be joined by uh, Katie Halper to tell the, tell the story on this in just a moment. And we are, in fact, joined by friend of the show, Katie Halper now. Uh, Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And so, and so, Katie. Also, send send James, uh, producer James, a couple of links. Send him the, send him the video. Tell people where they can go and watch your your full vi- video that you've produced, and we'll and we'll make sure that we put that in the in the links uh, okay. at the bottom as well. Great. Yeah. Oh, we're not going to do a screening party right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, um, we don't quite have the tech capacity to do the screening party yet, but people can. Yeah. Uh, no. Um. Yeah. So it's it's right now. It's at Breakthrough News. Uh, their YouTube channel. It'll be okay. up at my channel shortly uh, as well. Uh, YouTube.com slash the Katie Halper show, but definitely check out Breakthrough News. I want to make sure that they get, you know, a lot of right. eyes and, and credit. Um, and then I did something at, at uh, YouTube.com slash the Katie Halper show as well, where I just kind of did a, a little explanation, not too detailed about um, what happened. Right. And so tell yeah. us, so you, sh- so Monday you showed up, you, you co-hosted the show in the studio. You submitted your radar. Uh, what happened next? So I, del- I, I mean, I had submitted it, I guess, the night before. Although, as you guys probably know, it's not, I mean, I, it's not even a submission. I mean, I, you just do it, and, and ostensibly, unless mm-hmm. you're reading probably like Nazi propaganda, that you just get the right to, to, 
to do it. But I, you know, people saw that it was called, you know, apartheid exists. You know, yes, Israel does have apartheid, something like that. Yes, apartheid exists in Israel. This was not a piece that you couldn't tell was about uh, Israeli apartheid. It was a piece that clearly made the argument that uh, there was an apartheid system in Israel. I delivered it. Uh, I think it went well. I like to think it went well. Uh, I delivered it. I did some more hosting. There was this interesting moment, which apparently isn't that unprecedented, where I, uh, you know, one of the co-hosts then read a pickup where he kind of reiterated something that Jonathan Greenblatt had said, Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League, of the ADL. Um, And... Then when I left, I had to run off to do another show because I had to do a Useful Idiots taping. And I got a call and it was very apologetic. And I, I, sa- I said this in my video and I want to make sure people know that the producers I was working with were really, were like nothing but supportive. They wanted, uh, I hope I don't get them fired by saying that they wanted their higher up to do the right thing. Maybe that no. makes you fireable in corporate media. I think that's a really important point, though, Katie, because I was going to ask you, and that was our experience. Like, mm-hmm. when we submitted radars, I never had one that was pushed back. I don't think you ever had no, one that was pushed back. Just goes right against. into the teleprompter. Yeah, Katie, yeah. like my, my you said, it's, and all. it's right. not really yeah. a submission. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and the producers know that this is part of what makes the show great. Um, that right. you have this perspective that, by the way, is like fairly mainstream left perspective. I mean, you have Amnesty International's, it's, it's basically Amnesty International's perspective. And then, Katie, what was your sense when you have everybody working on the show? Again, this was our experience. They're great. They understand this makes what the, this is right. what makes the show great. It got, it got moved up the chain of command. Um, right. And that's where the problem started to become very, very clear. What was your experience as that moved up the chain of right. command? So I was talking to producers like basically Monday through Wednesday about trying to figure out a way to make sure it would get on air. Um, again, they were really supportive. Uh, and then I got a, an email from Bob Q. Uh, sorry, I got a, um, a phone call from uh, Bob Cusack, who in no uncertain terms told me not gonna run it, uh, not gonna run the piece, which kind of shocked me just cause I wasn't expecting the phone call. And I just, uh, I don't know, I felt very chastised and, and kind of put in my place, which mm-hmm. is fine. I guess they have the right to do that. It kind of undermines their shtick of being uh, independent minded and not uh, having talking points or not having, I mean, their shtick is that you don't have to stay within this certain lane, right? Um, you're allowed to say things both on the left and on the right that you're not allowed to say in most corporate media. So anyway, I got the the call from him. And then I, uh, not to get too into like the nitty gritty of how this show works, but I was then, because I was told that you can't do Israel opinion pieces, but you could do segments. And I go on the show every week to do a segment. So I was like, okay, so can I do this for my segment tomorrow? And I, I asked the producers that, And then I was directed to an email that I got from an executive there who told me in no uncertain terms, um, I wasn't needed. My services were no longer needed. And that's Uh, an executive at News Nation, or or as at, not News Nation, at Nexstar, not The Hill. Okay, because The Hill is owned by this big media company, Nexstar, which recently, by the way, hired Chris Cuomo to host a show Mm -hmm. on News Nation. But but Katie was a a bridge too far for Nexstar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if only I had covered up my... uh, I'm an only child, so sadly I didn't have the chance to cover (laughs) up the crimes of my brother, 
uh, and, you know, commit a total, uh, uh, engage in a total uh, <laughs> conflict of interest and also, you know, probably grab a woman's ass at a party and uh, engage in sexual harassment. But no, if only I'd done that, I would have gotten my own show, I guess. But uh, yeah, so then I got that email, you know, which, and that really shocked me. I have right. to admit, I just didn't and think it was I can like, read that. Okay, sure, I, can, yeah. I can read it. I have it here. She, she writes, uh, we wanted to let you know that we will not be needing you to appear on Rising tomorrow a.m. Please feel free to submit any unpaid invoices for your work on Rising. We wish you all the best. And also, uh, Gary Waitman, who is the chief communications officer for Nextstar, he uh, declined to comment uh, for this story for The Intercept and also Presumably, he's declining to comment for this segment as well. Uh, so, yeah, so you got that email where you're saying, okay, well, uh, let's, do th let's do this as a segment. And then a top executive writes, actually, there's not going to be a segment. Send us all your invoices, and we wish you all the best. Right. And I've been doing this these segments for three years. I mean, mm -hmm. I did it when Crystal and Sagar were at the Hill, and I did it um, during this reiteration um, which you both were part of, obviously. And I really did. Like, the thing I appreciate about The Hill was that you could say things that were taboo in other places and other corporate news. And, you know, I knew that there were a lot of things that were said on that show that I disagreed with. But again, that was the shtick. It was like someone from the left, someone from the right. Um, and seeing that the kind of um, censorship and uh, cowardice, I would say, around issues... Uh, that exists in so much corporate media, seeing that it existed at the Hill, which kind of prides itself for being outside of that censorship was really depressing. And it felt, you know, I'd love to be on your show and be like, but I'm I'm gonna, you know, get back at these people or I'm gonna uh, persevere and do my own thing. And I am gonna, obviously you can find my stuff at youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show, at Useful Idiots, you can join my Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. But right now I'm just to be honest, I mean, it's just disappointing and it's saddening and it's infuriating and it's frustrating and you just feel very powerless. Now, the good thing, again, is like the silver lining is that I, I filmed this video with Breakthrough News, which is an actually independent, actually independent media. Um, and so because I was really determined to get this out there, like I did not like they could silence me at the hill and they could fire me. But I wanted to make sure that this argument got out there, which was, you know, basically I defend Rashida Tlaib from the typical attacks that she gets. I called out ADL for um I think just for saying that it's Israel's not an apartheid state. I mean, it's just, okay, you can say that, but unfortunately, not only does Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch say that uh, it's apartheid, not only do obviously uh, Palestinians say it's apartheid, not only obviously do Palestinian human rights organizations say that, but you have uh, the Israeli and their Israeli Jews, the Israeli Jews at Beth Selim say it's apartheid. And I say that, and I mean, this is another issue of kind of like the, the way you're given some protection when you're Jewish. Like I'll be called a self-loathing Jew as opposed to an anti-Semite. And self-loathing Jew, you mean that, look, you can get fired obviously over saying this, but there is some relative privilege you get within this conversation if you're Jewish. I think like I feel more comfortable talking about this stuff than probably other people do. And of course, this is a brings up a larger issue of how people are not allowed to report on this. I mean, obviously, Shireen Abu Akleh is someone who literally was killed because she was reporting on this issue. Um, and I'm not comparing myself at all. Like I'm, I'm like doing op-ed pieces from the comfort of my own home. She was there on, on the ground. 
And ironically, I was able to talk about Shireen, Shireen Abu Akleh at the Hill. That was one of the things I appreciated that I could talk about that. And I could, I even said that Israel lied, which I guess was controversial, but it's not because we know they lied because they said that they, they had foot, they released footage of, of a Palestinian shooting, pretending that that was Shireen Abu Akleh. And then it was revealed that wasn't, it was physically impossible from that alley from, uh, mm -hmm. for that bullet, you know? So again, that was so refreshing. Like I really appreciate that I could sit there wearing like corporate, media makeup and corporate media outfits and mm -hmm. have all the, the like high high production value that goes into corporate media and it, i think it's really powerful to hear someone say israel lied they killed shireen abu akleh it's very powerful to hear that and see that in that context as opposed to just you know me from my own home saying it and i really do think that there was a value in reaching people in that way and i think that that's what the Hill provides is a kind of air of professionalism that often, because the left doesn't have huge funders the way the right does, I mean, it, we don't see this as much on the left. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that when you push, you find or you discover the corporate third rails um, and you have to push to do it. Um, but this is like just such a good example of, of that. And, you know, I, Katie, like, again, I, I disagree with the argument, but it's a it's sure. a reasonable argument um, right. and it's within the bounds of regional reasonable debate. And when you weaponize identity politics to stifle it, which I'm assuming right. is what the Hill or I shouldn't even say the Hill. It sounds like it was Nexstar um, was was doing going in that direction then you're again this this is going to fester it's not going to heal anything it makes everything fester it makes everything worse um and it's it's a good example of like this is just profoundly profoundly sad and yeah, it i think and it's and ridiculous I, I just want to say also some of the people who i and i encourage people to watch the video which is again at breakthrough news and will then also be at the katie helper show but i quote Israeli politicians who say it's apartheid. I mean, an interesting thing we could do a whole show about this is that Israelis tend to be much more honest about this than um, Americans who are defending Israel. Uh, sometimes they're honest about it in a very kind of crude way. Like they don't care, like sure. Like you have Benny Morris, who was this historian who, not to get too into the weeds of Israeli historiography, but he's, he's someone, he's part of this movement called the New Historians of Israel. And they really, um, they challenged the Zionist narrative of, of history and of the founding of Israel. And he wrote this uh, essential book, this really seminal work called 1948, and it documents meticulously the ethnic cleansing that was uh, the basis of the foundation of Israel. And he, over the years, and he was, of course, persona non grata because of that book. And over the years, he's gotten much more conservative and very right-wing and hawkish. And people are like, Benny Morris, you documented that there was ethnic cleansing and now you want Israel to like bomb Iran. How do you reconcile those two things? And he was like, yeah, there was ethnic cleansing. And if there had been more ethnic cleansing, we wouldn't have a problem today, which is just like, I appreciate that honesty. Right. I find it a dis disturbing uh, idea that to wish that there had been more ethnic cleansing, but at least he admits the facts on the ground. Right, and high-profile figures too. The, the previous two prime ministers, Naftali yes. Bennett and Benjamin Netanyahu, both publicly said they're not for a two-state solution anymore. Like yeah. that's their that's their public posture. But if you and, if you said that in the United States, right. you're like that's outrageous. How could you possibly right. say exactly. that? But they're yeah. not like uh, now Yair Lapid is he still pretends he's supportive of a two-state solution right. and supports a Palestinian state. But because he kind of represents a more centrist center right uh, you know, flank of it. But back in the United States, if you said, I don't support a Palestinian state, I don't support a two-state solution, they'd be right. like, that's insane. You're crazy. Like, that's... Right, right. 
The, so the, yeah. the divorce between the two discourses is is fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I think it's because we see people in the United States struggle to to trying to fit in justifying Israel the way it exists and mm -hmm. their government with a more kind of human rights. It's just a bad look in the United States in a way that it's not at all in Israel because it's being run by an apartheid government. I mean, I speak. I think that speaks to how apartheid-ish it is that they don't even have to cover. And what's interesting is that people I quote in the video, I quote like literally a dozen, I think, combined uh, former Israeli officials and, and former Israeli prime ministers who either say we have apartheid or say we're going to have apartheid if the two-state solution collapses. There's clearly no viable two-state solution right now. Um, and so that, you know, definitionally they're, they're existing in an apartheid state. But that's the thing. And Emily, you brought up identity politics. What's so interesting is like, I'm Jewish. Yeah, and, that, and you invoked that Jews. right away. You invoked that in the monologue when I was reading the transcript. I was like, the, she starts by saying that you were disappointed as a Jewish person. Yeah. You know, I think I may have cut that out from the top. So uh, I had that originally. And then I think while I was reading it, I decided to put it later mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. So I should, you guys can update that or whatever. But um I put it in later and I point out, I say, I, as a, I'm Jewish, I was born in New York City. My family is from the, uh, well, we're fourth generation New Yorkers, not to brag, but my family before <laughs> that was from Eastern Europe. And I could today, I could today, right now, decide to move to Israel. I could get a job. I could build a home. I could w walk around freely. Uh, and so could Jonathan Green, Greenblatt from the ADL. So could Jake Tapper, who does the, the uh, segment about Rashida Tlaib that I react to. All of us would be fine. And someone like Rashida Tlaib can't even go back to her family home in what is now Israel. Right. They've barred her from visiting. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, again, I really, I'm Congress. just... I'm just really, it's, it's, you know, again, I'd like to be more, feel like more, um, yeah, I'm free. Now I can say whatever I want. And that's true. But, you know, it is depressing that you can't do that at certain places, especially places that kind of like to go against cancel culture, like exactly. to go against censorship. Like, you know, how much is that? How, how sincere are you in your opposition to censorship and cancel culture if you're perpetuating it yourself? Right. Yeah. If there's one next our property that they should know um, not to mess with in this sense, it would be rising. So it, it's yeah. just really, really sad. And, and I, I remember we, we had some of those issues and it was like, well, should we give this airtime? We're always air on the side of right. absolutely air it. Let the debate happen. Exactly. That's right. the thing. Jonathan Greenblatt can come on the hill and make his argument. Sure, I'd be happy on. to debate him or they could he do a debate. On, he can come on here. Come on. Yeah. 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 Open I mean, invitation. I, yeah, open viewers invitation. aren't stupid. Like yeah. we don't need to treat viewers like children. Like they're right. they're as smart as any executive at Nextstar. Yeah, <laughs> they can yeah. listen to a debate and come out with a, an opinion that's that's and reasonable. What, what also scares me and depresses me is that they were comfortable enough firing me for trying to get this story on air. Like they don't, they're not afraid that right. this would come out. That's what's so disturbing to me. Like, right. don't you just for the the optics of it not want to make it look like you fired someone for? making a video which made yep. the arguments that are made by Amnesty International Human Rights Watch, the Israeli Human Rights Organization, Beth Selim, and countless Israeli officials, uh, including former prime ministers. That might be the most demoralizing part, but they just it don't is. seem to care. 
and they're not so going to face any consequences. Like, I'm sure their donors are happy. I'm sure that whoever. And then another thing is, as a Jew, can I just be honest? As a Jew, I really don't like when things perpetuate the stereotype right. that, like, you can't talk about this because people are going to get mad and certain people control the media. And I'm not saying that's true at all. And you got like, the great thing is you got a bunch of Christian Zionists out there. So that's a great thing because then you can say, you can criticize. You can under, the, undermine the trope with the Christian Zionists. There yeah, right. Go. Exactly. But this is not a good look for anyone. I mean, and I, again, as a Jew, I'm really offended. What about my, like, my free speech as a Jewish person? I'm just not allowed to talk about this in a way that uh, goes against certain narratives. No, you're a bigot, Katie, in fact. I'm no. a self, I've internalized, I've internalized anti-Semitism is what it is. I'm go. a self-loathing Jew. And I also want to say that, like, I just want to give such a shout out to people like Ali Abu Nima at Electronic Intifada and the people at Mondo Weiss. And the people uh, on the ground in Palestine, in Israel, who are reporting on this stuff, who face so many challenges, and they do great work, and everyone should check that out. Yeah. Well, Katie, you know what, what you what you've done this week is not not without some personal sacrifice, even if it's not, you know, on on the scale of uh, you know some of the people who are on the ground in in Palestine. But we don't need to. I don't think we need to compare it. I think right. it was sure. courageous for you to come forward, mm-hmm. and uh, and we really appreciate you uh, coming on here to tell us tell us the story. Thank you, and happy uh, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, thank you so much. I know you guys celebrate. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Do we have, I mean, obviously the Hill didn't air it, but did she, I guess she can't air it. There's probably some sort of uh, contractual agreement. No, good. We have the, uh, we have it. Oh, we have it. I want to see that. Yeah, I was going to say, let's do that. Yeah. All right. Go for it. The following monologue is something that I wrote, delivered, and recorded at the Hill. It was then censored, and I was then canceled and fired. Representative Rashida Tlaib has been condemned by some over comments she made about Israel. Here's CNN's Jake Tapper reporting on what the Michigan Democrat said and the response it prompted. Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government. And we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive, except for Philistine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments, saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet, saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is right. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position. What's also outrageous is that the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt would claim that Israel is not an apartheid government. What's outrageous is that Jake Tapper would accept Greenblatt's judgment as the truth and not propaganda that needed to be pushed back against. 
I understand that Greenblatt and perhaps Tapper feel like Israel is not an apartheid state, but unfortunately for them, apartheid isn't about your feelings. It's about facts. In 1973, the UN defined the crime of apartheid as any inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. In 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined apartheid as inhumane acts of a character that are committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. These inhuman acts include, among others, infliction upon the members of a racial group or groups of serious bodily or mental harm by the infringement of their freedom or dignity or by subjecting them to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, by arbitrary arrest and illegal imprisonment of the members of a racial group or groups, any legislative measures and other measures calculated to prevent a racial group or groups from participation in the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country, and the deliberate creation of conditions preventing the full development of such a group or groups. In particular, by denying to members of a racial group or groups basic human rights and freedoms, including the right to leave and to return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. I'd encourage Jake Tapper to look this up sometime. Here are just a few examples of Israel's apartheid policies. The law of return of 1950 allows any Jew, which means anyone with one Jewish grandparent, the right to return to Israel, the right to move to Israel and automatically become citizens of Israel. It gives their spouses that right too, even if they're not Jewish, though if they're Palestinian, that's another issue entirely. Palestinians, of course, lack that right. The Israeli Citizenship Law of 1952 deprived Palestinian refugees and their descendants of legal status, the right to return, and all other rights in their homeland. It also defined Palestinians present in Israel as Israeli citizens without a nationality and group rights. These laws together obviously fit into the International Criminal Court's apartheid criteria. More recently, the nation-state law established that the fulfillment of the right of national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It demoted Arabic from an official language to a language with special status. It also stipulated the state views Jewish settlement as a national value and will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. These are just some of the reasons that human rights organizations have declared Israel an apartheid state. Al-Haq, Al-Mezin Center for Human Rights, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, Adamir, Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International have all documented Israeli apartheid policies. Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, has declared, the Israeli regime enacts an apartheid regime. B'Tselem divides the way Israeli apartheid works into four areas. Land. Israel works to Judaize the entire area, treating land as a resource chiefly meant to benefit the Jewish population. Since 1948, Israel has taken over 90% of the land within the Green Line and built hundreds of communities for the Jewish population. Citizenship. Jews living anywhere in the world, their children and grandchildren and their spouses are entitled to Israeli citizenship. In contrast, Palestinians cannot immigrate to Israeli-controlled areas even if they, their parents, or their grandparents were born and lived there. Israel makes it difficult for Palestinians who live in one of the units it controls to obtain status in another and has enacted legislation that prohibits granting Palestinians who marry Israelis status within the Green Line. Freedom of movement. 
Israeli citizens enjoy freedom of movement in the entire area controlled by Israel and may enter and leave the country freely. Palestinian subjects, on the other hand, require a special Israeli-issued permit to travel between the units and sometimes inside them, and exit abroad also requires Israeli approval. Political participation. Palestinian citizens of Israel may vote and run for office, but leading politicians consistently undermine the legitimacy of Palestinian political representatives. The roughly 5 million Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem, cannot participate in the political system that governs their lives and determines their future. I was born in New York City. My great-grandparents and the family before them were from Eastern Europe. I could move to Israel today, buy a house, get a job, travel around with no problem. So could Jake Tapper and Jonathan Greenblatt. But a Palestinian like Rashida Tlaib can't even visit her family home in what is now Israel. This demographic tension is recognized by Israeli officials and politicians who have described their own country as an apartheid state. Former Attorney General Michael Ben-Yair wrote in 2002, We established an apartheid regime in the occupied territories immediately following their capture. That oppressive regime exists to this day. Zahava Galon, former chair of Israel's Meretz Party, said in 2006, Israel was relegated to the level of an apartheid state. In 2007, Israel's former education minister, Shulamit Aloni, wrote, The state of Israel practices its own quite violent form of apartheid with the native Palestinian population. In 2008, former environment minister Yossi Sarid said, What acts like apartheid is run like apartheid and harasses like apartheid is not a duck, it is apartheid. In 2015, former Mossad chief Mayer Dagan said, President Benjamin Netanyahu's policies are leading to either a binational state or an apartheid state. Even Israel's prime ministers have used the A-word. In a recently published 1976 interview, assassinated Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said, If we don't want to get to apartheid, I don't think it's possible to contain over the long term a million and a half more Arabs inside a Jewish state. In 2007, yet another prime minister, Ehud Olmert, warned, if the day comes when the two-state solution collapses and we face a South African-style struggle for equal voting rights, then as soon as that happens, the state of Israel is finished. Prime Minister Ehud Barak said in 2010, as long as in this territory west of the Jordan River, there is only one political entity called Israel, it is going to be either non-Jewish or non-democratic. If this block of millions of Palestinians cannot vote, that will be an apartheid state. But there is no other standard more universally respected in defining apartheid, not the UN, not the international criminal courts, not human rights organizations, not Israeli prime ministers, than the people of South Africa who lived under the system of apartheid. After all, apartheid is an Afrikaans word. It means apartness. It was the official policy in South Africa from 1948 to 1994, allowing white South Africans in the minority to rule over and discriminate against the vast majority of black South Africans. The definitions from the United Nations and the International Criminal Court come out of their experiences. In 1997, Nelson Mandela said, the UN took a strong stand against apartheid and over the years an international consensus was built, which helped to bring an end to this iniquitous system. But we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. In 2013, Desmond Tutu recalled being struck by the similarities between what he experienced in apartheid South Africa and what he observed in Israel. I have visited the occupied Palestinian territories and have witnessed 
the humiliation of Palestinians at Israeli military checkpoints, the inhumanity that won't let ambulances reach the injured, farmers tend their land, or children attend school. This treatment is familiar to me and the many black South Africans who were corralled and harassed by the security forces of the apartheid government. Listen to South Africa's Minister for International Relations, Naledi Pandor, addressing the United States General Assembly just last week. While we work to address contemporary conflicts, we should not ignore long-standing conflicts, such as that of the people of Palestine, which has been on the United Nations agenda throughout the seven decades of existence of this organization. We cannot ignore the words of the former Israeli negotiator at the Oslo talks, Daniel Levy, who addressed the UN Security Council recently and referred to the increasingly weighty body of scholarly, legal, and public opinion that has designated Israel to be perpetrating apartheid in the territories under its control. To my fellow Jews, to my friends in the Democratic Party who want to support Israel and think of themselves as progressive, it's important to look at what Israeli law today does, what the lived experiences of Palestinians today means as defined under international law, and what our friends from South Africa have long pointed out. But we should not stop there. South Africans didn't just define apartheid, they dismantled it. Instead of attacking Rashida Tlaib for her candor, her critics should ask themselves how Israeli apartheid could be dismantled. What would a post-apartheid country look like? Lashana Tova. Apartheid. <clears throat> That's a interesting history of that, that word, right, Tony? Apartheid. It is an interesting history to that word, yes. Interesting. To break that down, actually. Well, it sounds like a problem. In South Africa, they had intellects like Steve Biko push yep. back against the, the despotism and the tyranny in South Africa. And Mandela later came along, made a successful struggle into freedom after he went to prison for a long time. And some people think he died in prison because they don't pay attention. Didn't anyway, you interview Chengi Aragavan, who was a friend of Steve Biko's and was also... Um, he was a yeah, political went, prisoner at that time. They yeah, they had gone to school. So my friend Chengia uh is still alive. He lives in is South Africa now. Good for him. Now. Good for yeah, him. He's oh, still did he, alive. he moved? Okay. I he's, remember Chengia quite well. Um he was a political prisoner in South Africa. He's from Indian extraction. Biko was also a political prisoner in South Africa, uh, famous for becoming the the leader of the and creator of the black consciousness movement. Uh he was killed, Biko was, by <clears throat> British intelligence communities. And there's a great movie about such a tragic story. At least there's a narrative, a great narrative about it with Kevin Klein. Uh, it's called cry freedom Cry freedom by Richard that. Attenborough, brother of David Attenborough, I believe. And they show you that at the end, how British intelligence, I don't want to spoil it for you, but the guy was tortured and murdered m kind of like Kiki Camarena. Yeah. Anyway, Anglo American, intelligence stories aside i've got these books for you palestinians i want to let you know 
There's this book by Gene Sharp. He's helped the CIA overthrow countries around the world with MI6. The template, the conceptual framework for liberation is available. I don't know if you guys have Amazon, probably not, but uh, that could be useful in that struggle. The Palestinian-Israeli issue has been an issue for, well, since the creation of Israel, really. Uh, this is the Trilateral Commission's treatment on it from 1990. Here you can see inside it was commissioned by this report. It was prepared for the Trilateral Commission and is released under its auspices. Now, what you need to know is this report uh, gave a couple different scenarios for peace. And spoiler alert, they haven't reached peace yet, really. They got kind of close under Trump and what he was doing. But that, I think that just still, it doesn't address some of the root causes. Now, right. the Trilateral Commission that published this pamphlet in 1990 was founded by David Rockefeller and his good friends, Zbigniew Brzezinski. And they chose a guy named Jimmy Carter as president. And that's factual and actual. We can get to the reference for that if anyone needs it. But I wanted to point out that Trilateral Commission partner, Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States, wrote this little treatise, Palestine, peace, not apartheid. So I'm not saying it's apartheid. I'm just saying this is the title of Jimmy Carter's book. I make no judgment on the situation. It, I mean, it looks like slavery, but who am I? I've never been there. I haven't seen it for real. Jimmy Carter, though, he used this word which has a very polarizing connotation back at the early part of this century. Now, this book was published, I believe, in 2006 by Simon & Schuster. Anyone know where they are located? Hmm. Rockefeller Center, look at that. 2006 by Jimmy Carter, who was you know, hired for president by David Rockefeller. So it's good. He's got connections with the publisher, You know, just stay in the same building, do business all the time. But seriously, uh, peace, not apartheid is an idea set forth by Jimmy Carter. Now, we have and, to ask and, the question. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, because what I'm going to say uh, is more, more long-winded. Okay, I was just going to say, let's not forget that I think it was a national security advisor, Sibigny Brzezinski, um, or essentially head of state, one of the two, um, Department of, <clears throat> um, State Department. Um, I think it's national security advisor under Carter. But the point is, he was. that's and when... He, he, they launched Operation Cyclone. Exactly. With and when Osama they started bin Laden and they started right. working with the Soviet, they started working with the Afghan exactly forces before the Soviets invaded. They Correct. did it on July 4th, 1979. Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor. It's the whole beginning of who killed John O'Neill. And then you which, also which have the, vil beginning of the vilification. Will help you. The vilification of extremists. Um, uh, Muslim groups, which like that goes back earlier to I uh, forget the we've played a number of times on the show. You interviewed him, talked about the Muslim brother John Loftus, the, the the Muslim Brotherhood, and the essentially really MI6 and the CIA sort of building up these hyper nationalistic terroristic organizations in order to and a sort of Operation Gladio sort of analogy to um, be able to divide and conquer much of the Middle East largely for resources. So you let's know, not forget about that. Like there's the same Brzezinski, or excuse me, not the same Brzezinski, the same Carter that then writes a book that's published, what, in 2006 by Simon Schuster that details. So he had, at one point, my point is the contradictions are so overwhelming, right? The National Security Advisor Brzezinski setting up this these these terrorist cells, essentially, right, by giving them the, their ideology, by supplying them with weapons to be a hedge, a proxy force against the potential invading Soviets. And then we later use that Al-Qaeda, that database, which was set up, the Mujahideen under Operation Cyclone in like 1979 by Brzezinski, 
as the boogeyman for 9-11. I mean, how convenient. Yet he then writes about apartheid. I, I just, the, it's, it's coincidence, Tony. Holy You're thinking shit. too much about it, man. You One thing even I have to it. say, though. Just like, put it aside. Your brain sounds like it's hurting right now. Put it out. It of is memory. hurting, bro. It's hurting really badly. I'll say this is the last point, and then you get to your point. Is, um, everything that she identified in her presentation, which was fantastic, by the way, major uh, world leaders, like uh, the ethos of the individuals speaking are well credentialed and substantial. Like these aren't, uh, you know, the ravings of some sort of like uh, conspiracy theory. These are actually pointing out human rights abuses of that according to their to own doctrine. What she was showing. Right. Like it's I not think the that, hate would come in the mind of the viewers who assigned it. And as that hateful. got, ta- that got taken down. Like the, the sources she used are repu- more than reputable enough in the international community, as far as an ethos standpoint of having substance and cloud. And yet that, that presentation by her, by Katie got taken down. That s- speaks volumes and is deafening. What happens if she pushes back? That'd be an interesting discovery in that case. Yeah. What, what were the emails <laughs> yeah, on so their side that said, what, get rid of her, get her out of here. We got, oh, you know, man. yeah. Good point. Right, so, uh, yeah, what we learned from that story is if you don't have your bread leavening agent on the right or the left, you might have middle yeast. We're going to move on <laughs> to this. Is, uh, this is top secret. This is not published. So don't ask me when you can get it. It or hurts on. It's still in the works. But uh, in my outline for my Rothschild series of books, I had some uh, origins of Zionism. That seemed to be one of the political issues they were talking about in there, right? And uh, I also had some information on the proto-colonization of Palestine, because I think we need to have some context on what she was talking about. There was very limited to things that went on in the 20th century and what's going on over there. As far as a religious war goes back further than that. The vineyards started in the 19th century, from my understanding, under the Roth. I mean, there's a whole bunch here. Yes. So uh, the vineyards did start in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s that were all being funded by the Rothschilds. That's easy information because that's all Eretz Israel movement in the first and second and third Aliyahs Mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1800s. Before I get to this, in the chronological timeline, I just dropped in the uh, control room chat for the episode, uh, there's some graphics. So the first graphic I'd like is the Columbia Star so Columbia Star is a newspaper back in the day. Uh, things like Google Books also have books from a long time ago. In this case, they would take all the newspapers for the year and they would make a book out of it. And that book would go into libraries. And then later it was microfiched and later it was digitized. And now you can get it on Google Books. So um, I can't see it on screen though. Can you guys uh, spotlight me? Yeah, I just I have to unpin that. you. Oh, cool. And then, <clears throat> so what you're seeing here is I'm going to offer exhibit one. This is a newspaper uh, periodical that existed back in the time of like 1829, I think is the first example. The second example is going to come from 1835, and there might be one from 1833 in there as well. These are three references to Rothschild-claimed colonization efforts in the Middle East, and these are not my claims. These are made, uh, as you can see on screen, those are made by uh, people at Google. The conspiracy artists over at Google made up that book, the Columbia star and all the stories in it, or you could take it as it's a reflection of history that occurred in the United States. Now the claim in the article, I'm not saying whether or not the claim is true, false. Otherwise, I'm just stating on the record, this exhibit existed back then. It indicated these words, 
We're not going to go for whether those words were true or false, because when you look at them over time, I think time tells you whether or not there was some veracity to those reports or were they, uh, did they have a magic eight ball? Did they have a, a crystal ball? Did they have a screen glass? Were they sniffing vapors like the Oracle of Delphi? Were they predicting the future or were they going on some reports, albeit speculative, maybe, maybe rumor, innuendo, but if they end up coming true over a period of time that spans over a hundred years and many different events, you have to say, maybe this is one of the first indicators that they had a goal to you know, work with the uh, Turkish Sultan and acquire themselves some Palestine. And maybe if that didn't work later, they would say, hey, Britain, you're now in control of Palestine. Let's cut a deal. And, that's and they weren't the in control, right? They weren't even in control of Palestine at the time. It was all pending what would happen. Groups. Right. It, all, it was all pending what would happen based on the outcome of World War I. I mean, how bold is that move with the Balfour Declaration? And then we had to get, of course, America gets involved. You have the sinking of the Lusitania, one of the first false flags of the 20th century, and the rest is history. Well, there's a couple more false flags now that you say that, but let's go back to that graphic. So the Columbia Star was the first one. Now let's go to uh, the entry inside the Columbia Star. Let's see if we can find the date and uh, get to the gist. And I'm going to look for this other book I need over here. Does the books go? I'm not seeing a year. I see uh, November 25th noted down here. Oh, okay, wait, so Cr I think Christian Almanac for 1830. Okay, I mean, so um, it's probably going to span a whole year. So somewhere it'll say like 1929, 1930, or something like that. So we make the text a little bigger. If not, it's okay. It's just a little well, small. And I can uh, actually, okay. uh, or you can let me see if I can find these links on my end and I can do it on a browser yeah. instead of working from a JPEG. Right. Are we that? Uh, I show? see. I got you. I got, it's on a JPEG. I'm sorry, LD. I got you. No, I got it right here. Um, okay. Boom. 1829 Baron Rothschild to purchase all Palestine. So I have a URL. I could pop the URL. Let's just go to, uh, the attachment, open it in a browser. Let me push the browser button. Let me reconnect the browser because I wasn't planning on doing that, but I'll do it for you because you guys are special. Here's Google Books. And the quote was on page 352. Let's see if it'll, oh, wrong screen. And here's that page we were just looking at. And let's see if I can zoom in on here. Oh, did I lose it? Oh, sorry. I'm going to have to go back to that because I lost uh, the search in there. Let me bring it back up. Very interesting. Shows a near century long uh, collusion by the, Rock or, me, by the Rothschild family in order to gain a foothold in the Middle East as far as uh, the Zionist ideal. Which, you know, Sun and I were talking in the background while that was playing. I'm like, that's really born out of the national sentiments of the 17th century and the messianic movement with the sort of rediscovery of the Kabbalistic tradition, Zabatai Sevi, which went into him. And then with Hegelianism and the German, uh, with German idealism and Hegel, you have this sort of uh, national ethno state wrapped up in his dialectic, this sort of self determination, manifest destiny. I talked about it with the root race theory on the town hall. It's no surprise that you get all these sort of ethnic deterministic uh, viewpoints and states attempting to pop up in the 18th, really the 19th century. 
alongside na- nation states. So the the result is, uh, it is stated that Baron Rothschild, the celebrated London Jewish banker, is about to purchase all Palestine and the Holy Land, including Jerusalem, as a kingdom for the Jews, over whom he is uh, to be king. So I would naturally dismiss that as like racist speculation and anti-Semitism, except there's a bunch of these notices in these newspapers in the years right before they start to set up vineyards and proto-colonization in the late 1800s. So there's another one here. Let's see get out of that one. Let's go back to the history blueprint. Uh, there's a 19 or 1835 1829, 1841, 1835. Here it is. Oh, I got to go over the screen to click that. Damn it. So good. I mean, this goes alongside the, the sort of Matt Errett, when he joined our town hall, talked about a British agent in the 19th century who uh, sort of instantiated this new form of Protestantism. Young Earth creationism was sort of a big thing back then. And I can't help but wonder if this, the, taking the Bible very literally instead of contextually, if that was also planned in order to build up or be at least used as a dialectic to help um, galvanize the Christian audience to support um, a Jewish state since it's ordained in the Old Testament as part of the covenant with God. All right, so here's another one. Uh, 1835, Rothschild in Palestine. Very similar. A couple years later, let's uh, press this button, get back over here. Let's see. Order relevance by pages. Let's see what pages it's meant. There's 11 mentions in here. And the one we looked for was this quote. And there are references. So first, when you try to look up this quote, for instance, right? Because this is a key quote. You can you can easily find it in the text. You're going to see on screen, here's a book that somebody wrote and it has that quote, okay? Here's another quote and these are not reputable books. So it wants you right. to go away. That's Google's right. telling you this is crazy. Don't look at it. But if you scroll down to here, oh, it's involved in anti-Semitism. Okay. If you read here hmm. by Neil Ferguson, we not talked sure. about him about an hour ago, right? The sure. House of Rothschild, Volume 1, Money's Prophets. Baron Rothschild, the head of the house, is the true king of Judah, the prince of captivity, the Messiah so long long looked for by this extraordinary people. He holds the keys of peace, war, blessing, or cursing. And it talks about, in that article, colonization in Palestine. I wonder what his reference so, would be. Even like, though it's in Bloodlines of the Illuminati, with... right? Because you'd say, sure. oh, this quote came from this book. It's garbage. But it's also script? in this book because it's a real quote. It's just been misappropriated well, or, or appropriated by some people other than. Well, the, the bigger question is, I wonder what footnote is associated with uh, uh, Neil Ferguson's book. Well, this is where it comes from. Ferguson took go. it from this book and I have this go. book upstairs. The rise Don't make French me go up and get it. Found yeah. inside page 105, Baron Rothschild, the head of the new house, the true king of Judah, the prince of captivity, right? So that's in Baron James's fucking memoirs, dude. There you go. Okay. Now these go. now these other studies, I don't know what's in these other books that use that quote or what their angle is, but it's a real quote written by a real guy who has real memoirs and has people from Harvard and Oxford like Neil Ferguson writing a two-volume set. Now, fortunately, I think I'm going to have more than a two-volume set because I got a more comprehensive look into this thing, but uh, Ferguson did some good work. It's worth reading. Oh, yeah. I don't agree with him on everything. And I think there's a lot of stuff in there that needs to be like, a lot of fluff. He, 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 he has a lot of great lot of stories stuff. that aren't referenced, but you can find these things in the archives. If you look, that's the point to be more educated. Now, I think there's a couple more of those examples. Let's see, LD, do you have another one? 
that I posted in the chat. I do. Let's see what that looks like. We'll find. You've got the Niles Weekly Register. All right. What? Yeah. Uh, does do you have what go. year it was? Uh, from September Could, 1835 to March 1836. Okay. Can you read that quote? Is it big enough on screen or do you need me to pull up? Uh, this is like a title page, but um, well, let's see. Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is different page. Oh, okay. So this is November 28, 1829. Here, let me spotlight it for you. Um, okay. Yeah, okay, so we, now the interesting thing about this newspaper is this paper exists, and I know the person who now owns it because he bought it right before I was saving some money back then to get it. And so... Um, you know, either one of you guys can read it out. There's the actual artifact and this is at newspapers.com, right? What's the, I have the sources on all these pictures that I made. Uh, so there's a source that's an archive for newspapers. The newspaper exists. I know it's a real artifact because I know the person who bought it. And there is a translation that we can read from 1829 that affects the Middle East situation with the Palestinian apartheid today. So All right, let's no, check it out. Yeah, go ahead, 28th, 1829, the Niles Weekly Register, Baltimore. One of the articles within is headed, quote, uh, Jerusalem, well, Jerusalem with the text beginning, quote, there is a report that the Rothschilds have purchased Jerusalem. We see nothing improbable that in the pecuniary distress of the Sultan, uh, end quote, with more and ending with, quote, the Sultan is in great difficulty Baron Rothschild was proceeding to Constantinople, and a second rebuilding of the temple is not among the most strange things expected in these strange times by some of the Jews. End quote. Among the other reports in this issue are the Washington Monument, locomotive carriages, and two articles headed as such Texas, Mexico, total abolition of slavery. This issue is complete in 16 pages, measures about six and a half by 10 inches with various foxing, generally in nice condition. This small size newspaper began in 1811 and was a prime source for national political news for the first half of the 19th century. As noted in Wikipedia, quote, Niles edited and published the Weekly Register until 1836, making it into one of the most widely circulated magazines in the United States and himself into one of the most influential journalists of his day. Devoted primarily to politics, Niles Weekly Register is considered an important source for the history of the period. End quote. Okay, so either the people running Niles Weekly Register, they're very creative, inventive, uh, fiction-writing people, and they said the Turkish sultan's out of money, and so who yeah, does he get money from? Right, Lord Rothschild, yeah. right? Pecuniary distresses means the dude's broke and he needs broke, hooked up. Yeah. And then you ask the question, the Rothschild family in question with this situation, what were they doing around 1828, 1829? They had just saved the Bank of England. Bank of England and they had Napoleon. just bought the Royal Mint the year before. So they probably have enough money to like take over whatever the Turkish Sultan's got going on. It's nice when you can finance both sides like that. Which would be an interesting part of history, but that's not what we're here to learn. So those, there's 1829, 1835. Let's call that rumors of future Rothschild colonization of Palestine. But there's no evidence of them doing that yet. There's just evidence of claims being made at that time, right? Now, 
1861, Moses Hess writes yeah. uh, Rome and Jerusalem, the last nationalist question. And he's like, hey, we should get a state together and we should get the Freemasons. And these guys have already infiltrated these lodges and we should get these other groups together and make this happen. But nobody really reads that too much. And he doesn't get credit for what Kime Beitzman and uh, other people then take credit It's like for, the St. Paul. Right? He was like, yeah, they essentially Kime Weitzman's like the St. Paul too. Uh, but by the Moses time, has, yeah. Moses by has the, his ideology. Right. So by, so by 1896, 30, 35 years after the publication of Roman Jerusalem by Moses Hess, another European author named Theodor Herzl wrote a book about Jewish nationalism with respect to Palestine titled the Der Judenstaat, which translates to the Jewish state with the subtitle of proposal for a modern solution for the Jewish question. Real quick. So this, is there this any is 1896, way to make, right? Make that Can I little, make it bigger? Yeah. yeah. It's just a little tough. The to print's read a little faint people. too. I found yeah, these, uh, these are early draft prints that I found in the other that's, studio when I was cleaning up today, but I thought these are, uh, so it's just uh, um just for the people viewing, but yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So uh Der Judenstadt, the Jewish state, was originally intended as quote, addressed to the Rothschilds. Now there's a footnote for that. That's footnote 155. <clears throat> we go down here at the bottom because I actually put the footnotes at the bottom of the page. Uh Bain, 1956, Territor Herzl, a biography. Uh Der Judenstadt, the Juden State. Yeah. So there's Page 40, right there, you can go read it. So the way I write my book is that I give you the footnote and then I give it to you at the bottom of the, bottom of the page. And if you don't think that's correct or accurate, don't read the next page. You got it out on every page of the book. This is just, it's not my opinion. These are just collections of facts that go together. Herzl was opposed to the strategy of settlement over time and argued for improved colonization. And there's quotes about that. World Zionist Organization, uh, was to facilitate Palestine, not unlike how Cecil Rhodes helped to colonize South Africa. So they are actually fans. Like they write letters back and forth. How do you set up apartheid basically? Cause they didn't have that word back then. Wasn't branded yet. In, uh, <clears throat> let's see. Crazy to think about that way. The Boer War had already taken place. They've already innovated the uh, concentration camp system. That is button. the British. There we go. That's better for you guys. Inside huh? the Belgians and the Dutch. Now, there was, uh, let's see, History of the Middle East had some good quotes, but let me look for, there's Mark Twain on the plan of Theodore mm -hmm. Herzl and company, right? I'm not going to yeah. read it out loud, but you can look it up. Zionist Federation of Great Britain, British Israelism, this is where they start to blend the agendas. This is the Federation of Great Britain underpinned the belief that the main goal of Zionism is Aliyah, having everybody move there right? To Palestine. Yeah. This is before the Balfour declaration. This is before Hitler ran camps and want, you know, so like a lot of what people understand as the state of Israel and over half out, a century before right, at the very right. least, that's just the point I'm making. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, there's a whole bunch more on that, but that's right. That's not the whole point of the show. We just wanted to demonstrate that there is more to this conversation to be learned than most people are considering. And the reason that the peace is not solved over there is because the context of what's causing it is outside of the picture of what people are allowed to debate or even consider or research or speculate upon. So it's not supposed to be solved. This is supposed to be a dialectic in order for that uh, divide and conquer endlessly. Like that's the way it was set up. It was literally set up to be that. 
Like, and from the it's very like, beginning, Tony, it's Tony, we are sitting in the audience and we're like, we should, you know, the boxers are fighting in the ring and everything's going as they want it to. And we're like, we wish we, we could find a way to get them to stop fighting. It looked like it would be a lot cooler if they, you know, but we, yeah. we missed that. The point of all this is they want the two box, two, two dogs in there to fight because that's how they profit. They gain power from the loss of others. That's right. They want, they want people distracted and divided and not be able to look at things honestly and say, you know what? Maybe there is more reason to listen to this other side that you think is very inhumane. And what did Churchill call the Palestinians? Anyway, he's yeah. got some quotes. He I does. I do have a section in this Rothschild book about the Rothschilds and Churchill, though. But we don't. Have, we don't have time for that. You know, I'll just say. Oh, I forget about you, Lawrence. You, you like ahead. to say that uh, history. History often rhymes, doesn't repeat. But you know, the Boers. That's also that, Mark Twain. That was an Afrikaans word for farmer, attributed to the Dutch. Which you know, so there. That dichotomy, or, or the sorry, the dialectic between the food producers and the others was sort of played up in that instance. It's kind of happening again in our time. And let's not forget about the British sympathies to Arabia or, um, um, uh, my guess is long before Palestinian, but sort of Arab, uh, peoples, well, the Saudis, that T, like yeah. T.E. Lawrence, particularly, yep. you know, we think about, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and like, let's not also forget that that region is made up of Coptic Christians that make up like uh, 15 to 20%, if not more of the population, um, secular Arabs, as well as, as Muslims. Like it's a mixture of many different people and Jews that actually had preexisted there as well. Um, not in large numbers. So it was a, it was a sort of ironically a multicultural pot before the multiculturalism took over from a religio, religio ethno State. The natural multiculturalism of that natural area multiculturalism. did not lead to this conflict, and the artificial multiculturalization, uh, multiculturalization of that area has definitely 100% led to what's going on there now. Done or um, sort of uh, manifest by the belligerent actions of a hegemonic force that is itself the opposite of that in regards to its ethno-religio state. Right. In regards to what, of course, Judaism is a problem. Gilad Otzman, the wondering who, you know, Israel today encourages you to take a 23andMe test. Uh, I remember researching this many, many years ago uh, in regards to making sure you can identify as Levantine or Sephardic or Ashkenazi Judy, uh, Jew. I think in this case, they probably want some form of uh, Semitic bloodline, but they seem to support anyone. So it's a very strange situation. At one time, they're claiming ethnic heritage at the other time they're saying no it's a religion that you can convert to and people have throughout history hence why there are jews from the iberian peninsula or jews from eastern europe which would be Ashkenazism, or you know levantine which would be the levant which would be semitic jews i mean it's a mess in other words they're they're trying to justify an ethno state essentially a religious ethno state well the they same. went from it's ridiculous you know, these news articles in the 1800s to the late 1800s where they start to uh try to do farming and do some winery type situations they start actually buying land in the early 1900s right yeah by the time you get to the mid 1900s just before they become a state uh there's some very extreme activity intifadas happen all of a sudden they blame the intifadas on extremism how convenient so this is a, a book by the name of irgun and i'll just read from the back title here here we go get it on here I get Perfect. it all on the screen. Of course. 
almost right there. Let's see. Yeah, yeah good. Uh, in 1925, Zev Jabotinsky founded the Revisionist Zionism Organization, whose secular right-wing ideology would lead to the formation of the Irgun and ultimately of the Likud party. Well, that's interesting because they influenced the neocons. So now you have a limit lineage idea of the evolution and history of their ideas over time. Commencing operations in the British Mandate of Palestine in 1931, Irgun adopted a mainly guarding role while facilitating the ongoing immigration of Jews into Palestine. In 1936, Irgun guerrillas started attacking Arab targets. The British White Paper of 1939 rejected the establishment of a Jewish nation, and as a direct consequence, Irgun insurgents started targeting the British. Now, it's interesting because the 1917 Balfour Declaration promised them that land. And then in 1939, right. they're like, not so much. Not so, not yet. We need some more. Is that on the Neville Chamberlain? Sales. Or that would have been um, Churchill at this point. Sorry. Mm. The authorities began executing captured Irgun operatives found guilty of terrorism. So the British were, you know, killing people uh, for a penalty to discourage them, right? While deporting hundreds to internment camps overseas. As details of Jewish genocide, the Holocaust emerged, Irgun declared war on the British in Palestine. Acts of infrastructural sabotage gave way to the bombing of buildings and police stations, the worst being the bombing of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, the hub of British operations and administration, on July 22, 1946, killing 91 freedom fighters or terrorists i'm sorry killing 91 freedom fighters or terrorists irgun was only dissolved when the independent jewish state of israel was born on 14 may 1948 this is their story now that's interesting and this is the story of the king david hotel july 22nd 1946 the attack on jerusalem's king david hotel where a lot of uh british nationalists were but also many jews were so that shows that they have a history, this group of freedom fighters, they had a history of fighting so hard against the British that they're even willing to kill, I don't know, maybe 90 or 100 of their own people. Maybe that's an extreme. Maybe there was only 90 people killed, but there was a, a, a substantial portion that were of their own faith. Correct. Which shows like they got some Kaiser Soze like will, right? That's like, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's not of course, good. It's, uh, it's not unlike how America fought against the British a long time ago. So there is that parallel. Maybe. I mean, I don't know what the reports of the Boston Tea Party were, but I assume some people got hurt there as well. Right. Yeah. And, and then the massacre that happened not to not be as a direct I always result say of that. But... Is admission of intellectual bankruptcy, but it seems to be a theme throughout history, especially when you uh, study political statecraft. And obviously, there's the intifada, as I mentioned, first Palestinian intifada. Uh, yeah, this goes back to right. So on one side, you've got Aliyah. Right, you've got an Aliyah to move to the territory. You got an intifada to fight them off. British uh, and the arms dealers and the bankers sit back and have a happy day. And also helps to build the narrative that they need for the justific supposed justification of the Jewish state. Well, which is how the British were there to have a mandate in the first place. There was a justification for occupation. Not unlike what El Paul Bremer and those cats did in Iraq. That's right. After 9-11. That's exactly right. 
History doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. I think that's the Mark Twainism. Mark Twain that we're quote, looking yeah. for. All right, so uh, good reporting on uh, the Katie Halper story, and there's more to be learned about peace in the Middle East. I don't think people should be afraid to say it's apartheid. You just heard in her report all those credible sources for that perspective. That's what I'm saying. It's insane. Like that got taken down. The ADL cited. They didn't mention APAC. Right? Let's not forget the anti-BDS laws. Come on. Yeah, in I, New York I, City. I, I think mean, that's the fact that they characterized that whole group as three letters. That was the first parlor trick they did to discredit it, right? Because BDS sounds like BDSM or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's in the sure. So bondage and yeah, yeah, I got you. I think it's off the people's radar. If you ask people what BDS is across America, they'd be like, is that some new illness? They don't know. They have heard about Palestinian conflict before and these things going on, like to remove it and just give it like three letters, I think is disingenuous to like the whole campaign that's been yeah, it's, under marketed and under, like people are unaware of it. And then it got banned anyway. So even if they had done a better job marketing, it got banned anyway. You're not allowed to talk about it or participate. And, right. Yeah. You're not allowed to do right. business in New York um, unless you sign the, this anti-BDS sort of agreement, which is that uh, they you have to apoy, oppose boycotts of Israel. You cannot badmouth Israel. The name comes from the BDS movement, which calls for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions against Israel to pressure Israel to meet what it describes as Israelis. Is, excuse me, Israel's obligations under international law. Anti-BDS laws are designed to make it difficult for people and organizations to participate in boycotts of Israel. While anti-BDS resolutions are symbolic and non-binding parliamentary condemnations, either boycotts of Israel or of BDS itself. Can I boycott Palestinian businesses? Oh, that's right. They're not allowed to have them. They're not allowed yeah. to even have the materials to, to a problem, build a business then, right? in the first place, as Gabor Monte pointed out. When so it he sounds equal and fair to me. I say we move on. There's nothing more to see there. Nothing to see at all. I'm sure that topic's going to take care of itself. All the brilliant rocket scientists they've had working on it for the past 70 years. I'm sure it'll just work itself out without more smart people looking at what actually happened and being unafraid of talking about uh, the facts of life. I heard somewhere that facts are facts. That's a claim. Uh, I don't know if it's true. <laughs> it's definitely oh. not a speech from 1961 oh. Willard Hotel. I just by found anybody the book too, who might have been the at the Paris Peace Conference and heard the Zionist uh, delegation dealing uh, with Alan Dulles and those guys. Sure, there's no connection to that type of history. Not at all. I'm not going to say anything more there because that could get us in a lot of trouble. I think we should move on. Benjamin Friedman, facts or facts? Check it out. I can get off. Oh, that's not what I'm talking about. That that's touchy. Okay, never mind. That's touchy. You can't talk about that book. You got me looking for other books. Can't talk about that book, Tony. Yeah, I'm sorry. It is a great speech, though. It's probably still on YouTube somewhere. I mean, well, it's preserved in places I can't mention. He's a Jewish sure. merchant from New York City who knew the people that were rigging the game at Versailles Conference, and he had a movement of consciousness where he shared as a whistleblower the ongoings from something that happened at that point 40 years before You know, he's talking about it. So he waited he, 40 years, and, he and he's lived, like, hey, yeah. I mean, he lived during the Weimar and early Nazi regimes, if I remember correctly, then he, he owned the Woodbury Soap Company. That's right. He immigrated yeah. to the United States and became a Christian, oddly enough. Mm. And also, uh, another great uh, Jewish participant in American freedom is Haim Solomon. 
Mm. Go back and check out yeah, uh, Revolutionary that. War funding. And I looked into that. I was like, I bet he was funded by the Rothschilds. And no, I don't think he was. I think he was legit. And it's pretty much as we found out about it. Yeah. So there you have it. Not everything's Rothschild Good connected. Mention. Good mention. Though they've been around for 200 plus years. And a lot of the major things, like when they talked about the Suez Canal, I'm like, I remember when Disraeli asked his buddy Rothschild if they could get funding and they get the canal, you know? That's right. But now that doesn't play into Middle East politics at all, that canal. So I'm glad that like you don't need to know any of that history that I spent all these years reading all their books. It's just a waste of time. We should just go back to the coincidence game. And it's almost like you don't need to drink drink when it's a you coincidence. You don't have to think about it, dude. That's right. Oh, Thank oh you, yeah. Ethan. Yeah. Now it's getting there. Well done. Ethan says take it to the limit one more time. Take it. That's right. That's right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Now, now it's getting live. All right. So, um, we should record the other stories. With <laughs> some music in the background that makes like oh, so, so juicy. Oh, juicy. Got the porno fucking jazz going. So, yeah. yeah, yeah where so do we want to go next? Well, it sounds like Tony wants to go like uh, OnlyFans or Pornhub. No, no. Comments no, like that. Law. He's oh, like boy. pointing out the absurdity of it. It's so hilarious. All right. I got, uh, there's other books to cover from this week as well. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll tell you real quick. This is, this is an interesting one. I didn't read it yet. So this is a good one. It's called Republic of Lies, Ameri- American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. Now, I got this book because I was listening to uh, Norm Pattis do some cross-examination. And he said, did you read this book, Republic of Lies? And I'd never heard of it, so I went. I bought a copy. In fact, I bought two copies because they're only like three bucks. I was like, "Why is it so cheap?" And I figured it must be an old book. But in fact, this is a recent book, Tony. I don't know why they have it out there so cheap. People don't want to buy it. It's uh, twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Now the thing, the thing that caught me was this book came in the mail. The other one, you know, they came all together. I had just finished James Corbett's three part al qaeda series and i read through the notes and stuff and there's this one quote and i took a screenshot of it and it's from jonathan jonathan swift now it's over here on this al qaeda documentary of james corbett and then i opened this book and the first quote inside is the same quote and i thought what a wide range of play this quote has well, what is the quote because there's a quote by jonathan swift Remember falsehood that- flies and the truth comes limping after it so that when men come to be undeceived it is too late. Mm. You know, the, do you remember, I forget, it was seemed like a counterintelligence operator. I don't remember when those 9-11 videos dropped recently that were like, what the hell is this? We've never seen these angles before. I forget the the individual. Do you Kevin Wesley. Yeah, Kevin Wesley. Yeah, Wesley. Part of the, when he's in that, um, that when he has that ceremony for um, retirement. Over in, in Britain, that, in with Britain, the Anglo-American establishment flags in that them. church, that yeah. there's a quote by Jonathan Swift mm-hmm. in the background. So it's mm-hmm. just curious. I mean, there's a lot of synchronicities happening with Jonathan Swift in regards to the 9/11 narrative and false flags. That's weird. I was just curious, so I jumped into the false flag chapter to see what I think it's a she Anna was trying to tell people about false flags because I just gave you the King David Hotel, which is a false flag. That is more substantial than probably is what's discussed in here. So uh, we're going to put that aside because I didn't read it yet. But a couple Speaking weeks ago, David <clears throat> and I heard someone recommend this book, only it's called that. 
right? But that that is not available very easily. So I got the 25th, 25th edition republication of it, right? It's by John Stormer. None dare call it treason. It was also recommended side by side with this book, Masters of Deceit, A Story of Communism in America and How to Fight It by J. Edgar Hoover, who's not one of my favorite people. I'm very critical of Hoover, but I, I had no problem reading his book and sucking out whatever relevant information might be uh, useful to us. And then I also went through this book, which is a, a tad more referenced. And there's some good sections in here, like the whole section on education. He this is 1964. He nails it, dude. Oh, he talks now, about John is, Dewey and the progressive movement, the pragmatists. That's you. I mean, yeah, yeah. This is 30 Alcum years education. before Charlotte Iserbeet. Yeah. This is years before Gatto. And then like a couple of years, I mean, Charlotte Iserbeet, it was a couple of years after that, that Gatto published a lot of, you know, underground history, if I remember correctly, 19, early 1990s, 94, 96. So the father of the nuclear submarine, Hyman Rickover, said this about the state of education in our country. America is reaping the consequences of the destruction of traditional education by the Dewey Kilpatrick experimentalist philosophy. Dewey's ideas have led to elimination of many academic subjects on the ground that they would not be useful in life. The student thus receives neither intellectual training nor the factual knowledge which will help him understand the world he lives in or to make well-reasoned decisions in his private life or as a responsible citizen. wonder if that's by design. I think it's on purpose. <laughs> After all the books I've read, I think it's on purpose. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, a coordinated plan, question. socialized economy, like the Great Reset offers us today. Around the- so he was just... This dude's circular economy and stakeholder capitalism. The green, the green tabs were supposed to be like the ho-hum every day. This is a good, you know, interesting area. And the red tabs are supposed to be like the money shots. And the book has like more money shots than just regular pages of interest. So I thought it was pretty interesting. And this new social order that these people were planning back then, I'm going to say it's part of the same social order they're still planning right now because they have received no pushback. Social no, uh, like, scientific socialism. Yeah, Bertrand Russell is literally just going to say him. It's like what Bertrand Russell talked about on the impact of science and society. When they say they own the science, Tony, this four. is what they're talking about. That's correct. Marx and that's was a Fabian a self- plan, yes. by the way. Yeah. Marx was a self-proclaimed scientist. His scientific theories explain the entire history of man and determine his future. They are to be used to transform man's nature. Being scientists. Communists have certain basic scientific laws which underlie their beliefs and teaching. They include, there is no God. When communists deny God, they simultaneously deny every virtue and every value which originates with God. There are no moral absolutes, no right and wrong. The Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount are invalid. And, you know, regardless of your uh, religio-political disposition, like these are still interesting passages to, to get into. Here's another one. First of all, Marx wasn't a scientist. He was a, he, he was a material uh, dialectician based on the Hegelian dialectic. He's like, a social that's, scientist. He's a social scientist, which is very, um, yeah. Uh, communism uh, is a disease of the intellect. Communism pr- promises utopia. Lenin confirmed this in his important and authoritative work, What is to be Done, written in 1902. He set forth his views on the structure of the Communist Party and said, Conspiracy is so essential a condition of an organization of this kind that all other conditions must be made to conform with it. 
Well, that's fascinating because I'm not supposed to talk about conspiracies or look into these things. In other words, the philosophy of communism must be bent and twisted as needed to fit the conspiratorial needs of the situation. How convenient. That's like progressivism today. There is much firsthand evidence that communists quickly see through the fallacies of Marxism, Leninism, Leninism, but continue in the party as blind believers, as conspiracies against the established order or for the personal power and privilege of party members. Party membership gives the select few. The brilliant and twisted uh, minds uh, are made to swear that slavery is freedom, dictatorship is democracy, and that war is peace, and actually believe that it is so. How is that done? Karl Marx compounded the theories in which explain all the contradictions. He called it dialectic, there it dialectical is. materialism. That's what Marx in the 19th century, father of communism, was not a worker, but a university-trained intellectual with a doctorate in philosophy. Prussian education system. Although his ideas had a deep and lasting impact on the intellectual world, he was not the original thinker. Marx concocted dialectical materialism by blending uh, Feuerbach's aesthetic materialism and Hegel's theory of everything in nature is a state of constant conflict in its simplest form. Dialectic materialism teaches all people and all things in the universe and the universe itself are simply matter in motion. As matter moves, opposites track, and when opposites come together, conflict results, and from conflict comes change. With this theory, Marx explains the origin and development of the universe and everything in it and all life. Man, right. he's a smart guy. That's exactly then, what Hegel did, yeah. but he put it in the material realm. Marx did. And so like the only, and by the way, that, that can, was a green reference. That's not even like a red hot reference. Okay. The only, so that ethic, was just, yeah, that's a crazy, I mean, the only ethic that can emerge from that situation is that then uh, the proletariat is always justified to overthrow the bourgeoisie, but that, that shifting line of what the bourgeoisie and the proletariat is, is well, it's constantly shifting. And that's the problem. It's always relative. It's always relative. And we're seeing that cannibalism in the progressive movement, the culture that's happening today, um, where, you know, once the great champions of virtue signaling are themselves being cannibalized by those that are more oppressed in some capacity, if they can come up with such narrative nonsense. And so, of course, those of you paying attention ask, what's on a red tab page then, right? All right. This is page 44. The early cooperation between the communists and the Fabians, that's the Fabian socialists, an English group. Of people english uh, eugenesis right. communists and fabians without which lenin might have faded into oblivion has continued as a united anti-capitalistic front down over the years the fabians abhor the quote aggressive nature of communism end quote but cannot attack communism's godless classless social uh, socialistic one world concepts because the fabian creed is based on the same goals and beliefs Yes, Fabians flocked to the defense of the accused communist, communists, as did Eleanor Roosevelt, Dean Rusk, Adlai Stevenson, Felix Frankfurter, some people here who were communist spies, Lauching Curry, um, over continuing on page 45. Fabians are frequently found working in the communist camp under the mistaken belief that they are using the communists. I don't think that's accurate, but this guy didn't have the Internet in 1964, so I'll let it go. Uh, the mutual goals of the communists and the socialist liberals often lead to false accusations against liberals by those who assume, quote, if it waddles like a duck and quacks like a duck and it's found in a flock of ducks, it must be a duck. <clears throat> I know we just heard like a it's an inductive earlier. fallacy. Yeah. It's an inductive fallacy. <laughs> quack, 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 quack. Canadian <laughs> founder George Bernard Shaw on a trip to Russia in 1931 stated in his speech in moscow oh he speaks there too just not but not just biden and obama fabian founder george bernard shaw was there he said 
It is a real comfort to me, an old man, to be able to sleep, oh, sorry, to be able to step into my grave with the knowledge that the civilization of the world will be saved. It is here in Russia that I have actually been convinced that the new communist system is capable of leaving, leading mankind out of its present crisis and saving it from complete anarchy and ruin. Let's not forget that George Bernard Shaw, I just mentioned this a couple of weeks Eugenesis. ago. He, he was very open eugenicist. I believe oh, yeah. that there should have been a, like essentially a, a council set up and that people to should be brought people. before a council to like a Soviet. justify a Soviet their own is a council. Yeah. Well, yes. yeah. Rule by many. It's gulag, essentially, but. All right, so here, here, closing it. Shaw, after an earlier trip to Russia, had praised Lenin as the greatest Fabian of them all. Shaw helped formulate the Fabian concept of eventual control through infiltration, permeation, penetration, take it, and the piecemeal acquisition of power. He strongly admired Lenin and Stalin, just like Klaus Schwab does. He's got a bust of them on his shelf. They said publicly, he said they publicly championed Marx and his principles of world revolution while quietly working to communize one country after another. They used, Shaw said, the Fabian methods of stealth, intrigue, subversion, and the deception of never calling socialism by its right name. Now, in this book, in sheep clothing and pounding the world, you know, that's um, in their logo. It's malleable world. Stained glass. Look it up. That's right. That's right. Fabian Society. Okay, John Sommer, 1964. Here's the plan. Now, 1964, he's like, I'm calling the shot. He says, after only seven years at the head of the world's first communist state, Lenin died in 1924. Before he died, he formulated a plan for world dominion. Summarized and paraphrased, Lenin's plan stated, first, we will take Eastern Europe, then the masses of Asia, then we will encircle the United States, which will be the last bastion of capitalism. We will not have to attack. It will fall like an overripe fruit into our hands. <clears throat> that manifested in a certain way. Um, the famous train ride by, with the German generals in World War I, getting Trotsky to ignite the revolution to end the Eastern Front. So they do take over Eastern Europe, essentially that ideology. Then, of course, it manifests after World War II and the Iron Curtain and the Cold War. And then the let's not forget Mao's revolution sponsored by the Rockefellers and various other interests. Um, and Asia, exactly as you just said there. And now the last throes of it is going back to the West, making sure the West is, but it's done, is being done a little bit differently than what he proposes there. They thought that the capitalism would naturally collapse under, under its own weight. The opposite happened. So they have to do it through cultural means. Uh, Yuri Bezmenov pointed this out in the ideological Yeah, but it's subversion. not the Soviets doing it. It's the people who funded the Soviet experiment. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. scuttled the Soviet experiment. And now they focus right. on us. But so his point about starting in Eastern Europe, going to Asia, going back West is kind of actually how it happened. That, yeah. That's a very interesting uh, realization. The Westernization of Soviet Union and China by the American International Corporation and Project Operation Trust and all yeah. these other groups of Western robber barons who went yeah, in there Sutton's and work. set it up. Yeah, it's why they have communism in the first place. They can right. massly, mass appropriation of wealth. Uh, and quickly talks quick about time. it. Because of the, you know, these international groups are willing to work with communists and sometimes preferred to. So Page 109, internationalism. Since World War II, propaganda for the world government under the United Nations has been added to textbook agitation for the collectivist society envisioned by Counts and Rugg. So he's just saying they're changing education. He points out UNESCO, which uh, 
came out after President Truman's Commission on Higher Education and Commission's report issued in 1947, one year before the State of Israel. It stated, the role of education will play efficiently must be coordinated essentially by policies established in the State Department in this country and by ministries of foreign affairs. Now, that says that State Department's going to take control of education, which is interesting because State, State Department was deep captured by the British Empire at the time that they're making this decision. Don't forget that's Julian Huxley's initiative, right? That's right. And he's a eugenicist yeah. and oh, uh, yeah. a fan of uh, maybe some of the things we'll talk about late hours of this podcast. Uh, page 110, higher education must play a very important role or part in carrying this country, uh, carrying out in this country, the program developed by UNESCO. So saying UNESCO has a plan, higher education, the universities have to implement it. The United States Office of Education must be prepared to work with the State Department and with UNESCO. This is 1964, already deep capture on your school or your education system to make it a school system. Now, UNESCO's director general, Julian Huxley, an atheistic philosopher and a member of the uh, Colonial Bureau of the British Fabian Society. So it's not just eugenics. He's also a Fabian, right? So UNESCO, Fabian Socialism, eugenics. That's what you got to think, right? Now come over here. Thus, UNESCO recommends the deliberate under-education of children. Such deliberate under-education is a theme which runs through the entire UNESCO program. Uh, In the UNESCO seminar report, the education and training of teachers recommended, therefore, we regard it as a matter of first importance and for social and international living that educators should be more concerned with the child and of the healthy development of his human body, uh, his, his body and mind, than with the content of the various subjects which go to make a school curriculum. Because the failure to adopt a wise approach to child growth and development, the primary school still still tends to function as if it were an institution for the abolition of illiteracy. Should the school's primary, yeah, right. Should the school's primary function be teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic, the abolition, uh, abolition of illiteracy or the conditioning of the child to play in the social international living. In short, UNESCO recommends that schools be converted into indoctrination centers for the production of emotionally conditioned children who react like Pavlov's dogs rather than reason and think logically. The best-selling book, Rudolf Fleisch, or Fletch's Why Johnny Can't Read, exposes the results of such undereducation in one curriculum area. Teacher training institutions, textbook writers, and professional education uh, organizations picked up the theme of education for world citizenship. And then it goes on to the collective. Cause once you're in UNESCO and you got world citizenship, new world order, global government, uh, social credit score is a great resets only a couple steps away. So anyway, uh, analyzing a lot of the things that, uh, we've come to taking for granted today, back in 1964, when it was just called this none dare call it treason, uh, this must have been a heck of a read, and it was seven million copy bestseller. You know, it wasn't censored as much as they probably wanted it to be censored out there. So, yeah, I have this. Maybe I'll just read a quick section of it. But this comes from an addendum to the letter above from Nevada Journal, Prussian Education System. I got this from Gino Denning, who is my mentor in the Trivium, our mentor in the Trivium. Are we teaching American citizens or training Prussian serfs? From a speech by Senator Ann O'Connell, adapted by Diane uh, Alden. 
And uh, it goes into a lot of the history, but let's just go to how it used to, let's go to here, implementation of the Prussian, the results of the Prussian system. I'll just read this quick section. The history of American education since the acceptance of the Prussian system is checkered with failure and elitism. From the time of John Dewey, who felt people should be defined by groups and associations, and who believed that people who were well-read were dangerous. To our own era, U.S. education has suffered. We have in this day and age the disheartening statistics showing 33% of our nation's college graduates can't read or calculate well enough to perform the jobs they seek. Working against the concepts and principles of the founding fathers provided in the Constitution, the Prussian system has produced a gradual but statistically provable decline in literacy and intellectual capability of typical Americans. We can track the five different stages that American education has gone through. Has gone through. 1750 to 1852, the idea of government-controlled schools was conceived. 1852 to 1900, it was politically debated in state legislatures. 1900 to 1920, we had the government-controlled industrialized factory model of schooling. That's the progressive education system, John Dewey, uh, politics and progress, that sort of idea. 1920s through 1960, 1920 through 1960, schools changed from being academically focused to becoming socialized. That's uh, Alexander Inglis and his uh, 13 or 14 functions of schooling that Gatto talks about in the Ultimate History Lesson. And 1960 to the present, schools became psychological experimental labs. That's Rebecca Lamov's work, um, yeah, her book's World right is Laboratory. World is Laboratory. So yeah, in right the year 1940, this is damning to me. This really shocked me when I first read this over 10 years ago. In the year 1941, the Defense Department was preparing for World War II and testing 18 million men between 1941 and 1944. The Defense, the Defense Department found 96% of those tested were literate. During the same period, among African Americans who were tested, the majority of whom had only three years of schooling, 80% were found to be literate. By literate, we mean that Americans, both white and black, could read with understanding. During the Korean War, the Department of Defense tested 3 million men for service, and only 19% were found to be literate. In less than 10 years, there had been a 500% rise in illiteracy. Perplexed, the Defense Department investigated and found that the same tests had been used during the two wars, and the only difference was that those men and women tested during the Korean War had more schooling at a significantly higher cost. 20 years later, around 1970, the same test was used at the time of a new war. Among the Vietnam draftees and enlistees who were tested for illiteracy, only 27% were found to be capable of reading with understanding the material which they needed in order to serve in the armed forces. Again, the major difference between American soldiers in the 1940s and the 1970s was more schooling from the latter group at a higher cost to the taxpayers. And here's the final paragraph. Consider that the billions of taxpayer dollars were spent over the time period from the 1940s to the present increased by some 350% with total, totally unacceptable results despite all of the increased spending. In 1996, statistics prepared by the National Association of Education for Progress showed that some 44% of African Americans cannot read at all. The same set of statistics shows that illiteracy among whites has quadrupled. Incredibly, educating Americans continues to cost massive amounts of taxpayer dollars to achieve unacceptable and devastatingly poor results. That's because it's by design. That's because it it's literally by design. Let's it's just call it. And if you want to know more about that, you can read John Taylor Gatto's book, The Underground History. No, sorry, Underground History of American, of American Education. Education. Underground History yes. of American Education or Weapons chapter of Mass nine, Instruction. Chapter eight or chapter nine is going to be the sci- cult of scientific management. Yeah. It has to do with Fabian socialists, the eugenicists, all the people we just talked about, but in longer form and much more academic. The other part I wanted to tease out is, let me split screen here. We looked at this earlier. 
the Library of Cognitive Liberty. This is what uh, this is the application that members for Grand Theft World have access to. You have our podcast here. You have uh, Peace Revolution, which I did for 10 years. It's evergreen content about the history of the New World Order, whereas Grand Theft World is more like current events. Uh, my first podcast, 9-11 Synchronicity. But you also have State of Mind, uh, this, the uh, Psychology, Psychology of Control, of which I believe is in the library as well. But I wanted to bring you over here because University of Reason Library. Ooh, what's this? This is different. Let's see if it loads. Taking time, taking time. All right. Uh, Autonomy Season 8 is coming up. And there's a whole university curriculum thing going on there. And that's uh, a little more complicated. And we don't need to talk about that. But I wanted to let you know, Autonomy Season 8 starting uh, in two weeks. Uh, there's a lot of people in line to get in class. If that's something you're interested in, uh, you need to have internet access. You need to be able to either go to a website or load an app. And if you can do those two things, you could probably learn a lot about yourself and the world you live in by the end of the year. So uh, get autonomy.info forward slash ignite is a starting point. And when you get there, you'd go into this obstacle course. LD, cut back. Let me, uh, let me see if this will open on the fly. I haven't tried this, but if you click the autonomy obstacle course, uh, it would open up. Let's see, maybe I have to click it twice. There we go. It's, it's there you go. So you just, uh, it's just a course. It's there to test and inform you. So it tests you on whether or not you have the attention span to take a course like this, but it also provides the transparency layer. So you can be totally informed before you even get close to making a decision where you'd have to pull your credit card out. We don't sell the course directly to people who don't have contact with us. We have a process to help people identify whether or not they can be helped by the methods, principles, strategies, tactics that we teach. And then we have a way for you to get a, a blueprint call and get some more options for your future. And then, and only then, if you're interested in moving forward, forward and you have an offer to join, can you get in line for season eight? We usually have 50 or 60 really intelligent human beings from all over the world that get together and they act as classmates for 12 weeks, but they have lifetime enrollment. So it's like one barrier to entry. And once you're in, there's a cornucopia of really valuable content on the other side, not just the autonomy flagship course, but the autonomy Agora courses and all the things that we have in the University of Reason library. And with that, We'll continue moving on. Not to tonight. mention real quick, the community as well, um, where there's a lot of skill sharing within the autonomy community from um, uh, members that have signed up for the course, have taken the course. That's part of the the value that one gets. It's not just access to Rich and his knowledge and the self-betterment that comes from that, but also the, the self-learning that happens from engaging with the community itself. So there's so much value. It's like it's like a fractal in a way. Well, so as an added bonus, and above I, and beyond all the things we do just for the course, each season we help other influencers and producers encapsulate some of their value. And this yes. season we've got some really exciting uh, VIPs that are helping us. Among them, uh, Jay Dyer is going to be doing a course on philosophy. Uh, that's going to be fascinating, and I can't wait to sit in on that. And I know you can't wait either, Tony, because we do have a thirst for uh, methods that help us find truth. And uh, there's a lot we can learn from Jay. So we're going to be doing that. And then the end result will be that will be added to the Autonomy Agora. And that's what you're seeing there on screen. Thank you, LD, for putting that up. Control Room has so many activities and buttons to push. <laughs> yeah, people are interested is- real quick Autonomy. since we're doing some plugs here as well. Um, this comes from my Trivium Compendium. That comes a part of the Trivium course that I've uh, hosted uh, for both the autonomy, for the autonomy community, I hosted a logic course for GTW community. So if you're interested in 
uh, a sort of interactive document that preserves a lot of this information that was presented to us and how we came to understand the trivium. It comes uh, part and parcel as far as uh, uh, buying the, the trivium course. And at the end, there's a bunch of essays talking about. Now, there's a lot of different methods for intellectual self-defense. The trivium is just one methodology, but it's three steps. And those three steps apply a whole, across a whole bunch of other topic areas. So learning how to process a three-step method, an input processing and output type of metaphor, uh, grasping that once, learn that method, then you can apply the same thing to getting things done because David Allen's method is based on the same thing. So yeah. once you learn a method, that's great. And if you want to pick a better method and you don't like the trivium, you got something that gives you better results in your life, please share it. Let, let, us, let us have a crack at it too. That'd be great. But otherwise, we, in the absence of having a knife, the plastic knife or the whatever knife you got available is good enough to move forward. I know because I saw Mr. Beast cut a table in half with a plastic knife. He did that. So it's a thing. You could do it too. You just have to try harder than most people for longer than most people will do it. That's it. What were you going to say, Tony? Yeah, it's just uh, giving you the understanding of how your mind takes in information, processes, processes it, and... um uh, is able to understand and form concepts. So it's basically the, the how in which the, the how we learn to learn anything at all. So it's the process by which we learn and understand our world. So once you develop that and understand that methodology, you can apply it to any knowledge area, any uh, knowledge inquiry you would have, any pursuit of value you would have in your human life, whether it's studying mathematics or studying history or anything, learning how to cook, that the same methodology applies, learning how to learn for yourself. And that's what the trivium essentially encapsulates. Now, I was hoping we could find that Bill Gates clip where he said it's going to be a hung election and maybe a civil war. Because I think it, it's in there. It's just not under the name. That's I don't know why they do this, but Jimmy. They Jimmy do Dore. it for clicks, man. There's a whole science around. You can't describe the form and function of your video anymore. It has to be like, look at what they're doing now. Right which is useless when people in the future try to search up your valuable wisdom that you purveyed because you wrote it under, look at what they're doing now. And you do that every day. And so there's just a whole string of videos on your channel that don't tell us anything about where we can find the very useful information you purveyed. Now, do you, do you think that's accidental or coincidental or on purpose that it's like that, that the algorithm rewards nebulous naming and clickbait instead of form and function? and being able to look things up to have uh, a semblance of history and understanding of the past. I'll leave it to you. Let's see if we can find that clip. So it's in there. It's a, it's a Jimmy Dore clip. Um, well, there's a couple of different ones, but the one I had in there was Jimmy Dore clip. Is there one in specific you were uh, like a type of host? You were yeah, there's, for? there's a soundbite of Bill Gates saying he thinks it's going to be a hung election, and then he thinks it's also going to be a civil war. I'm pretty sure Jimmy comments on that. But it's essentially the clip of Bill yeah. Gates uh, recently where he's on stage talking and stuff comes out. We'll just get the actual clip then. Uh, give me two seconds to find mm. that. There's now, a- if this show was planned out to the nth degree and left no room for error, we would have it like uh, Steven Crowder and be like, uh, clip 27A, Tony. Right? But we aren't like that we let nature take its course and interest direct our activities. And we find out a lot more interesting stuff during any episode than we could have ever planned for. If we sat around for a whole week doing that. And, you know, frankly, we don't plan this podcast. We just kind of show up and do it. I didn't even make up a title on a thumbnail to give LD until a couple hours ago. 
Next so, week's episode, though, is called One Nation Under Blackmail. If you don't understand what that means, hang out. You'll figure it out. Did you find those clips? Um, I'm a little bit difficult. Seems so. very hard to find. There's a there's a Tim cast, you know, 16 yeah, minutes about well. him talking about it, but actually it seems uh, very difficult to actually find Bill Gates. Just Did you check my YouTube playlist for production? Yeah, it wasn't that's where there. it was. I don't well, think least, it got deleted. Oh, I mean, maybe it's under a different title because I, I definitely added what I could from. But there's so many videos. Let me see. Um, Here's one nation under blackmail. Hint, in case you guys know how to use Amazon or ABE books, or go to trynday.com. Search. Um, wow, ten casts. Is it the uh, Bill Gates lies while blaming unvaxxed for pandemic? Probably. Maybe. Might high be one of them. Yeah. High percentage chance that could be it. Let me see if I get these lined up. There we go. Oh, I should put volume one before volume two. There we go. That's better. All right, we're good to go. Yeah, we'll give that one a try. Let's roll. Well, keepers, this is the Bill Gates funded bullshit philanthropy thing. <laughs> uh, goalkeepers, right? And then that he they presented an award to to a young lady who was an environmentalist, yeah, and she there. said that there shouldn't be a world in, with billionaires shouldn't exist. So that was the big story. She challenged that. Yeah, I'd like to invite you to an island. Where, <laughs> so here, <laughs> Bill Struck Gates is on a panel, and. Is he the question on the is, right did you see panel? Harold and Kumar go to yeah, White yeah. Castle? Yeah, this is this I'm is a the, moderately funny, if I'm being, if I'm being generous, he's <laughs> a moderately right. funny actor. Do you think they picked me for this the on purpose because I'm a Trevor Noah level midwit and rich liberals associate Indians with math and science? <laughs> <laughs> Just dress me up kind of gay, put me out there. They think I know about science. No, the real question is, do you think maybe because I'm a typical smug twat actor who knows jack shit about shit, that's why I relish ironically mocking some straw man conspiracy theory that no one in real life has ever said to me once? <laughs> but I'm a hack. <laughs> Here we Do you go. think it's weird that it looks like I didn't wear socks, but when you look up close, it's just weird, almost flesh-colored socks? They, they are flesh-colored socks. I thought you didn't have socks. That's what was so annoying while he was doing his dumb bit. Was I was like, does he not have socks on? Like a of something like this before. Oh, this Is poor former. The same or has the have the last two years had a, a, a markedly Who wrote different this experience? Question? No, the pandemic was completely unexpected i'd say that even even though we predicted it a couple months before <laughs> now, um, kumar i know you don't know anything so i'm gonna tell you <laughs> <laughs> completely unexpected even though we had been talking about it for years and years prior saying it was coming and then we had a uh, uh, we had a simulation of it like just a couple of months before it happened completely unexpected this oh, guy is mm, such a fucking wait. bullshitter so here we go he's got more to say biggest tragedy is that uh it fragmented society where uh certain sources that they told you to wear a mask that was the last thing you were going to do or they told you you know to get the vaccine particularly to protect uh, reduce transmission to elderly people uh they didn't comply and so it is uh a phenomena uh, that held us back and hurt us in a in a pretty dramatic way so he He's blaming the unvaccinated again. He's blaming the people who were skeptical. First of all, the guy who lied about masks 
I wonder why people didn't trust Fauci. Maybe because he lied blatantly at the top of his lungs repeatedly over and over about masks. Maybe that's why. Maybe the fragments are people that heard him on Tuesday and people that saw him on Friday. Yeah, maybe those are the fragments. Bill Gates is still doing this. He's still dividing the country, pushing a culture war. He's using all his money and all his influence to push a culture war. You want to know the guy who right lied now about masks? In the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. What? You're sure of it because people are listening really no. closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, Wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask, and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying uh, uh, inside uh, uh, there? Of course, and- of course. But when you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them and people who are ill. I like he goes, are you sure? Because like, I forgot that. Part yeah. Where he was like, are you sure there's a lot of people watching? No, I'm like, going to lie to their faces what right you, now. What do you think? I'm found. You think I'm not sure? So Bill Gates still blaming the unvaxxed. Can you believe that shit? Did you see what he said about? Oh, some people wouldn't take the thing so they wouldn't infect their grandparents. It's sad. It was. I thought we fucking. I thought we proved that. So that was the point of this whole show. So that's why people called me anti-vax, because we debunked shit like that, because they kept saying, like Rachel Maddow said, if you get vaccinated, it'll end the pandemic. Now, I knew that was not true. I knew that was a big pharma funded lie that was repeated by people like Rachel Maddow and him and other people and everybody in the corporate media. That was never true. And so we've been debunking that for over a year now on this show. People called us anti-vax for debunking that for telling the truth about covid a guy that got vaxxed by the way i got double got vaxxed from it i got double vaxxed and i got injured i got vaccine injured from it uh, and and now people are just sticking their heads in the sand about all the ramifications because you know why you're the sucker that is like arguing about the thing they're saying and all like your cal pen mm-hmm. it's like look or, or you're don lemon with the climate change and like i don't actually care i hate these people right can you just give me the thing i need about the people i hate what are you worried about the d de- is that the hill you want to die on the details yes <laughs> yeah i want to die on the hill of the details yeah, about right? covid policy and how they so now they say he was lying then i've talked to doctors who are smarter than this guy and they say no he was actually telling the truth then and then he started lying after oh my god so who i don't know he says fauci says he was lying then this is what fauci says well after you do that after you go on 60 minutes and lie about the most important thing in the world shouldn't you have to resign no you know why he didn't resign because big pharma which really controls our government wanted him there because he's a corrupt piece of shit criminal and they knew he was going to keep lying for them and keep pushing money-making schemes which is what he did well if trump had done it it would be a window into his evil soul if fauci does it he's just a wooden puppet that wants to be a real boy that's right (laughs) and he's gonna learn 
Let's let's hear Bill Gates one more time. My first question, I think, has to be um, for Bill here, and I because of the intro, I'm dying to know why did you put microchips in our vaccines, and what was the coolest thing you saw when you tracked all of us? Uh, no, okay, the real question: uh, what what was different uh, from your experience <laughs> of misinformation in the past two years? I mean, you've been the target, obviously, of something like this before. Is it more of the same, or has the, have the last two years had a, a markedly different experience? Oh, the, the, actually, the people who were a target of smears and disinformation, Kumar, th those were called the people who did the Barrington Declaration. And people like Bill Gates smeared those people. That's what happened. It wasn't the other way around. Go ahead. How much you want this idiot? I, I, I know. I never met him. I, but I promise you, he's talked about, like, I don't like the comedy that punches down. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. punching up, like, the January 6th people attacking Bill Gates, a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> So let's hear Bill Gates. Pandemic was completely unexpected. I'd say the biggest tragedy is that he just lied right there. By the way, it, so did you see him go like this? The, the pandemic, the pandemic was completely unexpected. Why yeah, did he, he do that? Why does he do this? Like he's <laughs> the biggest tragedy is my friend Jeffrey Epstein's suicide. <laughs> That's right. Let's watch. So pandemic was. Uh, uh, it was a surprise, right? It was a surprise. That's what we're you know saying. What? It he's, was a surprise. He's doing Mary Catherine Gallagher from SNL. Remember Molly Shannon? Where I get nervous, I stick my hands in my armpits yes. like this. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Completely unexpected. Yeah. I'd say the biggest tragedy is that uh, it fragmented society, where uh, certain sources that they told you to wear a mask. That was the last thing. You mean certain sources? You mean like Fauci said, "Don't wear a mask on sixty minutes." And those sources were the same guy. <laughs> and then the same guy said, I lied. You can trust me now. Well, I believe yesterday, Fauci. They were going to do it. They told you, you know, to get the vaccine, particularly to protect, uh, reduce transmission to elderly people. So that right there is what this show has been debunking for over a year including bill gates at the time we didn't know it didn't bill, do that bill, <laughs> bill gates has now said he's 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 going back and forth he's going back and forth on this here's what bill gates says has said about uh vaccines and covid before it wasn't until early february when i was in a meeting that experts at the foundation said there's no way you know this there's been too much uh travel without diagnosis so now he's trying to pretend right here he's trying to pretend that uh the reason why they couldn't contain the pandemic was because too many people were traveling that's not why that's not why that's why he's doing all this because he's lying this is also the time he decided to stop wearing sweaters on stage so here we go watch this uh, for us to contain this and then at that point we didn't really understand the fatality rate you know we didn't understand that it's a fairly low fatality rate and that it's a disease mainly of the elderly kind of like flu is although a bit different he just said well now we didn't know that the, the fatality rate was low we always did know that how many tells can one guy have he's right? like tapping his chin his, and doing his, this million tells <laughs> <laughs> So this guy says, sign someone's lying, over-exaggeration, hand gestures, and face touching. <laughs> they knew. They knew it was a low fatality well, rate. Jeffrey's and now he's dead now. And now he, here he is telling us that it's a disease of all of the elderly. That's what people were saying, the Barrington Declaration people were saying at the beginning of COVID, that we should have targeted, we should target 
our help to people. We should have targeted vaccines. We should have targeted lockdowns. We should have targeted mask wearing. We should target people who are vulnerable. And who are the people who are vulnerable to COVID? The elderly with comorbidities and the obese. That's who's vulnerable. People with comorbidities, if you're a diabetic, uh, or if you already have cancer, and if you're obese. 77% of the people hospitalized from COVID were obese or overweight. They never say that. And now, and then plus, the average age of death from COVID over the age of life expectancy. <laughs> they don't that tell you part. any of that. Well, they fixed that part with the life expectancy because they lowered life expectancy by three years. So they're taking care of that right now, right, Tony? Oh, they're already done. Yeah, sorry, I was. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. On. It's probably um, too soon. To make fun of the death rate. They, uh, yeah, they did lower life expectancy quite dramatically, um, exponentially. In fact, I mean, it's a massive decline. That normally it moves, I think, point five. So it moves about half a year. Uh, typically, over the past, I forget how many decades, but then all of a sudden, in the past three years, it moved like three years. Life expectancy dropped for some reason. Yeah, so that's that's the qualification there. Um, I know, Russell, so here's two things. Uh, Tim Cast, I think, had the clip with... Uh, Russell Brand had it, too, I think. I know he talks about it. So there is a Russell right. Brand said, he said what? But I don't know, Russell Brand has a tendency to just... Because there's articles talking about it, too. So I don't know if he plays the clip or if he reads an article. Yeah, um, I probably saw Tim Cast or Russell talk about it. Okay. So we could see which one of those is available. Both are available. Which one would you like to play? It's 7 a.m. Russell's up. Let's wake him up and tell him to work for us. <laughs> Get up here and tell the story about how Bill Gates said some stuff that he shouldn't have said out loud. He told Forbes. I should check out Forbes YouTube, actually. Yeah, he told Forbes. Bill Gates says we are on the precipice of a civil war. What kind of influence does Bill Gates have over it, given the amount They're of sway he has beginning. over the mainstream media? And do the rich elites of which he is... Bill Gates says we are on the precipice of a civil war. But what kind of influence does Bill Gates have over it, given the amount of sway he has over the mainstream media? And do the rich elites of which he is part benefit from it? <laughs> Hello there, you 5.9 million awakening wonders. We're so close, aren't we? We're so close. I hope you love our content. If you do, subscribe and turn on the notification bell. And remember that we stream every day live on Rumble. You get deeper content, better insights on billionaires, corporatism, globalist corporatism, mainstream media corruption, and how to awaken from the nightmare of their power. Let's get into today's story. Many of you will have seen or at least heard that Bill Gates has said that a America is on the precipice of civil war. The polarization will reach the point where there are hung parliaments and it's impossible to implement power and that it will lead to social breakdown. We contest that Bill Gates has more power than any nation, certainly than any government. That governments will come and go, Democrat, Republican, and Bill Gates's power will remain largely unimpeded. We also ask, what is the role and nature of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the donations in particular that they make to media organizations and organizations that train journalists. We'll touch upon too his role in Indian agriculture and the impact that he's had on it for good or for ill. Bill Gates is worried about domestic polarization in the US. 
Like, is he though? Is he? Oh, I'm ever so worried about that. Because remember when he was worried about that pandemic, he's made a fortune out of it. Allegedly. Which he sees little hope for in the short term. I admit that political polarisation may bring it all to an end. We're going to have a hung election and a civil war, he said. Political polarisation, says Gates, goes hand in hand with another issue, the spread of misinformation. Now, we couldn't be more sensitive to misinformation on this channel because, as you know, we've had one YouTube strike for misinformation and a lifelong warning. But whose misinformation is the most deadly misinformation? Is it mainstream media misinformation, which in my view could lead to all sorts of complications? For example, if you believe the misinformation that vaccines are 100% effective or 90% effective and stop the spread, as alleged by Rachel Maddow on this MSNBC clip. The vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. Or contrasted with genuine mistakes to which we've owned up and immediately corrected. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. How does the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation spend its money? And while I'm telling you this, why don't you in your own mind that God gave you determine what the intention could be of this expenditure. While other billionaires' media empires are relatively well known, the extent to which Bill Gates cash underwrites the modern media landscape is not. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has made over $300 million worth of donations to fund media projects. Recipients of this cash include many of America's most important news outlets, including CNN, NBC, NPR, PBS and The Atlantic. Now, I don't know whether you like those organisations or don't like those organisations. I've read things in The Atlantic, for example, that I've really enjoyed. And I've probably seen things on CNN over the years that I've really enjoyed. But what I do know, it's not charities, are they? It's not like an endangered panda, is it? Brian Stelter is not an endangered species. Oh my God, I'll only eat bamboo. It makes me very vulnerable. Which sounds great. These are businesses. Why would you give money to a business? It's not like a plucky little shoeshine boy or a little match girl trying to make a break in the world. These are large media organisations. Why are the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation making donations and are these donations always transparent and are you always aware when you are consuming content that's come from that organization and are therefore able to assess what biases may be embedded in it bear that in mind because in a minute we're going to read you something from the indian times that's going to knock your little socks off Gates also sponsors a myriad of influential foreign organisations. Gates continues to underwrite a wide network of investigative journalism centres as well, totaling just over $38 million. The foundation also puts up the money to directly train journalists all over the world in the form of scholarships, courses and workshops. Now that looks like a type of philanthropy, doesn't it? But later on we're going to be talking about philanthropy and where that philanthropy ends up and the nature of that philanthropy. You'll be astonished to learn that some of these foundations from the outside appear little more than untaxed bank accounts with no legislative commitment to spending that money on anything philanthropic at all. But for now, let's jump into the Times of India. In a little unbiased piece of mainstream media called what Bill Gates thinks the world can learn from India. <laughs> well, some of you will be aware that India has gone through some pretty significant and radical social engineering lately, amounting to, some would say, the annihilation of their agriculture in order to implement ideas and technologies that don't fit in with the way that their country has traditionally been run. Many people will make the argument, of course, oh, this is progress, AI and technology will save the world. And certainly there are situations where that is evidently plainly true, or at least it's advantageous to more 
more than just the people that own those organizations. But in the case of India, the suicides, the devastation, it would seem that there are two sides at least to that conversation. Let's ensure that both of those sides are heard. Speeding up progress towards a healthier, fairer and more prosperous world depends on commitment and innovation. Innovation means technology and commitment means do as you're told. You'll be astonished to learn that this piece in the Times of India is not just written by some journalist, some plucky little journalist who just wants to tell the truth. It just says the writer is the co-chair and trustee of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Don't even say their name. All you need to know about me is I'm trustworthy. I'm a trustee. You can trustee me. Also, an important idea is tagged here, and that is the idea of progress. That is the myth that we have, that we're progressing somewhere as a culture. That countries like India, they need to move forward. Why haven't you got enough iPhones for? Ain't you got no X Factor? The idea that there's a place that we're heading and we're going to reach it through technology, ingenuity and materialism. India, under the leadership of Prime Minister Modi, has made great strides in implementing many initiatives that show promise for accelerating progress towards sustainable development goals. Now, these sustainable development goals is a new sort of metric for evaluating progress, I suppose. But who determines what those measurements are? The country's upcoming G20 presidency provides an opportunity for Indian leaders to sharpen the world's focus on health and development issues and share lessons and innovations that can improve and save lives. For me, that sounds like by capitulating to a globalist agenda, India can be used as a kind of poster boy for this new progressive Great Reset-esque ideology. Another area worth emulating is India's comprehensive approach to digital technology. Progress in this area can help address many of the world's challenges from pandemic recovery, vaccines, poverty, give us all your data, to lack of access to medical care. Vaccines. India has used digitization to transform healthcare as well. Many of you are concerned about the overreach of big tech and their ability to implement social credit score like technologies. Even if they're not at the social credit score level yet, the format for these ideas is being put in place. We've been concerned about that on this channel for a long time. Let me know in the chat, let me know in the comments what your feelings are about this agenda. Do you think it's real? I really enjoy this guy's videos. He's brilliant, isn't he? But wouldn't you like even more of him? As you know, we are streaming every day on Rumble at these time free AF, as well as my press and innovation and what India's got to do and don't worry about the suicides, was written by someone anonymously that we only know is a trustee of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So bear that in mind with what you know about Bill Gates' influence on the media and about him saying that the world is entering a phase of civil war. Does he benefit from that ideology? Does Bill Gates and the agenda that he represents benefit from people being divided and turned against one another on cultural lines? Ask yourself that question. To respond to this, we turn to Vandana Shiva, long-time friend of this channel, friend of the show. We've got a great conversation with Vandana Shiva coming up on Stay Free with Russell Brand. If you join Stay Free AF, there's already a conversation that I've had with her. She appeared live at Community last year. She's appearing live at Community next year if we still have a planet by then. So you can join us if you want to. Let's see what she says about the digitization of agriculture and the application of these technologies in an area where she's an expert. And ask yourself the question, who knows more about India? Vandana Shiva, an Indian woman who happens to be an expert in quality quantum physics, agriculture and activism, or Bill Gates. Gates Ag 1 is one type of agriculture for the whole world, organised top down. 
This includes digital farming, in which farmers are surveilled and mined for their agricultural data, which is then repackaged and sold back to them. This is a way of taking ordinary, independent, empowered agricultural workers and farm owners and turning them into tools of a centralised agenda via the promise, as always, of convenience and ease through AI and technology. Let me know what you think in the comments. Let me know what you think in the chat. It all stems from an overreaching theme of arrogance and the desire for recolonization and a global empire. The idea is to imply or create the environment in which survival isn't possible without technology. They're making us dependent upon them. How many times have you seen that narrative play out in colonialism and imperialism? They change the farming practices, they change the local customs, they mess with the systems that are in place, and all of a sudden you are dependent upon your imperialist masters. If you look beyond the models of nationalism and towards one of globalism, you can see that the same thing's being applied right now through centralised big tech power. We're becoming dependent on them. And if you think I'm joking, just remember how you felt last time you left your house without your phone. It's a denial of the richness of agroecological knowledges and practices that are resurging around the world. The good news is people all over the world are learning how to farm the land again. New systems of animal husbandry or arcane ones emerging again. Knowledge of actually, if people were to localise their food sources, much of the unnecessary trade much of the unnecessary centralised power could be limited. Tech giants, in an effort to drive home digital agriculture, are working to reduce life to software while advancing digital surveillance systems. Here Vandana Shiva tags the broader point that a human being is more than just information. A human being is more than just material. That there is something sacred, something spiritual. You cannot be reduced to data points. There is something mystical. There is a ghost in the machine. There is a Holy Spirit. There is hope. We cannot allow centralised tech authorities to turn us into just a list of binary code. We cannot allow powerful tech giants who are essentially modern day sovereigns, empires, tyrants, kings, astride the globe, unable to be regulated, free to do whatever they want, free to travel the world beyond the nation, to have so much power that the needs and requirements of ordinary people are neglected. In the stream, we're going to have a look in more detail at foundations and what foundations really mean and where that revenue actually goes and, and what the obligations are when people say, we're going to give billions to this person and that person. We're going to have a deeper look at it. I'll leave you with this thought. Do you think we're on the brink of a civil war because we have a media landscape that continually highlights the fractures, fissures, gaps and conflict between people instead of pointing out that if we come together as one, if we return to an ancient understanding of the world while implementing technology sensibly, not just for profit, we could reorganise our future individually and collectively. Is that ever going to be possible with the media the way it is, funded in the way it is, and with global tyrants like Bill Gates in the position they are? Let me know in the comments, let me know in the chats. We did enjoy that video, <clears throat> Russell, because you had the clips. And we wanted to get that clip for this week's time capsule. So people in the future, looking back on what happened in 2022, they know that it didn't get uh, censored because like you guys said, it's pretty hard to find those clips out there on the interwebs. So if you don't know where you saw it and you can't like preserve it and encapsulate it, it can uh, find that yeah, it's basically uh, just circular Russell. file. It's basically Russell and Tim Pool as well. Russell Brandon Pool. They're talking about this Business Insider article. Bill Gates says political polarization may bring it all to an end and can even lead to civil war. So they're just referencing and quoting um, from this article or, or other articles. But he had a comment where he said it was going to be a hung election. 
Yeah, let's see if they he spoke of it in definite terms. Yeah, no, like, he, it so this be. is what He's it like, says. This yeah. is what it's. This is what they quote directly. And he supposedly said this to Forbes, but I can't find a clip from Forbes. So, quote. Let me make this big for people. Quote. <clears throat> sorry, I'm trying to highlight it. Oh my god. There we go. Quote. I admit that political polarization may bring it all to an end. We're going to have a hung election and a civil war. End quote. He recently said in the keynote conversation at this year's Forbes 400 Summit on philanthropy, quote, I have no expertise in that. I'm not going to divert my money to that because I would know how to spend it, end quote. So that comes from a talk he gave at the Forbes 400 Summit on philanthropy. Let's see if we search for Now that. the Forbes 400, Tony, do you think that's like a 400 richest people? Well, I was going to say something like yeah, that. Forbes 500 500. Or Forbes 500. Forbes 100, those are corporations. Forbes 400, I thought those were families or intergenerational wealth. And then they also have Forbes dynasties, and that's where the Rothschilds would be listed. They wouldn't Look, be listed. They had Warren Buffett the there, the previous speakers, Bill Gates, Linda Gates, Robert F. Smith. Uh, we're all people who have probably flown with Jeffrey Lyon, Epstein. European commissioner. Jane Goddell, of course. Law? This is a joke. Um, let's see. Do they have a who are we? Diversity, equity, inclusion. Look, they got that. Uh, events 2021 Forbes. Let's see. There is there an about contact us digital ad products search. Hmm. Well, they had a philanthropy summit, Bill Gates clued off the election like the 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 odds in vegas have probably shifted since bill gates made his comment Let's see what it says here forbes fans be scored how charitable are the richest america it must just be the maybe it's the 400 most charitable is not oxymoronic i mean because like you know yeah it's interesting. So as a thought exercise, no. how do if, we know? If they're really the, charitable, they wouldn't be the richest Americans anymore. Somebody else would take their place. That's my point. Go ahead, LD. I'm just I'm just thinking, like, how do we know that Bill Gates said this? And and the only place we can find it is Tim Pool and Russell Brand talking about it and Business Insider seems like well, another well, side of the kind of batting back the against the uh, the J six. I imagine, I mean, at least they quoted it on from Forbes. Let's see here. Most members of the Forbes 400 received a one or a two, indicating they have donated less. So it must be philanthropic organizations, this, this Forbes 400. Mm. They, um, this seems to be starting with the premise that Bono's they donated red money. campaign is in there. This year's Forbes 400 is a, is a bit more philanthropic relative to their fortunes, with more people having given at least 1% of their net worth to charity. Still, only nine people have given away even a fifth of their stash. These top givers have continued to dole out big dollars. Whereas Bono gave 1% and then added to his net worth. So he's probably not in that group then, right? He did the other. Yeah, it must be like a fortune. This must have to do with philanthropic. The giving pledge of Warren Buffett. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it has to do with philanthropy pretty much. 2022 Forbes 400 methodology, how he crunched the numbers. All right. So Gates was a keynote speaker. He said some stuff. We'll see if it actually comes out to be true. Oh, they take me to my Microsoft account. What is this? What is this? Dude? Well, philanthropy is just a euphemism for other things usually, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. Many yeah. such cases. There's a lot of philanthropy in these two books right here in front of me. These two <laughs> books have a lot of philanthropic activities, actually. It might be actually a, a journal of philanthropic activities for the past hundred years. <laughs> 
you might say. It was curious. I mean, the fact that it's been scrubbed. Or maybe it was just quoted from Business Insider and they never really recorded it. I never saw the clip. I saw people talking about it, much like Russell Brand or Tim Poole. All right, we'll, we'll figure it out. The future knows it at least happened. They can find the clip. The way One of the things I will say is the way he speaks with this quote here. I admit that political polarization may bring it all to an end. We're going to have a hung election, a civil war. Recently, he recently said in the keynote conversation of this year's Forbes 400 Summit of Philanthropy, I have no expertise in that. I'm not going to divert my money to that because I wouldn't know how to spend it. That is kind of something I would expect him to say. He says, continuing, quote, the polarization and lack of trust is a problem. He continues to Forbes, uh, continuing with the quote now. One of the best-selling books last year was a book by Robert Kennedy saying that I like to make money and kill millions of people with vaccines. It's wild. That sells well. Interesting. Did he really say this? Over the years, Gates and ex-wife Melinda French Gates have donated billions to vaccine research, development, and delivery through their foundation. Gates has been the subject of conspiracy theories that claim he puts microchips in vaccines, uh, that's microdot technology, to track people. Not that it's been implemented necessarily yet. Earlier this month, Gates said people have yelled such accusations at him on the street. Oh, poor Billy boy. Quote, people seek simple solutions, and the truth is kind of boring sometimes. Anybody who's got good innovations on reducing polarization, getting the truth to be as interesting as the crazy stuff that would be well worth investing in. Huh? Well, let me just see. Now I have to. I mean, this is just a shot in the dark, but let me just see if Bill Gates is in one of these books. So let's go here. So while you do that, oh, fuck. Don't tell me. Felix Gallardo, Gambino. Genovese, no gates in the first volume. So well, it's almost like when in doubt, know? look at volume two. It's yeah, almost like the UN Secretary for Global Comms, the Undersecretary, uh, sitting. Oh my God, cat! Don't do that right now. It's a bad kitty. Um, uh, sustainable Development Impact Meetings, saying they own the science in order to combat misinformation. So yeah. So in volume one, you're not going to find. Bill Gates, but you will find the prologue to volume two in which Bill Gates features quite prominently in the storyline, like from page 12 all the way through 357. That's because it's all about Microsoft in the 90s. Um, it's Bill Gates and many of the executives in the 90s that have like uh, Epstein's entourage interacted with quite intimately. That she detailed in her series on unlimited hangouts, but obviously she's now turned into a book. Gates Foundation from page 212 all the way up to 355. So let's just take a little sampling somewhere in the 300s. It looks like we'd find some strong stuff. Oh, now in this book, again, yellow was supposed to be the, you know, good stuff. And the orange was going to be the money shots. And uh, it's mostly money shots throughout the book so we could just pick any of these pretty much that's in the 200s here's in the 300s clinton kasparov (laughs) evelyn the rothschild we're getting close oh epstein and microsoft here we go yeah we might want to learn a little bit about this let's see if i can uh get it on screen zoom it in maybe just a little bit like this. Oh, now we're cooking. <clears throat> While Isabel Maxwell, that's Ghislaine's, 
or Jelaine or Gislaine or however you pronounce it. That's her sister. Robert Maxwell's one of his other daughters. While Isabel Maxwell and Comtouch offer one possible explanation for the Gaps Ep- Gates Epstein business ties discussed by the Evening Standard in 2001, another clue regarding the early Gates Epstein relationship can be found in Epstein's cozy ties with Nathan Meyerwold, who joined Microsoft in the 1980s and became the company's first chief technology officer, CTO, in 1996. At the time, Meyerwold had uh, was one of Gates's closest advisors, if not the closest, and co-wrote Gates's 1996 book, The Road Ahead, which sought to explain how emerging technologies would impact the uh, life in the years and decades to come. I actually read that book back then, and uh, he's doing a lot of it. He wrote it down, and he's got a plan, and he's doing it. Let's see. Other Gates passages. So that's interesting about Microsoft. Here's uh, CDC, Controlled Data Corporation, DARPA. That's not Gates. Anyway, Gates is all through the book, and he's up to a lot of no good. He wrote on the jet. Oh, Zorro Ranch. There we go. That's what he I'm wrote on the jet. About. He went to Zorro Ranch. He's helping uh, Epstein make the genetic babies. Gates Foundation gave uh, the CGI Clinton Global Initiative a total of $2.5 million. Uh, Gates spoke at the Conference of the Global Health. Yeah, my starlight right there. Bill That's Clinton it. and Gates entered the world of philanthropy around the same time, right? Now, this is the Clinton Foundation and Clinton Global Initiative, right? So let me just zoom out for a second. I didn't plan this, but I happen to have it sitting here. So let's check it out. Let's see. HSBC, HSBC. Oh, the latest emails show that State Department, the state, and the foundation were one seamless entity. That's the Wall Street Journal, right? So that's Clinton Foundation. How about this? Mm, no, that's different. No, that's different. UN admits role in cholera epidemic. I think the Clinton Foundation was there, weren't they? Mm-hmm. With the so. UN and how the Clinton Foundation got rich off the poor Haitians, right? So this is the Clinton Global Initiative. This is the Clinton Foundation. Uh, Given it away, United Nations. No, the rest of that's not related to that story, or maybe it is. Interesting. Huma Abedin. Hmm. So you don't just get this book to understand Gates. You get these books to understand the whole picture, right? How did Jeffrey Epstein manage to evade justice for decades? Who enabled him and why? Why were legal officials told that Epstein belonged to intelligence and back off during his first arrest in the mid-2000s? Volume 2 of One Nation Under Blackmail examines the rise of Jeffrey Epstein and his closest associates, such as Leslie Wexler, uh, Wexner's uh, limited brands and uh, Victoria's Secret, and Ghislaine Maxwell, and contextualizes them within the organized crime intelligence network's Detailed in depth in volume one. She sure does. It subsequently details her ties with a focus on Epstein to intelligence networks, espionage activity, and the subversion of American institutions, as well as the role of Epstein and, uh, and the Maxwell family in the evolution of blackmail in the digital era. So, I mean, that's a pretty good summary and uh, very juicy reading. And uh, so much that I had to like buy a lot of tabs this week. These, uh, 3M post-it note tab deals. So Epstein, eugenics, Fabian socialism, ideas of uh, world government. 
blackmail, sexual terrorism, genetic engineering to make the Uber mention. I mean, the people that uh, Gates comes from, like their lineage was that they funded the Nazis. Those Western establishment families and bankers that created the eugenics movement in Cold Spring Harbor then moved their money over to Germany because they had had uh, hyperinflation and the market crash. So they take American money. It goes over there for investment. Then America has a Great Depression because all the investment money went over there. And then when they're done rebuilding, they tear it down with a nice World War II. They create a Cold War after that. Cold War is where Robert Maxwell like, you know, cuts his teeth. Yeah, that's right. So I guess he's found it. Yes. And the, the notion of these guys spying for multiple countries, whether it's Epstein or Maxwell or whomever, it's a highest Anglo Israeli alliance that is being used to focus on American politicians and blackmail and these sort of things. Now I'm not limiting Epstein to only America because God knows that guy was all over international and hanging out with Adnan Khashoggi and all these other guys that are arms, narco trafficking dealers and black marketeers, basically human trafficking among those black markets. So nefarious group of people, we all need to become more intelligent on these matters and even though I have many, many of the books that Whitney refers to throughout these two volumes, she does a really good job of marshalling the evidence, bringing it together, telling a coherent story. And what I love is she continually foreshadows what's going to happen in future chapters with what she's telling you now so that you have a reason to be like, oh, this is going to connect that thing in chapter seven. So I better pay attention. She does that all through the book. Excellent editing. I might have only found like one or two. I wasn't looking for errors, but I did find a couple and they're so minor. I didn't even note them because it's like no one else is going to find them. It's a thousand pages. This is really uh, a masterpiece of uh, research journalism and research and, and journalism. And yeah, because she collates all that evidence into one book. Like you have many different books and like, for example, Dope Inc. That's a tough read. And there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of errors in Dope Inc. as well that I've found. So it's like, it's, it's tough, you know, it's really thin. There's been revisions of that book. So for her, she's very meticulous and her journalistic integrity, and to be able to collate that information and present it uh, coherently and cogently into one, well, two volumes, but the first volume really sets up the stage for a lot of what we've been talking about and what you've researched for for decades And then now. she kicks it into high gear. And, and it takes all the these books, volume. but it takes all these books that you show people, right? She's able to kind yeah. of get it into one, and that's testament to her ability to, well, without sacrificing quality. Even more impressive than the books themselves. Let me put them back on the screen. Even more impressive than the books themselves was that she wrote it during a pandemic and while becoming a new mom. Yes, she's a, a mom, right? Yeah. And she was also traveling back and forth. She was in Chile and then she's gone to UK and then she's from the UK back to Chile. So she had a quite a lot going on in her life. Yeah. Kudos hopefully, to her. Uh, I think, you know, Johnny's supposed to be down there now. So right, hopefully yeah, they're hanging out, having family time, and they don't even have time to catch up on any marketing that people are doing for the project. Well done. <laughs> Let us take it from here. You, you know, spiral uh, marketing, right? We're doing it. We do it uh, based on the respects. Of yeah. This, this content, this content gets to live in my head rent free. This is, this is welcome. Thank you, Whitney. And, uh, thank you, Whitney. Thank you, Johnny. That and thank you, Unlimited Hangouts and the editors and producers. Thanks, Chris Milligan, for publishing such that great books. Fine day. Yeah. All right, more to come on those because as, as I said earlier in the show, Whitney Webb is going to be the guest next week. <clears throat> we are going to pre-tape that 
because of uh, time zone conflicts, these sort of things. So uh, we'll get that done during this week. I'm very excited. And I was glad to be able to get her, get the books read and annotated and understand the concepts and do the research and stuff well before I have to interview her. So now I feel like I'm prepared and we'll have a great conversation. I'm looking forward to that. Now, there was a couple other clips I wanted to get to. Um, we do have a special guest and then we can go to intermission, I guess. Is that what you're thinking, Tony? Yeah. Yeah. It's getting pretty late. What are we at 2.30 now in the morning? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's 2.30, but Clay Clark gets up at 3 a.m. So what we did is we asked him to get up a few minutes even earlier tonight so he could be here for this podcast. We pre-taped it last night. It was a couple days ago, probably. Wednesday, I think we pre-taped it. Yeah. So I'm not going to try to pretend for continuity that he's here live. We pre-taped it on Wednesday. It's one of 41 interviews he shot last week. And um, those of you who pay attention to continuity, you'll notice changes in frame and wardrobe. I ask you to ignore those things and listen to the content of the message. We don't have to show uh, the whole interview because uh, I, I do have it independently posted on the all the outlets so you can see the whole interview. But let's just jump in and play like 10 or 15 minutes of it, LD. Yeah, you got it. And so we'll play 10 taste. or 10 or 15 minutes and come back for a little bit of commentary and then go to go yeah. to uh, intermission. Okay. And those so who saw Clay's it. last appearance on this show, he does talk about different points, but I forgot to bring my little heads on a stick, but I got to get one that has Victoria Newland because he didn't have that. So I'd like to send Ooh. that to him because I'm a big spender. I could do that for Clay. Getting that price on there as well. Yeah, I'm just, just looking for, for a paint. I'm going to go to the garage and look for a paint stirring stick. And then I'm going to print out a picture of Vicky Newland. I'm going to glue it on there and I'll send it to him because I know he needs help. Like can up the value by laminating it. But. He's throwing half million dollar conferences and he might lose a hundred thousand dollars on a conference, you know? So I figure at least I could do is send him a Vicky Newland on a stick, but he's going to have to assemble it himself. Cause I'm not paying shipping for that. You can get Robert Kagan in there and maybe Strove Talbot as well. You know, I got Robert Kagan. Hold on. Cause you know, we say that, <clears throat> And people might not know. You saw Victoria Newland earlier tonight. This is her husband, Robert Kagan. Now, there's also Donald Kagan. There's also Frederick Kagan. There's a whole Kagan neocon type of family. But this is a particularly interesting book because it's called Of Paradise and Power, America and Europe in the New World Order, written by neoconservative Robert Kagan. So uh, if you want to learn more about what's going on over in Europe, it's not a it's not a very big book. It's a little tiny book. And uh, he does have some very interesting passages in there. But uh, that's not what we're here to do. We're going to go to our guest, Clay Clark, from the Reawaken America Tour. And uh, we will be right back. Welcome back to Grand Theft World. Tonight, our special guest is Clay Clark. He's been having the Reawaken America tour, and he's been having these uh, revival meetings all over the country. I have many colleagues and friends who have been to these revival meetings. It's a cornucopia of content. You don't know what you're going to get there, but it's always going to be about freedom, liberty, integrity, ethics, morality, these lost arts of being an American. Clay, how you doing? Let me bring you in over here. How you doing, bro? I love the description. Anytime that someone says the word cornucopia, they score a mega point in my mind. So boop, boop. I have a word for you I want to give you. I've been sipping on this today, this LaCroix, yeah. because I found it in my fridge, and it tastes skunky. So that's the word I'll give you, is skunky. It's, it's pretty rough. 
I'm I'm sipping on my bulletproof coffee here, and uh, this mug keeps it nice and warm into the hours of the afternoon. <laughs> nice. So, um, your tour, you're going to Pennsylvania, you're going to Missouri, you're yep. going to Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. How are you well, continuing this? This It's like a super marathon. I thought when you started out, it was going to be like a sprint. I'm like, okay, these are cool couple things yep. that you did. And all of a sudden, like now well, it's a thing. There's a couple things. Um, one, and just let me just be clear with everybody out there. Um, you know, when I do the Reawaken America Tour, anybody who goes to timetofreeamerica.com, you can name your price. So when you go there, you'll see there's seven people close to President Trump. Okay. You got Cash Patel, Peter Navarro, uh, General Flynn, Eric Trump, Trump Jr., uh, Scavino, Dan Scavino Jr. You've got like a handful of people are very close. And there are seven folks. Five of them are on the tour. So if you want to like know what is actually going on, not from me or from people that are pontificating about what we think is going on. If you just want to hear from people that are actually in the fight on a daily basis, people that know what's going on in Mar-a-Lago with the raid, people that know what's going on with Russia, people that know what's actually happening with this crazy pipeline where Biden said, you know, if, and again, I'm, I'm quoting here, uh, Biden actually said this, this is not a, a quote from me. He actually said there will no longer be Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it, says Joe Biden. And let me play this audio real quick here. Whoa, here we go. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will... But, do, but how will you how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will. Uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. OK. And then next thing you know, the the, the pipeline that brings two thirds of the energy to Europe, the Nord Stream 2 stops working. So if you want to know, you know, what's going on with these issues, you want to hear Dr. Judy Mikevich, you want to hear Jim Caviezel, you want to hear Jim Brewer. They're all on the tour. And so then people say, well, how do you make any money if you let people name your price? Because if you go to time to freeamerica.com, right? Now, if you're listening right now, folks, and you buy a ticket right now, and you say you heard about the Reawaken America tour to, through a grand theft, if you say I heard about through the grand theft show, what I'm going to do is I will have one person today that will win a backstage pass. I don't care what you pay for your ticket. One person gets a backstage pass and I'll bring you back there. You can meet Eric Trump and General Flynn, everybody. And again, the question is, how do you make any money? I don't make any money. So this just in, these events are highly unprofitable, although I'm not a nonprofit. So what I'm doing is I, I'm doing these because I feel like America needs to know the truth about the Great Reset. And here you've got guys like, you know, Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab, who've invested billions of dollars to uh, implement their agenda. And yet guys like you, me, whatever, we're out there trying to raise families, grow businesses, and we're trying to get the truth out there. And I feel like we got to level the playing field in some capacity. So what I'm trying to do is bring in thousands of people in person, millions online, put on the best uh, you might call it a show or performance or, or truth-telling festival possible, a cornucopia of knowledge bombs. Um, I want to provide that, at, and I want, want people to, to name their price. And I know that I'm not going to make money 
And I'm not going to do this forever. So I committed to General Flynn. I would do it through November. So our final event that we're doing is November 4th and 5th in Branson. That's the final Reawaken America Tour event we're doing. But I've never stopped my business conferences because that's my core competency. Never stopped that. Uh, and that, that those are every two months. We do those in Tulsa. By the way, you, you would absolutely love those. Uh, but again, folks, so if you want to come to these, um, it is going to be a blasty blast. The doors open at 6 a.m. Uh, each day. Praise and worship music starts at 8, kick off about 9, 9 a.m. We go till 7 p.m. And uh, we just had Doug Mastriano, the, the soon-to-be governor, I believe, of Pennsylvania. He just joined the tour. Uh, it's just a, a, a next level of it. Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad. What? We were just talking off air. You get a text <laughs> message. I'm going, is this the guy who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Because I've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all the Rich Dad, Poor Dad series books. In fact, they changed my life. Holy crap, it's Robert Kiyosaki. So I talked to him. He just joined the tour. That's how I do it. And then I also had um, the top-selling author in the history of the world, the guy who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Mm -hmm. I checked my text messages the other day, and I'm going, is this the Chicken Soup for the Soul guy texting me for a ticket? You've got to be kidding me. So I flipped it on him, and I said, hey, you're the top-selling author of all time. Can you come uh, speak at the events? And he said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. So, I mean, that's what's happened. There's just a certain energy to it. But again, folks, if you want to get a ticket, you can just text 918-851-0102. And we have 1,702 tickets remaining for Pennsylvania. I'm really glad that Kiyosaki joined the tour. I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's a great, he's a great intellect. And he has a great sense of humor. He tells some great stories off camera and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, he's he's really adapted well in the last several years to the markets and, you know, the the cryptocurrencies and these other other things rather than the traditional gold, silver kind of uh, things he had yeah. done uh, in the early, like late 90s, early 2000s. The other part is, do you have a cutout of Victoria Newland yet? I don't. Um, she, also- she said right after Biden said she said the same thing. And right. so you got you got to uh, add to your repertoire, bro. And then the last part is I want to make the point to people because it does blow their mind that you're willing to go through all this effort and not make any money. Yeah. You can only do that because you are a seasoned, strong entrepreneur who That's has, true. you know, you mechanize and I watch your methods. Like you set something up like your barbershop your yeah. franchise. Yeah. You have it mechanized where you're looking to make a certain amount of money from the business, then you outsource and, and, and delegate it. And you have these things kind of running on not autopilot, but scheduled so yeah, that you can have the freedom to go do these things. Let's talk about it. Can I do a screen share? Is it possible? For sure. Can- no, no. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let me click the screen share here. Uh, okay. We're looking at this right now. It's this beautiful Skype. Uh, Skype. <laughs> okay. This is my schedule today. So let's go to last week because that was a week we actually did it. Okay. So everything in red was an interview. That was a show that I was on. So everything in says you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, hosting InfoWars, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41. So I had 41 interviews last week. You know, I try to get up 47 to 48 every week. And then you look at Elephant in the Room, we have our manager meeting right here at 7, 8, at uh, um, 8 a.m. right here, boom. And then we have an a all staff meeting, which is a very heavy uh, skill training biz- meeting. We have that at, at 9 and then I have on Wednesday nights, I have every Wednesday night, I interview potential job candidates every Wednesday. So tonight at 5.30, I'll be interviewing potential candidates. And so I, I, everything's mechanized and systemized. So when you look up a company that I'm a partner with and you go, wow, Tip Top Canine, that company is killing it. You guys got 17 locations. 
Um, it's not because I'm a genius. It's not because I train dogs. I build systems that are scalable. And then when you go to elephant in the room, people say, man, you must love hair. No, I don't. I just have systems and processes. You know that people need haircuts. You know that people love their pets and need to take care of them. And you get in the middle of those needs and you offer service, which is what entrepreneurism is. Right. I heard someone said something negative about you because you're a serial entrepreneur. That's not mm -hmm. a good thing. What does it mean that you can spin up a business? Let it go. Spin up a business, let it go and have them all deliver you recurring revenue. I'd say the person making that comment is probably of the handcuff employee. I can't live without a paycheck mentality. He's never taken that business risk in their life that's paid off or had the hard work and work ethic to bring it about like you do. Well, I would say this, um, you know, let me just pull this up real quick. This is kind of fun. I, I don't know. We've ever had a show where I've shared, you know, accounting stuff, but look at this. So I got to pay a bill here. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Look for yeah, the, you got to call Ed Renz. It looks like you got to call Tom Renz. Yeah, I did that. Oh, I'm Tom like, Renz. This is how I manage the, my day. Like, this, yeah, I know. This him. is my to-do list. So this is what I do. So I did it. So I'm going to, I cross it off. Boom. Stacy Purcell called her, called Steve. Boom. Lisa, I haven't talked to her yet. Got to do it. Just connected with JT about this, but I haven't, it's not done. It's like in process. Uh, boom. I got to reimburse these homeboys uh, for their traveling. I got to pay this person. I got to. And so I have a to-do list and my to-do list here starts here on row 361 and it goes down here. And every day I make this to-do list and then I have a calendar and everybody on my team has a to-do list. So these are all the action items that have to be done for the whole team. And everybody's on this list. And that's how I manage everything. So when I go to write a book, let me just pull this up real quick here. So when I go to write a book. Do you have a course me, yet that teaches people how to do this? I feel like I'm getting a personal masterclass here, getting to see this, these insights. Well, you know, I mean, somebody's going to show me. So I, I went to write a, a, a book. Um, I just read thrivetimeshow.com forward slash free resources. And I write a book, you know, so this first book I wrote, I mean, I, this isn't the first book I've written, but this is one of the first books on the page. I wrote Start Here. And this book is like comprehensive, like really how to run a business. It's very detailed. People love it. Um, but then there's like a search engine book, right? And that's all about how to optimize websites. And then there's a book that's like the magazine version of this, if you want to read it faster. Then I have a book about how to manage my to-do list. Then I have a book about... Um, the mindset you need to have grow a company. I have one for owners on how not to be held hostage by employees. I have these different books and each book to me is kind of like a business, you know? So it's weird, but like for some reason, this book right now, for some reason, I am just selling the heck out of the boom book. I don't know what that is right now. Everybody's buying the boom book. I'm selling the boom books. We're going through just boom, boom, every day, just boom, boom, boom. But I wrote that book a long time ago, but now it's become like a big thing. You know, my wife's book, Now I See, uh, apparently somebody did a hit piece on me recently about my son being born blind and now he can see, and someone didn't actually like the idea that my son can see, but he couldn't see previously. So this book, all of a sudden, everybody's buying this book. I wrote this book with an ophthalmologist years ago on how to run an ophthalmology company. It doesn't mean I'm distracted. It just means I'm very focused for that period of my life on that topic. And I usually manifest it in the form of a business that shows up yeah. or a book. And then I like to uh, manage my business where the, the people that manage it get a percentage of the revenue, the profits to do it. So with the haircut business, you know, I don't, I haven't actually been in the physical stores for three years at all. You know, but you have a weekly call where you tend to that business and you have systematized managers who have a stake okay. in the business. That's right. And then they get a percentage of the revenue and that's how it works. And so we go back to my to-do list every day. I get up at 3am. I make my to-do list, organize my day. 
Everyone on my staff has a to-do list. Um, and then I make a calendar and I just stick within that. And so if you work for me, people who work here, um, they go, man, you know, every day I get to work, he's already here. And when they leave, I'm still here because I work from 3 a.m. until 6. I do it six days a week. And then my staff, they work four days a week. They work from 7 a.m. to 3. And uh, I just do that. And I did, there's a recently a mainstream media uh, reached out to me about the tour. And their line of questioning was bizarre, but I think it's somewhat entertaining. They said, since you started the Reawaken America tour, we've shown you've purchased a property. I go, well, actually, I'm always purchasing a property because I'm never not flipping a property which could be considered a business because it's a separate LLC for that window of time, you know, so you don't commingle funds. But yeah, I do. I did buy a property. Like, so you're making money from the Reawaken America tour. Then this is crazy. The mainstream media then interviewed all of the vendors they could get a hold of: the speaker company, the lighting company, the mm. sound company. And they go, "How much were you paid?" And these companies <laughs> are like, "We're not trying to hide it. We'll tell you." Yeah. So they basically give them gave them all the quotes. And then they ran around at the conference in Idaho, which I think you had some friends that were there. They were interviewing attendees like, what did you pay for a ticket? And some people were saying um, $50, um, $75. And let me do this. Let me just continue to break the frame of anybody out there that... So these are our tickets for today. Okay. So these are ticket requests. One guy paid $100 for three tickets. Someone goes, I cannot believe you're showing me this. Someone paid $135. Oh, we got to put a times in there. You got You can't not have a time. That's that's disorganization right there. Someone paid two fifty for a ticket. And we have a CRM that goes in. Okay. Somebody else um, paid fifty. Someone paid ten. Oh wow. Someone paid ten dollars for a ticket. That's a sweet deal. Think about that. Two days of just nonstop. Okay. Look here. Someone paid thirteen fifty. Uh, someone paid two sixteen <laughs> per ticket. Now the cost to put on the event, according to the mainstream media, they said we've determined that you're spending over four hundred thousand per event to do it. And I said that is an accurate statement based upon the information you've gathered. And they said, but if the average person's only paying one hundred and fifty dollars for a ticket or fifty dollars for a ticket or whatever, because they had their average they came up with, they're so proud of themselves. It would appear as though you're maybe some of these events you might lose a hundred thousand or more. I go, well, yeah, and they can't handle. The idea, I mean, but President Trump, his net worth decreased as a result of standing up for what's right. And, and Eric Trump, I talked to Eric Trump. I'll be um, seeing Eric uh, hanging out at his house here in a couple of days. But Eric is a great guy. And Eric Trump's not doing this to make money. I mean, Dr. Mikeovitz isn't doing this to make money. We're just trying to share the truth about the Great Reset. And that's why Robert Kiyosaki's on the tour now. Have you read Klaus's new book, The Great Narrative? Yes. I got it yesterday in the mail. I'm sure it's a real page turner. <laughs> what Listen, was your this is the great reset. Um, yep. And then the great narrative is like part two, same cover. Um, yep. What he's doing, and I want to be very clear. Um, do you read the Bible often? Not probably often enough for okay. some people. Well, let me, but no, I'm, I'm familiar I, with it. I'm not like, a, um, I, I reject as a general rule what you would consider um religious, you know, mega church, uh, the Pope, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in the Bible. Okay. I hundred percent believe in the Bible. Um, and I want people to listen to this. This is Yuval Noah Harari, who's the top advisor for Klaus Schwab. Yuval Noah Harari. Listen to what he said out loud. This is crazy. And by the way, this is going to blow your mind. Watch this here. This is, if you've read Daniel chapter seven, verse 25, Daniel had a, a prophecy. God gave Daniel a vision of what would happen in the future. And it sounds like you've all know Harari read Daniel and said, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. So you have these dreams about a world without hierarchy, without injustice, without poverty, 
And which means, in effect, a world with completely different laws than the laws we recognize, that we are familiar with. And the idea is that there would be this magical moment, the revolution of the crusade, or we'll rebuild the temple, or we'll create an, a new perfect utopian society, and it will be a moment of historical redemption. Over you shall speak God. great words against the Most High, and shall wear oh, out the saints of the Most High. You went back to your screen saver. They shall be given right. into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. This this homeboy we have the fantasy. He literally wants can. to. The, the sound clip cannot be stopped. You've all can't be stopped. <laughs> okay. But he actually wants to literally change the times. He wants to introduce us into a new period of time called the Anthropocene. He wants to change the laws. And homeboy said he wants to rebuild the temple. Now listen to this. He's sharing his vision of the future. This is this is Revelation chapter thirteen, verse sixteen through eighteen. By the way, listen to this. Uh, with especially the rise of brain-computer interfaces and biometric sensors and so forth, it is very likely that within, say, 50 years, people will literally be part of a network. All the bodies, all the brains would be connected together to a network, and you won't be able to survive if you're disconnected from the net because your own body parts, your own immune system, perhaps depends on being constantly connected to the colony, to the network. This guy is the top Buzzer. advisor. <clears throat> top advisor to Klaus Schwab, everybody. All right, so uh, we're going to pause it there. If you want to see the whole interview, it's posted right now exclusively over on Band.Video. Find the uh, Grand Theft World channel. And you can see the whole interview. There's a whole bunch of other stuff we talk about. There's no more spreadsheets. There's no more entrepreneur talk. But I thought it was fascinating how he marshals his resources and is able to bring together these conferences. Uh, LD's got the band dot video up over there. And uh, I, yeah, I posted that right before the show. And uh, more uploads to come. Look, we got a little flourishing page over there. And there's a lot. There's actually more attention on that little channel that's unknown over there on that platform than we get over on YouTube. So... <clears throat> win-win since this show is banned from youtube in the first place it's not hard to get out outpost someplace where you can get more more out than you can youtube um other things <clears throat> that we should bring into uh focus with that is i haven't been to um one of clay's events uh, he gave me an open invitation to speak in the future uh but ld our uh west coast producer there running the show he was there with a bunch of other colleagues and friends what did you think of the the conference and uh what was your experience ld it was definitely interesting <clears throat> definitely a sort of uh revival atmosphere as as you alluded to a lot of pastors um speaking but you know many many doctors frontline doctors so there's a unification between you know the religious right, you might say, and those who've been brave enough to combat the uh, the medical party line, and also you know business owners like uh, Ian Smith, uh, the gym owner in New Jersey, that you know he gained a lot of notoriety by opposing the state's mandates there. So it's it was an interesting mix, uh, a lot of good information shared, depending on your point of view. Um, you know, Patrick Byrne spoke there. He had he had a presentation on election integrity, but sort of the nuts and bolts, looking at uh, software and coding. 
Um, you know, of course, Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, was there. General Mike Flynn. Uh, so it, it was it was quite something to to. Hermes a, was not that one, was he? He was not. He was okay. not. <clears throat> um, but I met some some really good great folks and had had good conversations. You know, Richard Gage was hanging out there. Talked nice. to him and um, yeah, you it got was to meet it was Jimmy Brewer. I did, I did. Yes, that was that was pretty cool. And, and you texted with Jimmy Brewer. I have, yeah. yeah and he has cool. an invitation to come on this show, and we're he gonna does. hit him up again when he's doing interviews again. Yeah, I'd say I just you know it was an uplifting event. I'll I'll just say that, and you know you can take take it if or leave it. If someone's not overly religious, would they still be able to get something out of it? For those oh, sure. Maybe more secular, my okay. Oh, sure. And you know, it just it just illustrates like it's a it's a very tolerant crowd. Like you can you can leave aside plenty of of stuff there if if it if it doesn't jive with your philosophy or or understanding of you know personal relationship with God. But uh, there was certainly a lot of information. That, you know, certainly some information that uh, more discerning researchers would. Um, have some some issues with with, but um, it was not. It's an opportunity to get in in front of people, you know. With with Richard Gage, for instance, um, there's a lot of yeah. A lot of people aren't familiar with his you know argument at all. Clay says later in the interview, there's like every time someone comes on stage, there's one third of the audience who has no clue what they are or what they're talking about. There's one third that kind of knows, and there's another third that's like fans of theirs, right? So for any of those types of situations, I also posed a question to him at the end because um, there, there's a lot of pastors who speak. As a con- I've watched a lot of the different conferences because Burmese has spoken a bunch. You know, I, I, tr- I try to follow the work. That's of my all colleagues. I'm familiar with it. It was Burmese. Yeah. And my perspective on it is this. There's Satanism, devil worship, occult stylings almost everywhere these days. It's strangely prevalent. And what you're getting at these revivals is a zone without that uh, dark undertone, without drag queen story time, without all these other crazy things that are going on out there in the world, right? It's a place where maybe, you know, there's not going to be Madonna dancing, the child sacrifice or whatever's going on on the stage, right? That's for other places. It's going on all over the place. You can get that everywhere. Go to your local bookstore and check out the assortment that is purveyed to the public and advertised to the public. So, it doesn't bother me that some people of faith who were discriminated against during the pandemic lockdowns, they discriminated against the uh, people who ran churches, people who ran bars, people who ran cafes and coffee houses and all these other things, make sure people had no place to talk in public about the things that they were experiencing. That is not accidental either. That was highly calculated. Well, and you can, can read their papers about how they were going to deal with dissent that they didn't even know was going to come from an accident that they didn't know was going to happen. Well, they kept the businesses uh, they considered deemed necessary, such as strip joints and weed uh, dispensaries liquor and stores, alcohol yeah. liquor stores. You know, they were considered necessary, whereas you know places of faith and worship were deemed to be uh, not so not safe. Yeah, not safe. Okay. Yeah, there's right. a, a lot of bravery and courage on display there, and uh, it, it's funny. I I skimmed a, a Rolling Stone article about. Clay Clark and the tour uh, from earlier this summer. And one of the funny things was that the writer, you know, was like he was talking about that he's a serial entrepreneur 
And somehow that's put in the piece as if that's something sketchy that he's run multiple you know, businesses and that he associates with other people that run multiple businesses. It's just yeah, fascinating. Someone's a little jelly there. Now, let me ask a question. Is, is that the same Rolling Stone that wrote uh, a cover story on uh, how to select the best weapon for mass school shootings? Because I'm pretty sure that they said like the AR-15 was the best weapon for mass school shootings. You know how I learned that? I learned that from watching the Nicholas Cruz trial because it was introduced as evidence. I'm pretty sure that's the trial I was watching. Uh, and I just think that's interesting that Rolling Stone can put out something that encouraged someone else to take lives and they are not banned, censored, canceled, sued out of existence whatsoever. It's almost as if, as, as if they are useful tools wittingly or unwittingly servicing the agenda of people who cover up for Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, a lot of them are true believers though. That's the problem. True believers in their own wayward ideologies. That's mm. what makes it even more terrifying that they would. Well, I'm glad that Rolling Stone provides a home that. for those folks. It's not all just Cameron Crowe anymore, kids, you know? Oh boy. It's late. It's not Hunter Thompson. Oh wait, Hunter Thompson wrote about child trafficking and, whole bunch of other stuff it's in the fear and loathing of las vegas drug trade pedophilia adrenochrome Mm -hmm. take your pick of you know conspiracy theories they come from rolling stone right there that's true without rolling stone people wouldn't know hunter s thompson that's a good point that's a fair point yeah he was not i'm not even gonna go down that road right now i don't want to get in trouble can not you? as prolific. Well, he's an interesting figure that I question his uh, talents. But anyways. Always question those who you can't talk about. All right. So heading into intermission tonight. Yep. Uh, so let me just get this on the record. A couple of people, couple of people asked me about this. I don't think we're going to get to this, but and I, I know very little about it. I just keep thinking Franklin cover up uh, 2022 style potentially. I have no idea what's going on, but uh, Jason Burmis has been following this story about what's going on in Utah. So uh, well, Derek Bros has been writing a whole series. Yeah, so Derek Bros is doing series. a whole series. Yeah. Um, I know if the first time I heard about it was from Burmis. And then I know now Derek Bros has been brought to my attention as well that he's writing a whole series on it. Burmis has been following it sort of in video format since it first broke. Um, he has a number of publications. And also, I want to give a shout out to Derek Bros' awesome work as well. So check out either of those two or both. Uh, uh, their perspective on what's going on in this Utah like child sex trafficking scandal situation. I don't really know the details. I've not. I only have so so many hours in a day, and I have a nine to five. So this is one of the things that I've actually when it first broke, I was hosting. This might have been back in June uh, when you guys were at. Um, uh, this could be a confabulation, but it was at Porkfest. Yeah. I actually mentioned this and wanted to play it as intermission piece, but again, it got too late for me, and that was the very first. Uh, no, I did play a little bit of it. And that was like the very first details of what was going on. So there's three videos I have here. Um, the dark, the children must be lying. Uh, this is too dark. Just Jason Burmis, 47 minute clip. I think that's behind a paywall. So I, su- I suggest that people uh, become a Rockfin subscriber uh, for Jason Burmis, get premium content. The other one is, is everything on the table in this ritualistic abuse case? Another Jason Burmis clip. And arrest made in Utah case, another Jason Burmis clip. Um, all of them are pretty lengthy. And as well, check out uh, Derek Bros's work that's going to be featured at uh, TLAV, Lost American Vagabond. Um, and make sure you follow up with his series. If you don't have time to necessarily want to watch these longer videos, you can maybe uh, catch snippets of um, some of the 
work that Derek Rose has done in regard to some of the details. They're pretty horrific from my understanding. We're talking about like Franklin cover-up-esque style shit going on here. So be careful um, how you research this. Make sure you give yourself some time away from topics such as this because it's very disheartening and quite literally unbelievable as many of the allegations and claims are made in the Franklin cover-up as an example. Uh, so that's that. I wanted to get that out there for people who are interested in following up with that story. Uh, there's another one, Musk's Optimus Robot in the Age of Spiritual Machines is another Jason Burmis clip. I think that's the one behind that's the one behind the, the uh, paywall. So become a Rockfin subscriber, get premium content. Uh, Dell Big Tree had safe and effective a second opinion. This is a fascinating. Um, uh, let me see if I could. I forget who Oracle Film Oracle Films in partnership with News Uncut presents safe and effective a second opinion. So apparently, it was, and I had it on the show card. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Dell Big Trees, Doctor Asim Mulhotra, uh, Mulhotra. Who, who was an NHS-trained consultant cardiologist, and he turned whistleblower about the mRNA vaccines. He was actually a promoter of the mRNA vaccines very early on and started to get information about uh, from friends and family and colleagues that there are some problems with going on with coronary heart disease, um, arterial disease, uh, these sorts of things. And so he actually ended up becoming a whistleblower and now did a documentary. Um, and obviously he's persona non gratis in regards to any sort of communication with the outlets that would frequent him quite often on the BBC and so forth. So that's a really interesting. Uh, so they play a portion, if not all of the documentary film um, on Del Big Tree show, the high wire this week, definitely worth checking out. He also interviews. Um, what was his name? Dr. Asim Malhotra uh, in the beginning of the show. So I have both of those time stamped and on the show card. And if you're interested, join uh, the GTW community. You'll get access to the show cards. So you can check those out. Obviously, the Jackson Report speaks for itself. And finally, I think the one we're probably going to end up showcasing is the conspiracy theories and other dangerous ideas. This is from the U.S. National Archives. And uh, you said you had some time stamps potentially there. Yeah, this is a... <clears throat> So we're going to go with that one, LD, the conspiracy theories and other dangerous ideas. And I'd like to cut into it when uh, the author, Cass Sunstein of Harvard University, takes the stage. And specifically, I want you to consider Dr. Sunstein's words. He's done a lot of research in these areas. He's uh, one of the esteemed uh, experts in the area of conspiracy theory in America, America along with... Uh, Lance DeHaven Smith and Anna Merlin of Republic of Lies. So uh, I don't mind reading the other side's claims, but I also like to try their claims on them as they're claiming that we do these things, right? So when you're hearing Dr. Sunstein go through and saying all these things, which might be true, they also apply to MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS, the whole mainstream media genre. Right. So every time he's saying there's a small group of extremists thinking these things, well, guess, guess what, buddy? There's a majority group of extremists who think these other incorrect things. So there's that. Particularly, I was inspired by the first question in the question and answer session when he gets to the end and they ask for questions. The first person at the mic is uh, the author of one of the first books I read on these topics. His name's James Lowen. He wrote Lies My Teacher Told Me, and he gives some really good, eloquent, classy pushback to Dr. Sunstein. And when Dr. Sunstein tries to uh, give him the Heisman, <clears throat> Lewin calls him out and says, well, that's the nicest way I've ever been insulted by saying I'm too smart. 
right? As a put down, right? So there's a there's an interesting crescendo at the end. That's why you know you might find it a little bit boring or dry. Try to pay attention because uh, Sunstein's paper is one of the more referenced uh, arenas of research that is used to uh, have conspiracy theory seen in a derogatory uh, sense in the word. And instead of what Lewin says, there are legitimate conspiracies and they are theories that should be looked into to find out what the facts are. And that those are usually off the radar of the people on the non-reading side of the equation. Whereas we, the readers, we like our data and information and we like it organized so that it's useful. So you can make understanding of it to make choices and decisions in your own life, but better yet to give wisdom to others to save them the, the peril and the pains of not having that information at a time when they have to make those decisions. So let's, uh, let's ease into it. It'll be uh, nice and easy. Cass Sunstein is promoting his book. He doesn't usually get a lot of pushback. So his part on stage is easy until James Lewin comes to the mic and asks him the question at the end. So um, I'm guessing how long's the intro prior to him taking stage, LD? I've got it queued up. All right, cool. Let's let it, uh, let it roll. Dr. Cass Sunstein of Harvard University, formerly of the Obama administration as well. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming. Special thanks to David, who has done a phenomenal job uh, serving the United States and open government and uh, really uh, uh, good records management, uh, as we often have thought and said, is the backbone of open government. And there's actually a connection between that and my topic today. So really hats off to what happens uh, under his watch. Uh, I'll tell you the origins of this, uh, in some ways, unlikely project. Uh, in uh, Colorado a few years ago, I worked with some colleagues to try to figure out what happens when people talk to each other. And what we did was we got people in Colorado Springs, which is a pretty conservative place, uh, to deliberate together in small groups about climate change, about same-sex unions, and about affirmative action. We recorded their views before they started to talk anonymously. We had them deliberate to a group verdict on those three issues to figure out what they thought as a group, and then to figure out what they thought to ask them to speak anonymously about their views after deliberation. Now, while we were doing this in a conservative area, Colorado Springs, we were doing exactly the same thing in a liberal area, Boulder, on the three issues, climate change, affirmative action, same-sex unions. Uh, what do you think would happen when the Colorado people talked with one another in conservative groups and also in liberal groups. Okay, here's what happened. The people in Colorado Springs started out pretty conservative on the three issues, but also there was a degree of diversity on the issues. After they talked to one another, in their private anonymous statements of view, they ended up much more extreme and much more cohesive on all three issues. So while they were skeptical about affirmative action and climate change before they started to talk, after they started to talk, they really disliked affirmative action and they thought climate change should not be addressed through an international agreement. With the liberals in Boulder, uh, Colorado, exactly the same thing happened. As they started to talk with one another, they became more extreme in their commitments, more confident and more unified. So what happened, and this was a surprise to me, I confess, 
is that while the people in Boulder and the people in Colorado Springs were on average not that far off before they started to talk, after their internal discussions among like-minded people, Colorado Springs went way to the right, Boulder way to the left, and the groups were very far apart. Now I think that is a microcosm really for what is happening at least in some parts of the social media and the United States every hour of every day. Where like-minded people speaking with one another end up more cohesive, more confident, and more extreme as a result of their internal discussions. So that's one avenue into this. Uh, another avenue into this is that the issue of conspiracy theories, and I'll say a little bit about this as, um, as we go on, um, is not only of interest in its own right, it tells us something about the formation of beliefs, political and otherwise, in general. So if you take false conspiracy theories, and of course a number of them are true, but if you take false ones and you wonder why do people believe these theories when they are intelligent and mentally stable, you can have an, an inroad into the formation of beliefs generally. And to get a little bit ahead of the story, many of the things we believe, in fact most of the things we believe, we lack direct sensory knowledge of. We know that our house looks a certain way and we know that our family members are a certain way. We know those things for sure. But whether George Washington existed, whether the Earth is round, whether Mars is real, these are things which we don't have at least direct sensory knowledge of. We know, and we do know them as much as we know most things, because of um, credible reports from people whom we trust. And that is human life, isn't it? And belief and disbelief in conspiracy theories has a lot to do with that, I'll be suggesting. Okay, this book has turned out to be more timely than I anticipated. Uh, conspiracy theories are indeed all around us. A poll in 2013 found that a significant percentage of people in the United States believe that climate change is a hoax and a product of the thinking of uh, conspiracy-minded types. Uh, significant numbers of people all over the world believe that the 9-11 attacks were done by the United States or by Israel. Uh, we can think of examples involving prominent political figures in the United States, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, where hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of people believe that they are behind or associated with some terrible conspiracy. Okay, where do conspiracy theories come from? It's tempting, and now I'm going to turn to the text, if you would, so I make at least fewer errors than I otherwise would. Um, it's tempting to think that the conspiracy theories come from uh, some sort of you know, emotional or, or other difficulty, maybe a lack of education, maybe some kind of individual pathology. That's not really right. We don't have a lot of evidence for that. We do find, however, that there are differences in people's propensity to accept conspiracy theories. So the first point to emphasize is that some people are conspiracists and others aren't, and probably a little internal introspection can give you a quick signal about which one you are. In fact, the best predictor of whether a given person is going to accept a conspiracy theory 
is whether they accept other conspiracy theories. People who think that the FBI killed Martin Luther King are especially likely to think that climate change is a hoax. More striking, research suggests that the tendency even extends to beliefs in mutually contradictory conspiracy theories, so that those who believe that Princess Diana faked her own death are also more likely to believe that she was murdered. <laughs> those who believe that John Kennedy fell victim to an organized conspiracy are also more likely to believe there was a conspiracy behind the success of the Red Bull uh, energy drink. A conspiracy theory that was invented purposely for the purpose of a social psychology study. So we do know that there are conspiracist tendencies, but putting to that, that to one side, I think we need to get away from individual psychology and instead to how information travels. There's a brilliant paper from a few years ago by a psychologist named Russell Harden with a uh, a fancy con a fancy name for a simple concept, I think. The, the name is the crippled epistemology of extremism. And what uh, Hardin urges is that when people know things that are false and extreme, it's often because their epistemology, their knowledge base, is crippled because everything they've heard goes in one direction and it's wrong. So when people hold extremist beliefs, hardened urges, and the extremist beliefs aren't, aren't consistent with reality, it's because they're subject to an information flow which drives them in a not-so-good direction. Now turn, if you would, to the study with which I began, our Colorado study involving climate change, same-sex relations, and affirmative action, and kind of give that a conspiracy theory twist and ask why is it that intelligent people who don't have a particular propensity to believe conspiracy theories will end up thinking something that's, that's false and that puts a spotlight on actors who conspired together to make something terrible happen. Okay, they are often subject to this phenomenon of group polarization, which is what happened in Colorado, which itself has two mechanisms behind it. In Boulder, what happened was the liberals talking with one another were hearing a lot of things about the scariness of climate change and the necessity for affirmative action. Now bracket the question whether what they were hearing was justified or not, there was an informational skew in the pool of points that they were subject to. Yes? By definition. This was a liberal group, so they were going to be hearing a lot of liberal arguments. So too in Colorado Springs, there was an informational skew in the sense that they were hearing a lot of points about why same-sex unions weren't a very good idea, potentially dangerous, and a lot of things about the evils of affirmative action. If they're listening to one another, and human beings do, then they will pick up on those arguments, and those arguments are going to move them in a direction that's more extreme. Now, if we give this a twist to think of whether climate change is a hoax, whether the 9-11 attacks actually happened, whether in some nation that's unfriendly to the United States, it's accurate to think that their unfriendliness is justified. If there's an initial disposition to think those things, they're going to be hearing a lot of arguments in favor of that position, and that will naturally move them in the direction of more extreme belief. Yes? So this is basically an informational account of how conspiracy theories spread. 
I want to add two wrinkles to the informational account, which is about group polarization, how people move toward a more extreme point in line with their initial tendency. And the first of these has to do with people's concern for their own reputation. If you're in a group of people who are interacting with one another, especially in person, but potentially online also, you want to uh, have a good reputation. You want them to think well of you. And if the position in the group is pushing hard in direction of hostility toward powerful actors, let's say, that suggesting agreement with that dominant tendency is going to be consistent with your reputational concern and putting pressure on the dominant opinion in the, in the group is going to weaken your position with the, within the group, won't it? So even if your concern is in part for truth, your presentation of what you think will be skewed by your concern for your own reputation. Now there's a kind of psychological kicker here that I think puts the reputational point in, uh, in bold letters. Here, here's the point. If you're talking to someone and they agree with you, you will typically think that they are more likable and more intelligent than you did before they agreed with you. There's another that's a little, uh, uh, a, a little more devastating, I think, about the potential consequences of social interaction. That is, if that person agrees with you, not only do you think that they're more likable and intelligent than you did before, you think that you yourself are more intelligent <laughs> and likable than you did before. Now that suggests that the social interaction in person and on online can push people in direction of agreement with a dominant tendency in, in a, with a group, even if their initial disposition is skeptical, and it can lead a group toward uh, commitment to conspiracist thinking. Okay, here's the third point behind the group polarization phenomenon that I'm describing. Within any interaction, if people are asked their opinion on some issue that's technical and complicated, whether it's what brought down an airliner or what nation is responsible for what bad thing, they will often speak, if they're not specialists, with a degree of tentativeness. They'll move to humility. Now suppose within that group, their initial tendency is corroborated by the agreement of seemingly credible others. Their caution is softened by virtue of the fact of corroboration. And that weakens the moderating force of humility, thus leading people towards greater extremism. So my first suggestion is that conspiracist thinking often is heightened as a result of the group polarization phenomenon that we saw in Boulder and Colorado Springs and all over the world when people are developing a commitment to a belief that actually lacks credibility, it's because objective credibility. It's because like-minded people are talking to one another and stirring each other up. Okay, there's another phenomenon that is related but distinct, and it also has a kind of complicated name. The name is an informational cascade. And here's how the idea works. Suppose you have a group of people who are talking with one another and they're in a kind of temporal cue, that is they're speaking in sequence. 
And let's suppose that the first person in the group suggests a commitment to some fact. Let's say that there's a hoax behind conspiracy theory or that some terrible deed was done by the United Kingdom. The second person in the queue then has a choice. Do you agree with the person or not? Now, if the second person in the queue, and I'm hoping this is mapping on to political or other discussions that are kind of familiar from everyday life, the second person in the queue will, will think either, I'm going to agree with that person or I'm not. And if the person doesn't really know the truth, that is, the person is either in equipoise or just um, facing the issue for the first time, the likelihood is that the person will find that original statement credible enough to justify assent. And then we have two people in a temporal queue who are agreeing that the United Kingdom is responsible for something terrible. Then there's a third person, and this is a stylized example of what happens all the time, a third person in the queue who's confronted with the unified view of, let's say, Albert and Barbara, which is uh, accusing the United Kingdom of something terrible. The third person now has some informational pressure on his back, doesn't he? That Albert and Barbara both think this thing, and then this third person, Charles, will have to either have courage or knowledge to justify disagreement with them. And if they're in a group that has some sort of um, dynamic, such that Charles has to say whether he agrees with Albert and Barbara, chances are, under not unreasonable assumptions, that Charles will rationally say, I think that too. And we actually know that this happens from studies of jury behavior, where a third juror in a queue who has said privately, I think the defendant is innocent, will sometimes say when the Albert and Barbara have said guilty, guilty. And then when asked, why do you think that afterwards, the person who switched his view simply by virtue of having heard the first two speakers will say it's obvious, guilty, even though his own independent judgment was otherwise. Now, once you have three people in the queue, A, B, and C, all, be, all saying, that the United Kingdom is responsible for something terrible, then a third person, Douglas, say, is under a lot of informational pressure to self-silence. The informational cascade is often responsible for the rise of conspiracy theories, especially when there's someone, let's call it a conspiracy entrepreneur, who has started the conspiracy, either because of uh, some uh, ideological commitment or because of some uh, personal goal, which may be fame or attention, then you can get something going, going like crazy. Okay. If you followed me on group polarization, the Colorado Springs Boulder study, which I'm mapping onto the conspiracy theory uh, situation, I think you'll be able to see that the informational cascade that I've described has a sibling, which is the reputational cascade. And it looks very similar to the informational cascade, except that the Barbers and Charleses and Douglases of the world are responding not to their own belief that the earlier speakers were right, 
but are responding to their own fear that if they don't speak out uh, in, in agreement with the emerging wisdom, so to speak, of the group, they will face some sort of reputational sanction, which at the modest point would be a little more dislike. At the less modest point would be actual physical threat, which often happens in um, groups that have conspiracy theories which are most uh, dangerous and threatening to the United States. In those groups, the third and fourth and fifth speakers or actors in a queue self-silence, not because they actually agree or speak out in accord with the conspiracy theory, not because they have much of a inside their heads commitment to it, but because their personal risks are severe. Okay, so now we have group polarization as an explanatory factor, we have informational cascades as an explanatory factor, and we have reputational cascades as an explanatory factor. All parasitic on the understanding that some people have conspiracist predispositions, just a fact. Okay, I want to mention just one further point by way of, um, of getting the mechanisms out, maybe one and a half. Okay, the, the, one, the, the full one point has to do with a uh, psychological mechanism which uh, helped get uh, Daniel Kahneman the Nobel Prize in 2002. And it's called the availability heuristic, which is also maybe uh, too jargony to be ideal. But the notion is if people are asked to make a probability judgment, they often um, focus on whether an event readily comes to mind. So if you're asked how many words on a random page have as the last three letters ing, you might well say a large number, because it's easy to think of ing were ending words. If you're asked how many words on a random page have as the second to last letter N, you might not say that many. A lot of people don't say that many because it's a little cognitively trickier to come up with words that have as the second last letter N. So some people will say more ING words on a random page than N, though that can't be true, right? Every ING word is a second to last letter N word, and there are plenty others of which one is AND itself. Okay, that's ING words are available. Now, more people tend to think that more people die of homicide than suicide. The opposite is true. It's because homicide deaths are uh, cognitively available, suicide deaths typically less so. And availability can lead our minds astray by making for probability judgments that aren't quite right. And the salience of a widely publicized event can kind of drive the mind in particular directions. Okay, what I want to suggest here is that conspiracy theories are often building on the availability heuristic, meaning a salient event which triggers either confusion or outrage or fear, and whose outlet is a conspiracy theory. So if you have something terrible that's happened, either through human action or through uh, random events, then the fixation on that thing needs an outlet, which is often an explanation. And that can initiate the process of informational or reputational cascades. A little footnote referring to the uh, fact that often the terrible events that generate conspiracy theories really do have a randomness behind them. Um, the author of a book called, uh, a graphic novel called 
uh, watchman named Alan Moore. Those of you who are graphic novel fans will know this as an iconic uh, book. And uh, Alan Moore is the kind of genius of uh, the modern era of graphic novels. And he's not, I think one wouldn't describe him as um, a member of the establishment. That's not how you describe him. He's himself iconoclastic in multiple ways. And he apparently spent a few years studying conspiracy theories, and his, which you might think, given his uh, imagination, he'd be drawn to. And his conclusion was that the conspiracy theories just aren't right. I'm going to put it less eloquently than he did because conspiracy theories miss the extent of randomness and coincidence in the world, which often drives events. Okay, so there's availability, meaning events, which tr trigger conspiracy thinking. Uh, and now I'll give you the half, the, the half of the, the final little bit of conspiracy theories. I've mentioned, I've tried to attribute conspiracy thinking to information flows and reputational concerns within groups. But how do groups form and why don't they have the requisite diversity? Okay, one reason often is a leader who is imposing social sanctions on people who depart from the group's orthodoxy. That's clear. But one reason also has to do with selection in and selection out. So as you get people selected into groups, particularly dangerous book groups, but also groups that are harmless but, um, uh, but obsessed, there are people who are filtering into groups and people who are selected out of groups, either through their own volition or involuntarily, because they are, in some respect, infidels. And that suggests that the process of group polarization, which is most intense if like-minded people are talking to one another, has a natural um, fuel, which is the process of selection in and selection out. As people who are skeptics or unsure leave the group, then the social influences that move the group toward ex more extremism uh, are heightened, aren't they? Because the people who aren't sure aren't there anymore. And that creates like little, uh, a tight knot of, of believers. Okay, a couple of qualifications and then a concluding note. I haven't said anything about what should be done about conspiracy theories. Uh, the greatest safeguard against false conspiracy theories is an open and democratic nation. So there's something um, you know, perfect about delivering these remarks at the National Archives insofar as there are uh, open uh, processes and requirements of transparency, then the, uh, the informational base for conspiracy theories is, that are false is uh, severely compromised, which is why you see often in societies that are authoritarian and unfree, where openness isn't allowed, a kind of flowering of conspiracy theories, not at all from crazy people, but from people who rightly can't trust their government and don't know what's true, and develop a theory which is uh, not less plausible than a range of other theories just because they don't have an informational base on which to build. So the remedy number one for the rise of false conspiracy theories uh, has its roots in our First Amendment 
and the panoply of liberties that the First Amendment uh, is associated with. Um, the uh, other point is I haven't said anything about particular conspiracy theories. So uh, I, I don't mean to say that any particular one is right or wrong. Uh, I have my views on some of those, but that uh, is uh, independent of the theory of the paper. Okay, a few closing words. Here you go. These are the closing words of this particular chapter. Uh, some people have a propensity to accept conspiracy theories as reflected in the finding that people who tend to believe one are likely to believe in another, even if the two are in direct contradiction. Many people who accept conspiracy theories, at least if they're false, suffer from a crippled epistemology. Their beliefs are a function of what they hear, which is a way of saying they are fully rational. They are responsive to what they're hearing. For that reason, isolated social networks are breeding grounds for conspiracy theories. In some cases, the theories help to fuel violence all over the world, and we are seeing it. To reduce the risk, it's indispensable first to understand how those theories arise and why perfectly reasonable people, not in any deep sense different from others, come to hold them even if they're palpably false. Conspiracy theories that are false are, of course, an extreme case, but an understanding of the mechanisms that lie behind them helps shed light on the formation of political beliefs, beliefs in general and on why some of those beliefs go wrong. Thanks. So questions and comments. So uh, my name's Jim Lowen. I wrote a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me, which is an analysis of uh, American history textbooks. Uh, and I've read more of them than any other living person. A stupid Bless career you. choice. Bless you. And I suggest to you, I got a suggestion and then I have a question. Uh, my suggestion is that our high school history textbooks are a uh, good uh, petri dish to breed conspiracy thinking because they pretty much eschew any discussion of causation. And since, so things just kind of happen one after another and uh, certainly the government is never responsible for anything bad and therefore there's no solid thinking that goes on in response to these textbooks and uh, social studies and history in high school become a, they're always the least liked course in every survey in the country and they seem to have no relevance to the present and they have no uh, corrective influence therefore uh, toward the kind of thinking that might uh, dispel uh, untoward acceptance of conspiracy theories. Just something for you to think about. Um, my question is um, isn't the unqualified rejection of conspiracy theories just as simple-minded as their unqualified acceptance? And, and this gets to then, aren't there at least a couple of conspiracy theories that we all should be thinking about seriously and, and maybe believing? Well, I, I don't know if I'd uh, say equivalence, but I do agree that an unqualified rejection of conspiracy theories would be evidence-free thinking. So everything depends on evidence. Uh, Watergate was a conspiracy. So um, 
it would well, be it's, very, that's very, an easy one because we accept that. But I, I submit that a couple of ones that we don't accept as a nation, uh, at least as a government, such as perhaps the the single person murder of. Kennedy followed by the single person murder of Oswald or the single person murder of Martin Luther King followed by that person from rural Arkansas's successful emigration to England and Belgium and so on, that those are maybe things that we all should be thinking okay, about. I, 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 I want to bracket the particular ones, uh -huh. but, but say something that bears on your obvious uh, knowledge of at least some of the examples you described. One thing I've noticed that's that's been fascinating to me in talking about this book is that the people who believe in conspiracy theories, whether or not they're warranted in the facts, so we're bracketing that, tend to be extremely knowledgeable. They're, they are information rich. Mm -hmm. So the, the people who've come to me with, let's say, plausible conspiracy theories and also truly bizarre conspiracy theories they have a lot of information. So to, to, to argue, for anyone in this room to argue with them on the merits would be challenging. Not just because they're zealous. In fact, not mostly because they're zealous. Because they know so much. And that's connected, isn't it, with, with the thesis about the rise of conspiracy theories. So the, the focus of the remarks were on false conspiracy theories and how they arise, but of course there are there are true ones. I mean, some of the worst events in the 20th century um, are associated with conspiracy theories that are rooted in something that actually happened. I'm going to leave, but I do feel a little bit strange for being dismissed for having known too much. But that's no, I didn't. I didn't. I, 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 I apologize if that was the uh, that was the. I wasn't talking about you in particular, and I, I, I tried to say emphasize that you're right. Some conspiracy theories are true, and people who um, propagate them, the true ones, they know a lot. Well, you know, I, I have to take a borrow from your, your talk this morning when you said uh, uh, conspiracy theories which are dangerous or threatening to the United States. Um, you once co-authored a, a, a paper in which you advocated infiltrating the 9-11 truth movement. And as you stated correctly, uh, there are thousands of people in this country and around the world, many thousands, who don't believe the official story what happened on September 11th. Uh, even the 9-11 Commission stated that they were misled uh, by the government. Uh, my question to you is, do you still believe what you stated there? And uh, to me, it's difficult uh, to understand how you could, in your, in your book, why societies need dissent, and yet you, you call uh, you called for the need to infiltrate the 9-11 Truth Movement. Did you, while you were in the government, the Obama administration, did you endeavor to carry out that effort? Okay, so, so none of the academic writing I did on these topics had any connection with my work in the government. So my work in the government It's almost was like two different people did the work. Go ahead and pause it. Yeah, this is so frustrating. I, I don't like, even know. You know, he wrote a paper where they wanted to infiltrate 9-11 truth groups, 
and uh, intellectually corrupt them, make them deep capture. Yeah. Maybe I set them. Cass. We used to talk about him back yeah. ten years ago, all the time. Yeah, he's not he new to the scene, his, yeah. and I have no disrespect for Doctor Sunstein. I I read his work and I take him seriously. Now, on what he said, there's a lot of different ways. Hold no card yeah, on it. There's a lot of different it. ways to interpret some of the things he said. So I have a few notes myself. I'm going to take a sip. <sighs> Conspiracy minded. I'm listening to him objectively, and I try these things on as he says them. I didn't believe in conspiracies prior to 9 11. And witnessing what I witnessed that morning and learning what I've learned in the 21 years since researching those events, it wasn't on my radar. I believed the things I was taught in school. I had not yet read, read Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lewin. So that is which, by the way, does have yeah. some. I like I like that book a lot, but there are some problems with it too. Oh, to sure, be fair. There's some. But it was problems. a newbie book. I got it at Barnes it and Noble. It's like when it you was. go there to be like, does anyone know about anything outside the narrative? He's like, he's got a book there. And yeah, so no, does I agree. Uh, Bill. Cooper. And I appreciate it. Yeah, the hold yeah. of pale horse is yeah, always at Barnes horse. and Noble. Yeah. Now he talks about social influences, <laughs> heightened awareness. You mean like what Don Lamont and CNN and MSNBC and all those channels do? Little echo chamber. If you don't like it, they leave. There's they they censor to dissent. That's a problem. Censorship feeds extremism. That's right. Censorship creates unreasonable doubt, unnecessary doubt, and that's where conspiracy theories start. It didn't because hold of censorship, on. national security, and secrets in the first fucking place. Then people who study those situations try to hypothesize what's in the missing pieces. Right. I totally agree with that, but yeah. I just want to push back a tiny bit um, right. with what Cass just said, because he said because of the First Amendment, it helps to create a, a foundation or breeding ground for the potential for conspiracies arising. So, like, what you're saying is because, in other words, there is censorship or there's the, the, the imposition of censorship in some capacity. That is they actually what fuels it, yes. extreme. Yes, and yes, imposing it. Um, that actually fuels extremist thinking, which I 100% agree with. Yet at the same time, I just heard him said one of the problems is the not that he's saying it's a problem, but we have as part of the Bill of Rights, first ten amendments, first very first amendment enshrines our ability for free speech, encapsulates that, and enshrines it as the number one um, freedom that we have as individuals. To well, I just happened to have pulled up a quote while you're talking. Because Eisenhower had these words on free speech. I actually wrote out this speech by hand and I framed it and it's in my office upstairs. Part of this speech uh, goes like this. Speaking at Dartmouth's commencement exercises in 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower had this to say about openness to ideas you disagree with. Don't join the book burners. Don't think you're going to conceal faults by concealing evidence that they ever existed. Don't be afraid to go into your library and read every book, as long as any document does not offend our own ideas of decency. That should be the only censorship. How will we defeat communism? Oh, this is interesting, because that's what J. Edgar Hoover and uh, John Stormer were talking about three hours ago when we were reading those books. How will we defeat communism unless we know what it is, what it teaches, and why 
does it have such a appeal for men? Why are so many people swearing allegiance to it? It's almost a religion, albeit one of the nether regions. And we've got to fight it with something better, not try to conceal the thinking of our own people. They are part of America. And even if they think ideas that are contrary to ours, their right to say them, their right to record them, and their right to have them at places they're accessible to others is unquestioned, or it's not America. Is that why we need the 9-11 Commission or the Warren Commission or these various other commissions that tell us what to think? Yeah, so censorship creates unnecessary doubt. It erodes trust. It is the originating place of conspiracy theories. Censorship feeds extremism, and it removes it from the radar. You can't see what these people are talking about anymore because they're over there now, and you can't see them. I don't think that's a good thing. I'd rather have these people saying the things out and open so we know who they are and who's saying them. Just like when Klaus does it, I think it's great. He publishes these books right here and says it. We don't have to go. It's not a secret. He's not whispering. He's yelling it. They make videos. They got marketing budget, bro. They're doing this. Yeah, I agree. Now, a couple more points. David Rockefeller's memoirs, for example. The Alan Moore. Dude, you're digging up some culture. Oh, he's a. I'm a big fan of Alan Moore, and I appreciate a lot of his perspective. I've read his graphic novels. He makes it sound like graphic novels have been done for thousands of years. He's like, he's the modern contemporary. No, he invented fucking graphic novels basically to make them popularized in culture. He popularized them. He became an icon. Yeah. And through that, V for Vendetta, they just took all that, that, that whole look from V for Vendetta and used it for the Biden speech. They're using Alan Moore like props and stuff. So, extent of randomness. With all respect, Mr. Moore, there is plenty of randomness and uncertainty. However, why are there so many coincidences? Why, when you read Iran-Contra and then look at like who's the shadow arms dealers of the world, and you write, and then you read Whitney Webb's One Nation Under Blackmail, and then you read Who Done It of 9-11, it's all the same couple names. Why is that? If there's so much randomness in the world, why aren't there like 10,000 different names and everything's like, why is it so much overlap? I think that's a little unnatural, I could maybe artificially created. At least well, hold on, some I got a couple of, more. Okay, yeah. Uh, even if in direct contradiction, these people believe these things, he's saying conspiracy theorists. What about the people who love Fauci? And he says, mass, no mass, whatever he says is the right thing for them. Right. And then he, he also, has this yeah. isolated networks. You mean like CNN, MSNBC, all those echo chambers over there, all you know, Fox too. I'm not, not saying right or left. I'm just saying the whole genre milieu of it yeah. is echo chambery. And the censorship makes it even more extreme. And we are not the ones censoring. They're the ones censoring. So they're making it more extreme. They probably know this because they have a budget. Now, last last two points. This informational cascade that he talks about. Uh, Reputational cascade. Bob and Sue say this. So you don't want to go up against them. So you just adopt their view. Yeah, that's the echo chamber of the Fauci mask. Take the vaccine, get four jabs, then take Paxlovid and don't see any of the contradictions. That also describes that group. So while Dr. Sunstein is correct, it could be applied to conspiracy theorists. It also applies to the majority who are the uh, information poor. Because as he said, the information rich are the conspiracy theorists. They're the ones with lots of details and ideas that he can't even fit in his consciousness right now because he's taking the money and all that cheddar. 
keeps him loyal to like, hey, let's infiltrate the 9-11 groups and stuff, right? I mean, he's like, that's the way it has to be because conspiracy theory is dangerous. People thinking that Israel had anything to do with 9-11 are dangerous. So he would probably find this book. Where is it? Let's see. This book would probably be way dangerous. Solving 9-11, the deception that changed the world by Christopher Bolin. Or he would even think this book is dangerous. Another 19, investigating legit 9-11 suspects. However, the same people in this book are also featured in this book. One Nation Under Blackmail. They're in volume one. They're in volume two. So how are all these things overlapping, Mr. Moore, if these are all random circumstances and these people aren't coordinating? You know what? I got another question. Is that a fair representation of Moore's perspective entirely? No, I don't think so. And to be fair to Alan, you and I are still friends. I'm just taking I'm taking the piss. okay? because he takes a psychological standpoint on this like it, the conspiracies transcend it's there's a transcendent component based on human behavior so you can name all the names dates and facts you want but there's still a component of human behavior that's going to manifest the types of behaviors that we see that we deem to be conspiracies even if they are factual well there's still a cr- crippled epistemology to be dealt with there tony yeah i'm not disagreeing i'm just saying like it goes to a larger it goes to something more foundational about the human condition has to do with human psychology and behavior that makes well, it so like we can the names and dates and places might change that the the machinations will still reign supreme and so like there's something more foundational i think Moore would argue for i'm not saying he's correct i'm just saying there's a little bit more nuance between behind Moore's perspective and i'm probably not even well i don't think Moore's read any of the books that. i just re- referenced first off think i think it's would. a misappropriation of Moore's words to fit Cass That's Sunstein's fair. argument to make a next step about it. Yep. And then, you know, I could tear it up from there, but that's not the point. He also talked about information rich versus therefore information poor. And I think there's a, there's a spectrum that's going on. There's a group of voters who are information poor and they're dependent on assuming that whatever the obedient people are on TV are saying to them, they believe that. And then there's information rich people. And they say, we heard what you said. But we also have access to this infinite resource called the internet, and we know how to type and think and ask questions and conceive like conceive of ideas and comprehend. And we're going to take a higher path. And some people who want to control and shrink consciousness of the human beings, they don't have time for all that information, bro, because it's pragmatic pragmatic thinking, survival of the fittest. They got the drop. They're in the control position. They own the science. You heard them seven hours ago. They said they own the science. No, you're right. They're trying to get Grand Theft World. There's one massive fallacy here. Which one? That encapsulates all this. And James Lowen, I believe his name, the author that wrote uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, pointed it out. Um, Was it him or was it the next speaker? They were both pretty awesome, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Or the next questionnaire, questionnaire, I should say. (laughs) The guy's like, I know you just shit over 9-11 truth, but I'm going to ask a question anyway (laughs) and go fuck yourself. I think it was James Lowen at the very end. That the the fallacy is ad hominem, so it's a appeal to the person attacking the person, but it's a it's a modality or form of ad hominem called tu quoque. Mm-hmm. It's a Latin for you too. And I think it was James Lone who pointed out that like, yet you're saying all of this, but couldn't the same be true to those who dismiss conspiracies? And that's exactly what I would point out. Is like we can talk a lot of this stuff. I'm sorry, is not academically that interesting anthropologists have known about in-group preference and follow the leader behavior and hierarchical organization of biological systems including humans for a very long time all he's done is put it in the realm of conspiracy and he done some basic tests with these focus groups or but also milgram experiment 
That's sure. a peer pressure type thing because it's an yeah. authority figure. What about the other experiments where they have the people sitting in the row and they're like, uh, 100 plus three is what? And they're like, 105, 105, 105. Then you doubt yourself. You're like, 105. There's that whole set of experiments, true, sure. right? Would that apply with the minority with the fringe conspiracy things? Or would that apply with the majority of all the megaphones saying, you know, all those clips where they say the same thing on every fucking channel, dude? That's the two quote. Okay. That's right. That's but he's not considering that on his well, scales. Like I'll see your argument, Mr. Sunstein, Dr. Sunstein, I'll see and hear your argument, but you're not weighing anything on your side of the fucking scale, man. And he's making assumptions himself, like climate change, for example. I wanted to state this earlier. And I'm trying very had- hard as a human being not to do that, but I'm having trouble bridging the gap with the, you know, the contradictions that they seemingly accept. And like AOC just said in her recent uh, GQ spread, she accepts the double thing. She thinks it's a cool thing. And Orwell warned about it like, bro, this stuff's going to happen in the future if you guys don't do anything about it. And they dumbed us down to the point where we love it, apparently. Not we, me and Tony, but like, the, you know, the people out there. And, and in general, la, la, population. Land. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff, they use the jargon, you know, uh, academic jargon in order to describe what is, again, anthropologically recognized phenomenon and behavioral science in regards to animal behavior and then being able to juxtapose that and sort of um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but uh, understand and transference in regards to how it applies on the human level. In other words, like informational cascade, as far as reputational cascade, yeah, people, one, they're going to follow the orthodoxy of the leader and they, they there's in-group preference. And that actually, he actually missed a point that we tie up our beliefs and our identity you forgot about that one, which makes it very difficult to separate ourselves from those identities. It was used so, the whole campaign for the vaccines and getting peer pressure right. to get people to get the experimental uh, gene. It became a religious situation. Out. Like it was it happy a, hour. Right. It became a religious situation. Any dissent was uh, immediately castigated as being uh, extreme. That's right. A religious situation. Is it like the Clay Clark religious situation? No, it's a different religious no, situation. Totally different. This is where yeah. you remove. But Clark's not taking away by people's censoring and, and science without truth becomes a cult. That's right. A religion that is a cult. That scientism, science exists over here. They just fucking kicked it off the ride. Scientism right. is like, oh, we're just going to make it like, you know, we're going to censor dissenting views. We're going to freeze the science. We're going to own the science. And you're going to take it. Yeah. I mean, if there, I mention this all the time, but the documentary Star Sucker came out in 2009. But I really encourage people to go watch that because a lot of what Cass Sunstein is stating has already been well researched by again, anthropologists and biologists in the realm of Oxford and Harvard. And that's a lot of these uh, individuals that were presented in that documentary. We're all just hoping LD would hit that button. Take it. There we go. That makes it all worthwhile. Go back to talking about cast on as far as like to keep audience retention up. I learned something from Mr. Beast today. Availability versus Jimmy. (laughs) One of the, let me just say this, the contradictory issue so like i call it out all the time i think there's a lot of epistemological cartoons i think in the capacity for what's happened in COVID 19 individuals have been polarized and they're more likely to believe in very cartoonish conspiracies or go down catch webs rabbit holes that quite frankly aren't factual even if there seems to be a lot of circumstantial data surrounding them i actually try to push back against that and try to be very careful this is one of the reasons why i teach logic i teach the trivium because we're thinkers bro 
Right. And that's why we don't, you know, it's very difficult because there are situations where it does require a lot of nuanced understanding and also an under, uh, realization that we don't have all the facts. We have to be careful to make judgments in those areas. But well, nuance will be details of the specifics. Am I correct in understanding that word? That's correct. Because yeah. it seems like cats, of gray. I'm sorry, it seems like Dr. Sunstein only wants to talk about things in generalities and stays the fuck away from anything with specifics. As he did with uh, James Lowen, who pointed out about um, uh, Oswald, you know, mm -hmm. the lone gunman theory. Let's not talk about Arlen Specter, senator from Pennsylvania. That's well, he said it was one of the examples of conspiracy theories. If you think that Israel had something to do with 9-11, if you think the FBI had something to do with Martin Luther King, like there's evidence to all these things, bro. Absolutely. I'm not saying oh, they're yeah. the only people that had a hand in what about it. about USS Liberty? I'm just saying they're there. Yeah, USS Liberty is another great one. In fact, I have a USS Liberty T-shirt. Maybe I'll wear it next week. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, what I mean, but he brought he me. brings up something about they're they will believe in conspiracies that will contradict their own conspiracies. That to me means that people are asking questions. That like uh, my first thought is like, what happens? Okay, so they realize that maybe what they're being told isn't true. So they're considering a bunch of different theories, and some of them may contradict some of the theories they may hold. And well, so I have a question on that because I'm trying to comprehend what you're saying. I'm thinking real hard about it. Now, is that something like Obama bragging that he's really good at killing people and then him also winning a Nobel Peace Prize? And people are like, both of those things are cool with me. Is that what you're talking about? That would be a contradiction. But yes, that is. I offer you for your consideration. Exhibit B, Obama. <laughs> I just but in the context of what Dr. Sunstein was stating yes. is that the, it's the conspiracy theorists themselves. One, they're not unintelligent. They obviously oftentimes have enormous amounts of facts. And I think a lot of times conspiracy theorists, theor theorizers, if you will, picking up terms, do just inundate individuals with facts and their logic can be pretty bad. That's something I try to point out quite frequently. If their logic's bad, like, uh, dismiss is arbitrary. Exactly. But However, the problem is, at least I don't think the structure of people with high information being dismissed by people with low information because they can say conspiracy theory. And that like makes the whole thing oh, crumble. Yeah. I don't I, think that that holds up architecturally. Like we could get some engineers in there and stress test it and see what the load bearing is of it. But I don't think it holds. It's just the point is, I think like he mischaracterizes the idea of these conspiracy theories holding contradictions to their own theories, other theories that would contradict the theories that they actually would agree with. My point is, well, couldn't you just state that they're actually considering because they know they've been lied to in this one capacity or they have evidence that shows that the official narrative is not what it seems to be, that they might consider a bunch of different theories, even if they sort of uh, prop up or consider one as being more substantial than another. That's that's the question I would have for Dr. Sunstein. He's like, he's there oftentimes they contradict them, themselves essentially by, uh, you know, believing in uh, contradictory conspiracy theories at the same time, perhaps, or perhaps they're considering all the bunch of different theories because we don't have all the evidence and the absence of the evidence, you have to consider potential. Now, my problem is with the catch webs is a lot of people then go into really extreme territory and I say, roll it back, be careful, just be yeah, careful, no need to be exercise extreme. logic, exercise logic based on the facts. Don't throw away. I, I was very appreciative, for example, of Derek Bros understanding that no, there's complexity to science. We can't just throw science away, which I think a lot of people wanted to do with what happened with the pandemic because we were to lied to about the nature of the vaccine, nature of the virus, you know, all these uh, other questions of the therapeutics, all these sorts of things. And so it's very easy to become very polarized. But to your point, Rich, they didn't allow for open discourse, open open debate. Whether it's you know germ theory, train theory, whether it's um, you know vaccines, mRNA platforms, whatever, they didn't allow for open debate. There is one consensus viewpoint, 
And science, there is no such thing as consensus in science. That's a, that's a false mentality. Um, that's a false understanding of how science is conducted. Science is just a refined form of induction. Just a, so this a coming up with a single, I'm going to tie it all together. Watch this. This coming up with a single narrative early on prior to doing the investigation, whether it's 9-11 or the Katzenbach Road Scholar memo for JFK saying Oswald did it Sunday night and here's the closed case. Or what was the other thing that, that had another? We talked about the Watergate. Watergate, but there was another one that was more recent. It's like uh, predetermined. Oh, like the Great Reset was planned before the COVID even broke out. They were Johnny on the spot with like, here's the whole plan. And Prince Charles and I are going to do this thing. Yeah. When it's all predetermined before it even comes out, I'm a little suspicious about that. And then when they say after doing exercises, they never thought such things could happen. And the same guy's done TED Talks on that very thing that happened. I'm, again, a little incredulous and... I, I won't be gaslit again. I'm just frustrated by Dr. Kess or Dr. Sunstein in this capacity that he's class. He's just a classic academic that pre presents academic jargon, makes it seem like it's very dressed up and very intellectual. When in fact, these are very basic understandings again, from anthropology, biology, and in, in regards to the in-group preference and follow the leader mentality and echo chamber mentality. Like when he uses informational cascade, reputational cascade, the availability of information versus probability theory, all these different, all this, you know, this technical jargon he uses, which is for really simple phenomena that most people can recognize for participating Just in for various the probability theory, Tony. The bin Ladens do business with the bushes. The bin Ladens attack the bushes on 9-11 like the whole thing like there's too many coincidences there's not enough randomness that's why we all smell a rat so there is something to the observations of alan moore juxtaposed to the claims of dr sunstein but like uh yeah alan moore and the famous who watches their, the watchman up their intelligence as well well that's a good uh, actually at the end of the iran contra report it says who will watch the watchers and the theme of this show is we watch the watchers. We watch them every week. We see what they're doing. We're letting you know what they're doing. And uh, these non-elected rulers who brought about globalism and its new world order, I don't think they're natural. I think they know what they're doing is wrong. Otherwise, they would openly admit it and yell it from the mountaintops and say, instead of saying it in like closed groups at Davos among themselves. I disagree, they, actually. I think they believe in it. I really believe, I think they really believe they're doing, Sen and I talk about this quite often, but these people are so ideologically possessed by their own ideas. They truly believe the planet is, is being threatened by uh, human production, materialism, uh, industry, so forth and so on. They really, most, I'm not saying there aren't some that behind closed doors clandestinely understand that they might be a larger conspiracy. Um, but yeah, I'm I, saying I, most I'm of them referencing are true believers. Where they said, hey, we got to make this thing up to control people and get them all in the same Sure, page. but most of the people in the UN or the Council on Foreign Relations, they don't know about those books. And I'm telling you, right, they don't, they're just, no, they're the Council on Foreign Relations, they wouldn't. And the United Nations, but that makes those are outer circles. But the inner circles, people. yeah, but the inner circles of all those groups know exactly about what I'm talking about. Sure. So possibly, yeah, even possibly. I mean, even KC3, his book Harmony and the influences that uh, ended up, uh, what's the word, molding his mind, if you will, in that, within that perspective or that milieu or that context, it's hard to say that he might not believe, like he may actually well, believe. I, it. I agree. Like, if that's watching the, his podcast, you could have a better point. meta view of what's going on than a lot of the characters involved in the actual play there. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah. Or like, 
it's because they're going to claim as being a conspiracy that, hence why they're speaking about it out loud they really truly believe there's something wrong with the human species mm, they need to control it i i have to i think it goes to human psychology i think that we in the past have cut them too much fucking slack in that area and i have a ton of quotes from birch and russell and a whole bunch of other people who knew very well that they were going to favor themselves, favor their races over the other races. And they believed it though. That's the thing. They believed it. Like what I'm trying to okay. say is like, they believe it. Like they to them. It's not a real conspiracy. They're just like, this is what we believe. We're going to talk about amongst our, 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 our very small clique of individuals. Just and like they the tell the public something very different though. That's my point. If, they, oh, yeah, if that's what they were doing was bankrupt. right and wholesome, they would just tell the public straight up, Hey, we blew up flight 93 because we wanted national defense or we let the thing hit the Pentagon because national but again whatever. they believe that they're doing the right thing by telling lies that's how well, twisted no, 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 their no, no, own no, mindset no. is again i'm gonna i'm gonna beg to differ do you think they're doing it because you, it's the right thing or do you think some no of these i'm not doing saying it it's the right thing time? i think they believe that they're doing the right thing right. And that humankind is too foolish and too stupid and that they have a justification pragmatically to control mm. us i would think if that's, that's true, how they rationalize they wouldn't need it. to blackmail so many people bro there's a lot of people who don't buy into any of this climate stuff. They don't think it's for the planet. They know it's a gangster op and they do it because they're blackmailed into it. They do it because they're in a power tit sucking situation they can't get off of. That's actually another one. Actually talking about uh, climate change real quick. That's another thing that kind of drove me nuts that Dr. Sunstein was bringing up. Like people believe that climate change isn't real in the 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 Colorado Springs exercise with the conservatives or something like that. I'm like, well, have you ever looked at the counter evidence? I mean, I have a whole bunch of things I could share. Why do they here. need to modify the weather if it's modifying itself already? Why do well, you even, need bio let's not even go there. nature's but, making chimeras that can infect everybody on a pandemic level? But even let's get away from that stuff. Even yeah. if like the getting away from that stuff, there's not enough consistent evidence and there's been enough pushback from so many academics in regards to the climate narrative, anthropogenic global warming that's caused by uh, carbon emissions. And so the burning of fossil fuels and industry and so forth and so on. Like that, I mean, we could go into, for example, when Don LeMond earlier mm -hmm. tonight goes into, uh, tries to bait that um, meteorologist into saying like, well, you see, I used to live in Florida and they're way more intense now. And he's like, well, we can't really tie it to climate change. These events do happen. We have to be careful here. And here's a BBC article, climate change, extreme weather events, now the new norm. But, but then you have this, a critical assessment, of extreme event trends in uh, global warming. And then the abstract says, daily precipitation intensity, extreme uh, per, uh, precipitation frequency are stated. Yeah, they haven't changed. Basically, and none of these response indicators show earlier, a clear positive trend of extreme events. None of these response indicators show a clear positive trend of extreme events. And there's this. DPJ scientific study. This came out in uh, why isn't so you're saying there's nothing to worry about. Well, somewhere you're saying in science says there's nothing to worry about. These other people, I'm have saying an echo chamber of saying there's something to worry about, including Dr. Sunstein. Because the point is, in, in this uh, um, abstract here, in conclusion, on the basis of observational data, the climate crisis that, according to many sources, we are experiencing today, experiencing today, is not evident yet. And so, again, they're running these prescriptive models based on their own biases of what they think the world is and how uh, what's going on in regards to um, these supranational concerns that seem to transcend uh, national sovereignty. And they these topics transcend episodes, even as long the, as these episodes are. We can't get And that was line. from the e EU. No increase journey. in hurricane frequency from what year to what year is that graphic? 1920. Well, that's just 120 years. 
I'm not sure to they mention, meant it was a different not, period of time. Yeah, not to mention the ice core samples taken, I think, from Greenland, 90, 1994. Uh, if you look at paleoclimatology, we had much warm, uh, much greater warming periods in the past. They basically conveniently, conveniently start at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, or not even the beginning, really towards the end, American Industrial Revolution, really in the 19th century. And then they give, you know, um, by neglecting a bunch of aspects and variables, the hockey stick model, like, you know, Al Gore, who apparently invented the internet. Wall. Global warming or global governance can be your Joking. first search after this podcast. But right now, but I want to celebrate the 100th episode by saying, if there's somebody in the control room, now we started out this episode, 35 people in the control room. If there's somebody in the control room that has video, clear audio, and wants to say what they love about this podcast, I'll let you come on stage and you can talk to the good people out here. Yeah, raise your hand. Yeah, LD will handle Metaphorically bringing speaking. you. Oh, hello, he'll handle bringing you into the room. So it's like uh, the Zoom raising hand function. Yeah, it's a Zoom raising hand function. We got a lot of people who like to observe the pre-show, the post-show. They're all Grand Theft World members. A lot of them are autonomy graduates, and we're going to see who wants to step up and seize their moment, seize the day. Carpe diem. And now it's more like seize the morning, the wee hours of the morning. Hey, by the way, while we we're doing that Clay Clark thing earlier, I texted Clay Clark because he gets up at 3 a.m. in the morning. And if I want him to see my text, what time am I going to text him? Boom, we're doing a live stream. Here's the deal. I want to get hooked up on the follow-up that we talked about, and we'll see if he responds back. He's got a lot to do with those bath hours in the morning. Let's go. Uh, do we have anybody up yet? No takers First time yet. taking live callers on the show. I see some likely candidates, but uh, it's probably going to be the, the opportunity. I doubt any East Coasters want to be on camera at four four twenty in the morning. Who do we got? And we don't have to have a taker. I'm just saying there's still uh, you know good fifteen plus people uh, in addition to the five on the control room. Well, I'll jump in before somebody. Oh, he's choppy. Restart your banana. Yeah. Restart your voice meter banana. That's how it always fixed LDs when he his did that. <clears throat> Was I right in my guess? Let's see. Let's see. I'm I'm tra tech troubleshooting, getting the gremlins out of Justin's system, and now it's going to work. Let's see. All right. Coming through better? Yeah, that was a good guess yep. on my part. Not bad. All right. Nice. Yeah. Seven hours of running in the background. It gets like that. Yeah. Uh, Grand Theft World. Well, I can proudly say that I have consciously spent more time paying attention to this show than I have any mainstream news media source in my entire life. And I really think it, it has set me apart in my perspective from most everybody I come across in the world and the sort of conversations and the things they say about geopolitics or this and that. And it is really a blessing to be able to see things from a higher perspective of well, freedom and slavery in general, but also to have some actual tangible, I know where to look to find the information for the things that have actually happened in history that led to where we are. So it has uh, been an honor and always a great adventure and an illuminating experience to learn and get these artifacts on the record with you all. Awesome. Well-spoken. And uh, while I have you here, since you're an autonomy graduate, what do you say to the people on the fence out there who are like, I don't have the money or I don't have the time. Like by not taking this course, are you all of a sudden going to get the money or the time to do things in life? No, it's going to go on like that for years. So what would you have to say to them? You're a young buck. Uh, you're in your early twenties. 
that's the thing. It's you, it, it's you can't put the cart before the horse. And if you got money and time problems, it probably stems from disorganization and a lack of motivation. And it's very likely if you went through public schooling, there's 15,000 hours of your most impressionable years trying to design you into something that isn't productive, that isn't going to help you become the best kind of person that you want to be in the world. And if you're actually interested in something of uh, some entrepreneurial, I, it doesn't even have to be entrepreneurial success. If you just want to lead the life you want to live without doing it on somebody else's design, uh, you, you do need to go through a bit of an educational process to learn everything that was omitted from that system. Uh, but the good news is if you really apply yourself, it doesn't take that long, relatively speaking. And I mean, it's, I don't know of any other education out there like it. Uh, and for that, I do very greatly recommend it to the people that I come across that seem like they would benefit from it, which is most people and definitely anybody that went through public schooling. Yeah. And it doesn't take 15,000 hours to unlearn all that stuff. It takes like a yeah. hundred hours. And in that hundred hours, you learn all the stuff you're supposed to learn in the 15,000 hours or at yeah. least most of it, you know, and then it's a matter of practicing it from there. All right, Justin, thank you for running uh, East Coast production uh, behind the scenes. Control room. He's our fail safe in case LD loses power or something like that on the West Coast. We've got East Coast representation. And it looks like we also have uh, an Australia Grand Theft World listener, Colin Dixon. And he's also an Autonomy Season 1 graduate on the line. Hi, Colin. G'day, guys. Hey, are you? G'day, mate. Doing well. Have yourself Thanks a fast. For it's it's How's good. How's the um, crocodile it's hunter? It's 7.15 p.m. on what today? Monday today. So, yeah, I've been listening most of the day in and out doing stuff. But uh, congratulations, 100 episodes. That's amazing. That's two years worth, mate. Two That's years. amazing focus on our part. We didn't get distracted yet. Usually I got <laughs> bigger and better projects I move on to. But this is, uh, this is a real banger, this podcast, because it's easy mm -hmm. to spend six hours a week. We barely can get it in. You know, we we don't cover 75% of what's on the show card usually. So, yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I basically follow the program every week. Uh, the number 99, I didn't get to till yesterday. So sometimes it takes a while to get things happening. But um, I what do you like most, most about Grand Theft World, Colin? It's, um, uh, I, I cop a bit of the local media here in Australia, and it's just interesting to hear a, a hit on it to a few days later after the dust has settled and you've actually checked a few things out. So it's, uh, it's quite informative um, and uh, it's well presented. Um, I've started following JP and Russell Brand and a few of those that I've met on there. Today I just um, actually got a, um, what do I do? I got an email from one of the guys that was on earlier. Um, The suspense. A free ebook from Clay. Oh, you got Clay mm. Clark ebooks. Yeah. There you go. You got in his funnel. Yeah. So, uh, what's yeah, it like I'll, in Australia right now in regards to yeah? What's this? COVID what's, what's the political environment? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the political environment. Uh, we've got um, Dan Andrews coming up from the elect Victorian election yeah. um, in November. It's about. And Do you still um, have that the, nice woman Jacinda down there. <laughs> and that, and yeah, she's. She's a, she's across the ditch in New Zealand. New Zealand. Oh yeah. right, sorry. Yeah. 
the Kiwis. Yes. So, 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 so we, we haven't, uh, she's just about preceded the country back to the Maoris. So, yeah. um, but we're, we're, we've, um, New South Wales, who is our liberal, supposed to be our, you know, towards the right government, who are about to lose election early next year, have just given away all the national parks to the Aboriginals. So I think it's, um, 10, 20% of the land of Australia is about to be seceded to the First Peoples. And, of course, the First Peoples, uh, it'd probably be it's 3% of the population. And out of those that 3% of the population, there'd be less than 5% of them. Oh, no, it'd be far less. It'd be only 1% or 2% would be close to pure bloods. The rest of them are 50% or less. Most of them are wider than I am. But of course, they now, do, they, do they give your First Nations people casinos like they do here in America? Uh, no, they don't give them casinos, um, mm. just land you rights. You might mention it to them down there and be like, hey, Native Americans yeah. in America give them casinos, bro. Yeah. You guys want some scrub grass in the outback? What's up? Get some casinos going. Yeah, yeah. what type of land do they give them? That's a good, good point. Yeah, yeah well, the Outbacks, the Outback for a reason. They don't want to live know, there. They want to live nothing, near water. Some of the most pernicious predators that have ever evolved are in the Outback. So, <laughs> snakes and spiders of all types. Worse than the yeah. Amazon in many capacities. Yeah, drop bears, of course. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Hey, mind you, I've seen a few um, snakes around because warming up, so the snakes are getting active. Um, had a dirty, great big blue tongue lizard in the yard yesterday. The blue tongues are beautiful, though. They just eat crickets and insects That's and they hiss at you and look angry, but they're really nice. I'm just going to ask this because uh, my knowledge of Australia is limited. So I'm going to mm. say it like this. Um, you remember Roz? Roslyn was an Australian student from uh, Autonomy Season 4 and she had a problem with a python. She had a python mm. in her barn and it had like, I don't know, eaten some large animal and it was mm. digesting. And yeah. so I was like, what did you do with it? She's telling me this story and it's a huge Python. She sent pictures. She put hot water bottles on that some bitch's stomach to help it dissolve. Like whatever the goat it ate, you know, it was a huge yeah. snake. And I'm like, yeah. most women here in America would steer clear and like burn the shed down. You're in there nursing it so you can get it back out of your barn. Like, does that stuff, do you have a story to top that? Is it all crocodile hunter type stuff down there or, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, um, I used to teach. I was a teacher up in. You do have a story to top it. I, that's what I'm smelling. Okay, right, let's see. I, I was a, I was teaching up in the Kimberley, and um, Kimberley is um, there's a place called Derby, which is on the Fitzroy River. Now, the Fitzroy River, when it's in flood, is something like 25 miles wide. It dumps that much water into King George Sound. Uh, we measure large volumes of water in the terms of the amount of water that fits in Sydney Harbour. So it's a Sid Harb of water. It's a huge amount of water. I don't know what a Sid Harb is, but it's a huge amount of water. Anyway, under the Fitzroy Bridge, they claimed that they were running five Sid Harbs of water under the bridge every minute when it's in flood. Anyway, um, I, was, I took my um, year seven and eight science class on an excursion to one of the lagoons, which was quite away from the river, up in the mudflats. And we went up there and we just said, look, we've got crocodiles around here. It's got to be, got to be, um, do we have to be aware of crocodiles? 
And then and the Aboriginal said, no, nah, no, nah, that, that's too far from the river. You never get um, crocodiles up there, not the salties anyway, which are the, the bad ones. We've got the Johnson River crocodile here as well, but the salties eat them. So the, the, they tend to be in the fresher water upstream and they're harmless, the, the Johnson River crocodiles. They only grow to about, they're like an alligator, you know, those pathetic little American ones you have. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> anyway, we have salties yeah. now. Like our salties... Our salties in American terms get up to 24 foot long. Oh, my goodness. It's big. So that's, um, what, six metres. And uh, that, at that, that size, there are about three tonnes of crocodile. Three tonnes? Okay. Of crocodile, yeah. Big crocodiles. Yeah. Um, well, I, don't really do have... I haven't seen one more than, uh, because I've probably seen five metre crocodiles. Anyway. That is they, the they, size they, and they, weight of my house. <laughs> anyway, so it's it's not a tragic story. This one, anyway, I, I take my cars up there, and we're doing two days of yeah, you know, wading through the swamp, collecting little jars of wrigglers and insects and so forth. I'm up there with a couple of the other lady teachers. We've, we've combined these excursions. Anyway, um, we get back, and the next week, um, the Aboriginals come back to us, and so I said, "Oh, you better stay away from that swamp up there." Uh, Joe was down there with his horses, and he lost a horse. Oh. Crocodile came and took one of his horses. Oh, my goodness. I think I'll dig it. Oh, so he said, yeah, we've had a bit of rain lately, been flooding a bit. It looks like the croc crocs have gone up to that lagoon that you go in. Anyway, this question is not a play on the reptiles at all, but um, are you guys going to have King Chucky the Third on your money down there or oh, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think they're um, working on that Like right now? Someone's drawing and engraving. And making printing plates to put his name, his face on the money around the world. Oh, we, we've had lots of the five dollar note is the traditional note that has the queen on both sides, and um, so here's a five dollar note. So that one technically has a two faced queen. So that's no, there's no shit. <laughs> Sorry, it's like has a the queen on one thing. side. And Look, on part side, of the money is not even there, everybody. Most of money. <laughs> so we've got um, anyway. That's that one's supposed to have Charlie on it soon. Yeah. But yeah. everybody's printed out and changed on who they think they want on there. And mm. one of the most popular ones is um, is Crocodile Hunter, of course, Steve <laughs> Irwin. I've got Steve Irwin there. Now, um, those transparent windows in the currency, is that because their uh, money jet printer ran out of fluid or what, what's the deal with that? Uh, some Safety secret. and inclusion? Yeah, there's two. There's a, there's a, a window yeah. there. There's holograms. Yeah, it looks like they didn't there. have enough material to make a whole five dollar note five pound oh, that, note. That, that's extra 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 for that we actually print currency for a lot of countries we print indonesia's yeah, money yeah you do we, how's that work how's that <laughs> I don't know. we print we print bed maybe those countries are all just part of the same thing and they just have different names yeah compartmentalized it is apparently well, this is the most pure currency on the planet that's most impossible to counterfeit Mind you, yeah, that's the issue. It's about counterfeiting. That's all those holograms on there and what seems to be a transparent. Yeah, it's supposed to be. It's way more advanced than the bullshit they pass around here. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's, all, it's all counterfeit, as you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very fair point. Um, <laughs> silver went up 5% this week. So something's happening. Silver went up 5%. Gold went up 2% this week. So I follow that. Well, so that's good, are good signs to see what those asset classes are doing. That just means economies. money got worth less. And they're trying so, so hard to make it seem, um, at least in, uh, in America, to not have investors buy gold. 
they're trying to yeah. make it seem like everything's okay but yeah. uh once we have gold and silver really started to skyrocket they they truly lost control at that point most likely to some degree yeah thanks for piping mm-hmm. up colin nice to see you and i'll see you in two weeks for uh autonomy season eight and you'll be one of the students who have gone through all eight seasons there's several of you yeah, i've certainly showed up each season yeah I'll do that again. And uh, yeah, I, watch, I was watching on Rumble today. I've been watching on Odyssey. Sometimes I watch her on Zoom, but not that often. So I had to log back into Zoom when you had put a call out. I thought I'd better come and say hello. I appreciate you appreciate watching it live. Yeah. Some yeah. people it's just awesome. watch the replay. Always, and that's fine. Always, but it's a special to watch flavor it when it's live. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's better to watch it live than when it's a recording. You just know it's live. It's just different. That's right. Fear missing. Appreciate it. That's awesome. <laughs> And appreciate you following the work for so long. I mean, that's that's awesome. And you just said you finished episode ninety nine. I mean, that's that's quite an ordeal. Because I was like, yeah, a he's old time tragedy and hope member. I know. He's, I know. Yeah. He he was a he's, a, he's an OG associate producer on this video right here. If I look on uh, the credits, I'm sure I see Colin Dixon's name on the Ultimate History lesson. <laughs> I had some yeah, great what? interactions with you when I first got back into it. Um, you have some mm-hmm. very intelligent perspectives and questions, yeah, especially with your, your experience in education. So I really appreciated our interactions we've had. I know they were few and frequent, but uh, always mm-hmm. insightful. So, Oh, uh, ditto here too, yeah. Same, same, same. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. LD, who do we have to thank tonight? Aside from our stellar and superlative... There members, is one more. There is one more hand up. I don't know if you want to address it or let it go. Uh, oh, what do you got? There's Van Spangler. Is that his name? I don't know. I'll be, see, yeah. I just saw a hand up in the uh, yeah. participants. Yeah, yeah, it was four thirty. I was moving to. That's fine. Get, no, I just wanted to say yeah. before sunrise here. Fair enough. You know, got to turn his camera on. Maybe we'll, we'll keep this one quick, or yeah, or just save it for maybe, next week. Yeah, right? yes, maybe we'll be able to do it next week because, uh, yeah, we gotta get this that vent- get it up earlier before this we week. hit technical complications. All right, so uh, is that Van? We get it. Yeah. Van's here. Yeah, go ahead, Van. You made the hey show. Guys. Hey guys, um, sorry. I, I know you want to wrap it up, but yeah, congrats on your hundredth episode. That's amazing. And um, I'm catching up slowly. I only learned of you, Richard, in June after your um, podcast with uh, um, on the Corbett report about autodidacticism and. Uh, yeah, that's when I started looking at it. And at the moment, I'm trying to do Tony's logic course. And I'm finding it really <laughs> fascinating, but it, it, it just shows me how much uh, further I need to go. And But, yeah, the whole thing about John Gatto and all the work you've done, it's fantastic. And, yeah, I, I'm just, I just so happy to have found this community. And so thank you so much. And, yeah, I look forward to... Um, you know the this the up and coming season as well because I think this is this is something that I've been waiting for all my life. I just I didn't know something like this existed. You know the uh, autonomy course. So yeah, and, and already you know it hasn't even started, and I've already met so many people, and I can I can see everything that you talk about um, and how it how beneficial it is. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's what you make of it, but. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good thing that, that you've cr- created, you guys have created, especially you, Richard. So thank you so much for that. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> well, thank you, hi. man. For, yeah, thank you. Yeah, for especially for going through the course. And if you have any feedback, I certainly would like that because I might host it again sometime. And 
you know, break it up and make it a little bit more digestible because it's pretty intense topics that I cover, especially that first episode. It gets a little easier as we go through the fallacies and I can present stuff we presented on the show, which makes it a lot more fun. But at first, that first lecture I gave was a little intense. So I appreciate it though so much. And thanks for joining in. I mean, that's awesome too. You signed up for autonomy. It sounds like it's going to be quite an incredible season of a friend, a couple friends that have signed up for it, that have been a part of the town hall. So I'm really excited to see what their experiences are like going through the course. Yeah, it's great to meet you, Van. And it shows a lot of persistence on your part because I don't know if it was me and I heard they, they were going to close the show, I might have like wimped out. And I'm really glad that uh, you spoke your mind and I think it's very fortuitous that LD was like, hey, there's one more hand up and uh, way to way to get it done. It's like the train is leaving and you stepped right on and seamlessly you uh, communicated the value you were receiving and it came, it came across being expressed with a lot of gratitude. And I think that's a very inspiring uh, and insightful way to, to bring the show towards the crescendo. Thank you, Van. P- pleasure to meet yeah, you. Thank you very you much. Thanks, guys. See you, Van. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. you. That's awesome. Who do we got, LD? All right. Well, um, yeah. Now I want to first. I wanted to say a shout out to Tyler Bloyer. Thanks for helping us launch this thing. I can't believe we've been doing this for a hundred weeks. You know, in some form or another, that's pretty wild. And uh, yeah, Tyler, Tyler kind of uh, helped build the infrastructure to get this thing going. So. It's true. He did. And I was teaching a logic course for autonomy when you guys first started this. So that's, that's I think it was September when I was like, let's do something with the URL. And he was like, or LD was like, you don't own it anymore. Do you want to buy it back? Then I was like, yeah. And then it was like, let's uh, kick off the first podcast. I think it was November 2nd or November 4th of 2020. It was that uh, election week. And yeah, it's been, it's been quite a ride ever since. Indeed. Yeah. But huge thanks to all the Grand Theft World community members. Uh, you guys are awesome. And uh, big thanks to the Rockfin Tippers. I've got a few messages and questions. So I'll breeze through them real quick. Dallas Avad, $10. Happy 100th episode of GTW. A beautiful day and a beautiful hello to beautiful people. It's a public holiday here. Queen's birthday. He's laughing. And we got the day off work to listen in the garden while we enjoy the sunshine. Here's to another 100 episodes. Long live more public holidays. Grant D, $10, sending $10 times 10 to the power of love, I think. Congratulations, GTW. Whisk Cannabis, $5, 100. Keep them coming, guys. And meet me at West Broadway and Barclay on Odyssey. Yeah. Go check out, uh, oh man, what's Daniel's channel? I'll try to share that somewhere. R. Lewis, $5. Thank you, GTW. Brought clarity to the dread. Brought by these Huns in these hundred shows. Love from Muskoka, Ontario. Tommy Riley, $2. Friendly reminder that Ukraine, Poland, and Britain signed a trilateral agreement before the invasion. He linked to a Reuters article. Yet no one is talking about the Anglo-Saxons and how Morawicki was at Oxford with Boris Johnson. Another $2 from Tommy Riley. Hey, LD, I got my Polish figures wrong. Radislaw Sikorsky was at Oxford with Boris and tweeted uh, and deleted a tweet saying, thanks, U.S., with pic of Nord bubbles in the Baltics. Yeah, also, he married to Anne Applebaum of the Atlantic Council. Just rather believe that a non I have some of Anne's actor. books right here. I yeah. have her Red Famine. <laughs> um, 
Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Rebunked, Scott, $10. Congrats on 100 incredibly informative and entertaining episodes. Also, congrats on getting on Band.Video. Much love, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Well, thank you, Scotty, Scott. You, you got us on Band.Video, bro. Yeah, thank yeah. you. We should be sending you $10. That's right. That's right. Ksenia Maffey, $5. Thank you. Gary Snyder, $50. Best show on the interwebs. Props from the Berg. Food for the brain. Tommy Raleigh, another $2. Hey, Richard, Aubrey Tang is more important to the internationals than Harari as she helped to create the pattern of daily briefing to the citizens during COVID in Taiwan as the digital minister that Zelensky, uh, that, excuse me, that Zelensky and his admin know using in Ukraine. But here's a link to Harari conversations with Tang. There's another YouTube link. I'll, I'll drop these in our chat later. Chris Youngblood, $10. GTW is always a fantastic voyage. Love y'all. Thank you, Chris. Denver Attaway, $2. Democratic staffer, 23 Executed on the streets of Philly. No robbery attempt took place. This was premeditated murder for some unknown reason. Resembles a hit in almost all news coverage. Neglects how he, ha- how he was a current Democratic staffer for Congressman Boyle of Pennsylvania. Instead, news characterizes him as Temple grad or former student. Uh, there's a link there. Um, yeah, I want to check out Kensington Ave. I used to live in Philadelphia, Northern Liberties. And my buddy lived in Northern, uh, near Temple, which would be like uh, North Broad. And so, uh, you know, that's a pretty gnarly area. I wouldn't put it past, you know, random murders. I'm not saying there wasn't possibly intent, but. I'm not saying he's not Seth Rich. Yeah, that could be possible. But, you know, it's tough to say. Philly's kind of an open air drug market right now and a lot of chaos, especially around Kensington Ave. Jim Garrison, $5. This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. No CBGBs. No goddamn scabies. I ain't got time for that now. Yeah. That was uh, quoting the talking heads. That is. Thank you. Small computer system interface dash one, $5. Thank you, GTW crew. Thank you. B1, $10. Number 100, GTW. You have made a positive impact on me and many others. Thank you for beaming through these last two and a half years. Thank you, B1. Back at you. Laurie Quigley, $5. Thanks for all the work you put all you all put in. Very appreciated. Much love to all. Matt Green, $100. As a GTW community member, I love the John Taylor Gatto interview as well as the Michael Badnarik Freedom Course. I watched both all the way. I watched both all the way through. Here's to 100 more GTW podcasts on Rockfin. Tcan five dollars. Thanks, GTW. Thank you again. Thank uh, Shane Thoreau. Five dollars. Take it here. Here we'll give you one one last. Oh geez, where'd it go? Just take it. I got too many things on the board. Take now. it. There yeah. we go. Very safe. U.S. Bio Labs. Ten dollars. Happy hundredth episode, gentlemen. Looking forward to looking forward to a hundred more. That's a great name too. Hashtag. I always feel safe when you pops in the chat. Boycott PayPal, boycott Israel. Nick Hayes, $20. Grand Theft World is 100 shows old, serving up the hot news. The flow is never cold. Inspiring reliance on textual evidence, diving in, going deep, never hesitant. Forensic analysis with comedic intent, content and clips questioning the government. Driggs, Myers, and Grove, excellent to the core. Here's hoping and praying for 100 shows more. Very nice. 
you're gonna be a poet yeah <laughs> seriously Jeez, he's just he's just showing off because you know what in Britain right now lines. it's like it's like flat out morning. He's wide awake. He's he's got coffee. Yeah, he's he's writing poetry. Gym. He's at the yeah. gym running yeah. miles. All right, we had a, a comment job. from interesting if true. Thanks again, Nick. Hey, Rich. Jay Dyer mentioned in the clip last week about needing a way to organize large amounts of info. Got me thinking. Your brain model. Could be a tool for that. What if he had a brain mo- What if he had a brain model that was a link in your brain model, and others also had a node link in yours to their own brain model? Yeah, I, I could show them how to make models. Yeah. All right. All and right. Link them together. Yeah. It's a big brain idea. Big brain. Well, H.G. <laughs> Wells came up with the idea of a world brain. You know, in his uh, New World Order days back in the day. You know, over there. Uh, so yeah, it's only fitting to like, let's use it to show what those people are doing. Makes sense. All right. Last, last thing was, uh, squeaked in last week. I didn't get to it from Skeletor three, two, two. Now we saw a bit of the manuscript earlier, so we know it exists, but $5 from Skeletor rich when the Myers verse comes, Oh, sorry. When the Myers verse trademark comes online. Will you be willing to upload your consciousness to the Myers Verse trade, the Myers Verse trademark, and become the Neo Max Hedrum, where you can stream GTW on the nets for infinity? When would when will your I, I, I don't think come so. out? I was trying to do my best Max Hedrum impression. Like he's circa nineteen eighty six, like uh, altered reality type of segments on Cinemax or HBO back in the day. I mean that's a that's a far callback, Max Hedrum. You're definitely showing your age there using references like that, bro. Um, so he's anxious for that Rothschild book. I know it's it'll come yeah, one I would, day. Uh, I too would like to see it out there. It's been a lot of. He's been asking it? for that for a while. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, where's the Rothschild? I, I, I want it. I want it out there too. Uh, but in there's time, other, there's, yeah, there's, in time. There's priorities. It's, there's obstacles. There's enemies. There's a lot of sensitivity around anything like when i started writing it it was all pretty cool yeah. but now you see what's going on out there it's a little different game it's especially you know i got a very clear transparent window into what's and you going started on. long before you had you know it, 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 yeah, child so it's, and family now situation it's a much different game and um, it's a lot bigger of a project than when i first had a hundred page outline now yeah. my outline i have like the original outline page. by the yeah. way yeah, so it's there's a lot on that topic, and which proves my point. There needs to be more books showing where the evidence on that topic is, and that's what my my books do. They yeah. map out that which exists and show you where to find it, so you can read more. Thanks, but everybody. It's all process and it's back burner, so we'll keep moving forward. And um, I just want to shout out Ernie Hancock. I've got this. Uh... <laughs> Got him on here. Yeah, LD is sporting oh, yeah. the original limited edition wanted poster with uh, Obi Wan Hancock, and uh, if you're really a dastardly fellow, you can get to supervillainprinting.com, and it's somewhere on Drew's page. Uh, there's also some other cool shirts on there, oh, but uh, XRP. Had we had Ripple, right? Like that's the official currency of the World Economic Forum. And uh, now, I guess, because of January 6th, he actually is a wanted man. And Yeah, he's been subpoenaed. And 
Or no, not officially. They, so not there's officially. a lot of okay. funny business. It's, yeah, they're dancing it's around. It's been very Brown enlightening. Seeing they want people to incriminate themselves end. and make the jobs easier. That's right. And Ernie wants He's to take a stand because he is yeah. worried about other young content creators, people that are just going to say, oh, yeah, I'll do, I'll do what the FBI and the DOJ. Yeah, I'll just play ball. And, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Well, you know, you ver- verify some files and then um, <clears throat> you Stangers. waive your Fifth Amendment right to Yep. You know, against incriminating yourself. So, right, exactly. exactly. Um, you know, we'll keep you updated. We'll see what happens. Um, if you haven't been to grandtheftworld.com and clicked the, clicked the join community button, go check it out right now. I think the Zoom call is the superior live viewing experience. I get the replays posted, um, you know, usually early Monday morning depending on your time Yeah, if you zone. want the cleanest experience watching live, be in the control room on the Zoom call. And if you want the cleanest replay, you get into the app and watch it in the uh, the Library of Cognitive Liberty. And then the secondary quality resources will be like uh, Rumble, Odyssey. Uh, <clears throat> we check out Band on Video now. We'll be uploading the Band on Video as well. We are. Yeah, we can't live stream video. there yet, but it gets no. the next day treatment. Yeah, next day as far as, yeah. We, we'll be then post the Odyssey and Rumble one. Now you got bros up there that I posted that earlier tonight. How many uh, views do we have over there already? Thirty five hundred eighty six views. Jeez. That's not bad. That's like more followers than we have on Odyssey. That's more subscribers. That's more than say. that would get in a week on my YouTube channel. That's awesome. So, so yeah. go check Thank out you the YouTube website. for shadow banning me. <laughs> and Sorry. then last thing, like I said, I'm something of a pig farmer these days. So here's proof. Take it. Like, is this a take it joke? Is this no. like is you're tying it? No, all we're together? not doing that yet. I'll let you know if that happens. Uh, but you gotta get the corkscrew. Just get to play with cute, uh, piglet. cute piglets. Feed the animals. They're happiest when they're money. Very smart animals. They are. They're also yeah, they're very, very similar very <laughs> standpoint of human human biology and tissues and. Anyways, very similar. Now, is it right yeah. that such an uh, intelligent yeah. animal mm. makes such tasty bacon? Mm. I don't know if that's right. Well, you got to cure I it and smoke it. I'm not it. the creator of this place. I'm an inhabitant of it. So, step back. <laughs> I feel like I should point out. Uh, bacon tastes good. Yesterday Hope was the tastes good. The anniversary yeah. of the uh, founding of the LGB movement. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you recall. Yeah, let's go, Brandon. Yeah. Yep. Let's go, Brandon. Was do we need a refresher? Yeah, let's do the refresher just <laughs> for the time capsule. Keep peace, people in the his, uh, future get like some bum explanation. Here's the real deal. Just such an unbelievable moment. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the, the crowd. Let's go, Brandon. Brandon, That's you right. told me you were going to kind of hang back those first two stages and just watch and learn. What did you learn that helped you there in those closing laps? Oh, my God. It was uh, learning how each line didn't uh, stay to one. It Everything shifted top to bottom. Well, that's a monumental moment in media malfeasance. I mean, it's hard to believe it was only a year ago. It seems like so many good Let's Go Brandon memories over the past year. So many people calling into news shows and getting it on the TV. Or Biden himself in. when they were doing that. Uh, Let's go, Brandon. I thought it was, was really, the, when I bought the Let's Go Brandon t-shirts, I thought it was about the guy in the wheelchair that Joe Biden told me about. But apparently it's about 
what those people were saying in the background at that race right there. Nope. And that might make some racism associated with it, right? Racers, racism. They could just you know, put put those two together. Those people were at a race. They must be racists to come up with such a chant about let's go, Brandon. It's all right there. I think it's Sun, Sunstein 101. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> do you want uh, to well, thank you, everyone? <laughs> honestly, real quick, just thank yeah. you, everyone that has been supporting our show. Thank you, Van and Colin, for coming on as well towards the end. Um, and just showing your support and all the, the tippers tonight, just incredible that you guys have been following along and we've been growing the show and it's just been a, and thank you, Rich, for allowing me the opportunity to participate because I came on a little bit later. So it's been a lot of fun and see where it goes from here. So, well, we got more stories about Chimera and Bellerophon and all the stuff from the good <laughs> mission impossible movie. Uh, they unfolded every week. They call it their news. Now I'm wondering, do we have something funny? to play us out tonight do we didn't well we, we haven't some heard funny stuff from... last week and we got permanently banned on youtube on that channel burned a perfectly good pirate channel last week just playing 10 minutes of andrew schultz god damn it so yeah. let's see what we can do we want we want to preserve charles douglas jackson like he's in some like he's preserved yeah like he's preserved the Saputa film like he's like well he actually maimed it um <laughs> there's there's, there's that him, but i i did want to like you know not burn the second pirate channel so fast so that we would still have a little outreach just for consciousness that might be on youtube over there so 11 people well, watching on youtube we haven't heard from what's her face for a long time so that might be a good well uh, she uh has become a mom she had yeah, some trials and tribulations and conquered some challenges and she's doing very well now and she's still funny so let's go to what's her face that's her name. Yeah. What's her face? What's her face entertainment? Subscribe on YouTube. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. Here's what's her face to play us out. So Joe Biden called out to a dead congresswoman at one of his recent speeches. Um, you Not know, even just Joe killed. Biden doing Joe Biden stuff. Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here. So this woman he's calling out to, uh, Jackie, she actually died in August in a car accident. And, um, he, he, um, he issued a statement when she died, but I guess he forgot all about that. Now, the, the thing that I love the most <clears throat> about all this Joe Biden stuff is that people will defend him. It's just funny to me that there's like, there's just like, no, there's just like nothing that these people won't defend. From this brilliant mind named Master Bates on Twitter. You guys know how much I love Twitter. You guys seem to think the president writes his own remarks. Meanwhile, on Earth, he was reading off the teleprompter and A, he read the name written accidentally by an intern or B, there could be, oh, I don't know, uh, another woman named Jackie in Indiana who worked on this too. I mean, of it's course, obviously dichotomy. this has been fact-checked. He was not calling out to another Jackie. He was calling out to a dead woman named Jackie that he just, oops, forgot, uh, was killed in a horrific car accident. That's something a normal person forgets. You know, I actually don't have a problem with the fact that Joe Biden is um, the lead, the leader of the free world, so a lot of people think. Because I believe leaders 
are a reflection of society. So whoever's leading a country, they're just a reflection of the people we're leading. I mean, when we had um, when we had Donald Trump, you know, he was very loud and boisterous and narcissistic. And this was at a time when we were at like the pinnacle of generation me. This was during a time when people were selling their bath water on the internet. Yeah, that's how important they thought they were. And they were actually making a killing. He also had like the big yellow comb over. Um, we have these people now who just have like these very like exaggerated looks. So he was kind of like this perfect figurehead for what was going on in society, you know? He came from from reality TV and his presidency kind of played out like reality TV where it kind of blurred the lines between what was real and what was scripted, you know, with this whole QAnon production that ended up being completely fruitless. And now we have Joe Biden. We have Joe Biden who is weak and feeble and, you know, there's a lot of people out there with this selective amnesia. So he's, um, he's a little bit demented. And the dude shits his pants. Let's think about the world we're living in right now, you know, in America. Like, between all the girls that are on OnlyFans, like, doing butt stuff, and all the people who have Crohn's disease from, like, the toxic food and the toxic injectables. Like, how many people really aren't shitting their pants in America. Like pretty much everybody, like you wanna know who's, you wanna know who's shitting their pants uh, several times per day? It's a problem. It's like a, it's a really, um, it's a really big, it's a really big problem in our society with the shitting of the pants. So we have this like per perfect representation. You know, I always thought that the world wouldn't go out with a bang. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, you gotta, you gotta be careful because I heard there's gonna be nuclear war. There's gonna be a nuclear bomb in the city. There's no nuclear bomb. These people don't have to set off a nuclear bomb. I mean, all they have to do is, is like convince you to inject your own self with, uh, with the thing that kills you. And, and like, as long as you get like a few likes on Instagram, you're willing to off yourself. Like they don't need a nuclear bomb. People fall off bridges trying to take a selfie. So we do not need nuclear bombs. Uh, and I always thought that the world would kind of go out with a whimper. And what better representation of that than an old man just like falling up the stairs, uh, shitting his pants, forgetting that his friends are dead. You know, when I talk about this, I'm not like, I'm not saying that this is unique to America, I'm going to show you what, um, what, like the perfect epitome of Canada. Yeah, you saw that, right? That's Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I think that's a perfect representation of Canada, of Canadians right there. There's, uh, mentally challenged man singing an American song. It's gotta be American because you know how much Canadians wanna be like America at somebody's funeral. Like it kind of reminds me of like when you're really like slow cousin, like does a little dance for the family and everybody's just like, yeah, yeah. Cause you're not gonna actually like make fun of him cause he's kind of like retarded, you know? So like that's kind of what 
Canada is like, like the whole world is just like, oh, good job. Oh, wow. Wow. Did you do that all by yourself? Hey, listen, Nigeria. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Canada did? I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that um, Joe Biden is what America deserves? Do you think that's what people deserve? I mean, right now we have this um, this new prime minister in Italy who, you know, people are a bit split on. I think what blows my mind the most about um, what happened with this with this Italian prime minister is everybody was like playing this speech. I don't know if you guys heard this speech. Um, I can play it for you. E allora è sotto attacco l'identità nazionale, è sotto attacco l'identità religiosa, è sotto attacco l'identità di genere, è sotto attacco l'identità familiare. Non devo potermi definire italiana, cristiana, donna, madre, no? Io devo essere cittadino X, genere X, genitore 1, genitore 2, devo essere un numero. Perché quando sarò solamente un numero, quando non avrò più un'identità, quando non avrò più radici, beh allora sarò lo schiavo perfetto in balia della grande speculazione finanziaria il consumatore perfetto I mean, on every, like, everybody was losing their mind over this some people were like, this is horrible and some were like, this is the best and then, you know, there's a lot of people that were excited on this side about this woman and then it came out that I don't know, like a couple of years ago she was uh, she was talking about being on board for digital passports right? Penso ad esempio al tema del certificato verde digitale Siamo stati i primi a sostenerlo, ci auguriamo che venga adottato il prima possibile in un orizzonte di eh, totale reciprocità con tutti gli altri stati europei. È una priorità ed è fondamentale per ripristinare la libertà di circolazione e far ripartire soprattutto il turismo. And the thing that amazes me is that as soon as people started passing that around, everybody was like, so what, a woman can't change? A woman can't change her opinion and save us? I'm like, guys, you just learned about this woman like 10 minutes ago. Like 99% of people just learned about this woman 10 minutes ago. And then five minutes ago, they learned that uh, she might not be the savior of the whole planet. And people got so angry, like they were already so attached. This is what I don't understand about people. They get so attached. How are you this attached to this woman already? Like, I mean, I just like watch things unfold and I just watch people like go through like, um, like they just spiral out of control. It's like, I'll wake up in the morning. I'm like clearing the sleep from my eyes and people have already gone through the full spectrum of emotions just by reading shit on Twitter. It's like the whole world has gone bipolar. Actually, that's good. That's actually a really good point because I was saying um, that, you know, leaders are a perfect representation of their people, of society. If we go into this globalist one world government, one world religion, it's just, that's what it's going to be. It's just going to be like a, like one bipolar nutcase. The world is going to be run by the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> All right, guys, that's it for me today. We are gonna go dance around the room to a whole new world. Then we're gonna dance around the room to Gaston because her favorite song is Gaston. No one's quick like Gaston. No one's slick like Gaston. No one's neck is incredibly thick like Gaston. My baby likes Disney villains. Um which I can appreciate because the villains were usually the smartest, right? She's not gonna go over, like, she's not gonna like 
the dumb girl who like stumbles upon a poison apple. Like there's a there's a wicked witch giving you an apple going like why are you eating that? It's a little bit. So I'm happy to know that my kid likes Gaston, which means she's gonna like big strong men with big thick necks and bodies covered in hair. Uh, she's not gonna be into the soy boys. And for like, for some reason, I'm getting a lot of comments lately from people who are like, what's with the green screen? This is my house, this is my home. You see, I can touch. This is my home. You think this is a green screen? Dude, if I was gonna do a green screen, would I put my breast pump in the corner? Would I put the puzzle I've been working on for four days because this is my life now in the background? Do you think this is, you think I'd pick eight foot ceilings if I was doing a green screen? If I was doing a green screen, I'd be in a mansion. I'd have like a, an ocean behind me. My dream is to live on an ocean front property. I'd have the whole ocean behind me. I'm just, I'm just gonna put like a little modest 1,000 square foot bungalow green screen behind me. Like is, who would even do that? Conspiracy is a story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.